We're doing a live taping of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour this Wednesday at 12.30 p.m. Eastern. If you would like to sit in the virtual studio audience of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, we're doing another live taping. It's about gun control and how to fight back. Go to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour right now to sign up. All you need is Zoom. You can attend a live taping of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour this Wednesday, 1230 Eastern. Go to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour website to sign up. Welcome to the mop up for July 25th, 2022. I'm David Feldman coming to you from an air shaft overlooking a parking garage somewhere in Manhattan where the temperature is a bone chilling 90 degrees and cloudy. Bloomberg reports that the average rent in Austin, Texas, has doubled over the previous year. Well, it must be all those illegals flooding over the border. They're the ones who are raising the rent. It couldn't possibly be the the greedy landlords. What's going on in Austin? Well, there are too many people and too few places to live. But luckily, Texas gun laws are changing that. Be patient, folks. Soon there'll be plenty of vacant apartments and homes, thanks to Governor Greg Abbott and his gun laws. The heat wave, we're going to be talking about guns on today's show in a couple of minutes. The heat wave continues Arizona, and we're going to be talking about Arizona as well, because Trump had his big rally there. The heat wave continues. Arizona is fighting the heat by painting its roads gray in an attempt to reflect the heat back into the atmosphere. And so are some towns in Los Angeles. They're painting the roads. You know, as long as you're painting the roads, why don't you paint a big sign that says use mass transit? Senator Joe Manchin has tested positive for COVID-19, probably got it from Joe Biden licking his ass. Well, Joe Manchin just tested positive. Soon he will experience fatigue, shortness of breath, breath and a furriness in his lungs, not from COVID, from all those fossil fuels he's making us burn. Well, in West Virginia, former West Virginia State House of Delegates Representative Derek Evans live streamed himself storming the Capitol on January 6th. He has now been sentenced to serve three months after pleading guilty. But yesterday, he took to social media to swear revenge for his prison sentence. Evans took to social media and wrote, quote, if they think I was pissed over a stolen election, they haven't seen anything now that they have forced me to say goodbye to my crying kids. Hashtag January 6th. Oops. You see, when you make statements like that, Judges extend your sentences. So Evans quickly became very apologetic. He was apologetic when he pled guilty. And then after he realized what he had put out on social media, he calmed down, probably on advice from counsel. He took to social media a few hours later and wrote, quote, sad that I once again have to say this. But everyone knows I have consistently said I will fight this battle in a legal, peaceful and political way, a legal, peaceful and political way. 
like storming the Capitol to hang Mike Pence and Nancy Pelosi. Well, so far, this is what these people do. They 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 are violent. They preach violence. And then when they get caught, they insist. I didn't say anything. I'm not violent. So far, the Justice Department has charged more than 800 people for their connection to the January 6th insurrection. Only 50 have pleaded guilty to felony charges. It is estimated that 10,000 people showed up to Donald Trump's Stop the Steal speech at the Ellipse on January 6th. Of those 10,000 people, 2,000 entered the Capitol. The Brookings Institute over the weekend outlined what exactly Trump could be criminally prosecuted for. You may want to pay attention, Merrick Garland. Brookings says Trump could be put on trial for obstructing an official proceeding by ordering his hooligans to forcibly block the counting of the Electoral College. That's one count that he could be prosecuted on. Brookings says that Trump's numerous plans to overturn the election makes him subject to criminal charges of conspiracy to defraud the United States. He is also susceptible, subject to charges of dereliction of duty. Trump could be charged with dereliction of duty by refusing to stop the attack on the Capitol. That's what Thursday's hearings were all about. And says Brookings, Trump could be prosecuted for inciting an insurrection. Brookings also reminds us of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which explicitly forbids any American who participates in an insurrection or attack on the United States government from ever serving in that government. That wouldn't just be Trump. That would be Mo Brooks, Josh Hollings, Gosar, uh, Andy Biggs, all the people who wanted pardons, all the Congress people, Loudermilk who wanted pardons. The 14th Amendment would uh, explicitly forbid them from serving in Congress if we enforced the 14th Amendment, Section 3. See, the Republicans have made it very clear that they do not like Washington. And they are supported by wealthy oligarchs who want to dismantle what is called the administrative state, which was set up during the New Deal. The administrative state is the three million some odd federal employees who work for all the agencies that regulate corporations. The oligarchs hate, hate the administrative state and our Supreme Court also hates the administrative state. They want to dismantle the administrative state, at least the majority of judges sitting on the Supreme Court. They want to roll back the administrative state to pre-Roosevelt, pre-Franklin Roosevelt. Earlier this month in West Virginia versus Environmental Protection Agency, in a six to three majority opinion, the Supreme Court scaled back the EPA's power to regulate utilities and force them to move away from dirty energy. Why would we want an Environmental Protection Agency suddenly ordering utilities to move towards clean energy? Well, this is a, a party, the Republican Party, that wants to destroy 
Washington, D.C.'s regulatory power. They want to get rid of what they call intrusive government, unless it's abortion, unless it's same-sex marriage, contraception, then they want to be as intrusive as a gynecologist's speculum. But when it comes to, you know, being able to rip off consumers and poison the planet, then they don't want an intrusive government. The Republicans are utilizing a multi-pronged approach through the courts and with guns and with guns, guns and more guns. Here is Dr. Oz. He's a doctor. He's running for Senate in Pennsylvania. Here is a commercial he is running about our Second Amendment. Other conservatives know that I'm strong on the Second Amendment. Ted Nugent, Rick Perry, President Trump. But our Second Amendment is not just about hunting. It's about our constitutional right to protect ourselves from intruders or an overly intrusive government. An overly intrusive government, an overly intrusive government. They are finally saying this out loud, that guns are necessary to protect Americans from a government they may or may not like. This is where we're heading with the gun argument. Guns aren't about protecting us from criminals. It's not about protecting us from intruders. It's about protecting us from an overly intrusive government, unless, of course, that overly intrusive government doesn't want you to have an abortion or use contraception or engage in same sex or a same sex marriage. This is what the right wing believes. This is this is their end game. This is their end game. Republican Congressman Chip Roy represents Texas's 21st congressional district. He is a lawyer and he worked for the state attorney general's office in Texas. Here is what he said in early June about the role guns play in keeping Americans safe from a tyrannical government. Why do we have guns? Why do we have the Second Amendment? Is it to hunt? Sure. Self-defense? That's even more important. The fact is, you read the founders, Federalist 46, James Madison, contrasts us with the tyrannical governments of Europe who are, quote, afraid to trust the people with arms. Joseph Story in his commentaries on the Constitution in 1833, quote, the right of the citizens to keep and bear arms has justly been considered as the palladium of the liberties of a republic, since it offers a strong moral check against the usurpation and arbitrary power of rulers, and will generally, even if these are successful in the first instance, enable the people to resist and triumph over them. We have a Second Amendment because we understand in this country that there are some things, inalienable rights, that you cannot justly take away from a free and equal human being. Tyrants disarm the people they intend to oppress. Yeah, one of the ways to make sure your government isn't a tyrant is by participating in a democracy. But that's not what the Republicans want. They just want everybody to have guns and obey the laws that they feel like obeying. This is the new argument. Uh, this argument has always been there, 
But now it's loud and clear. The Republicans are saying we need guns to protect ourselves from an overly intrusive second, uh, overly intrusive government. Well, last week, Congressman Jamie Raskin, a former Nader's Raider who serves on the January 6th committee, he decided to address address Chip Roy's belief that the Second Amendment was put there to give our citizens the right to take arms against a tyrannical government. Here is Jamie Raskin. I'm not going to yield, but I'm coming to you right now. My friend from, from Texas, Mr. Roy, advances the so-called insurrectionist view of the Second Amendment, that the Second Amendment's purpose is to give the people the right to overthrow or fight our government or fight the police or threaten armed resistance if the government is somehow being unfair or unjust. This reading is totally, absolutely absurd and flies in the face of the plain text of the Constitution, which in at least five different places clearly forbids armed violent resistance to the government. The Republican Guarantee Clause in Article 4, Section 4 provides that the United States shall guarantee to every state in this union a Republican form of government and shall protect each of them against invasion and on application of the legislature or the executive against domestic violence. This was put in the Constitution specifically in response to Shays' rebellion and armed resistance to the government of the United States, which the founders strongly opposed. Here's another provision the gentleman from Texas should consider before cavalierly suggesting in public that citizens somehow have a constitutional right to use arms against our government and our police. Article 3, Section 3, Clause 1 states, in the only constitutional passage that defines a crime, treason against the United States shall consist only in levying war against them or in adhering to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort. Armed insurrection and violence against the United States is plainly making war against our government and thus is an act of treason. And I could cite all of the other ones. And what do they have against this? A quote from Patrick Henry, an anti-federalist who opposed the Constitution precisely because he thought it gave too much power to the federal government and didn't endow the people with a right of violent resistance against the government of the United States. That's not constitutional law. That's a constitutional joke. I yield back to you, Mr. Chairman. Gentlemen yield. The gentleman. So Chip Roy and the Republicans believe the Second Amendment is there to protect us from an overly intrusive government that we we get to decide if we have guns, we get to decide which laws we obey and which ones we don't obey. This is what we're up against. And it's all tied to January 6. I have a question for Chip Roy. You're worried about an overly intrusive government. Seventy percent of women want reproductive rights in Texas when they arrest somebody for having an abortion. That is, by very definition, an intrusive government. Do these women have a right to use their Second Amendment uh, rights and, and take arms against the government? Who decides what is an overly intrusive government? A democracy decides. You see, you prevent a tyranny by having a, an orderly, well-functioning democracy, and we get to vote on what the laws are. That's the way it's supposed to work. Well, before getting elected to Congress, Congressman Chip Roy served as Ted Cruz's chief of staff. Back in 2016, Ted Cruz offered up what I think is a way more persuasive argument for why our founding fathers gave us the Second Amendment. Take this, 
Jamie Raskin. Harvard Law, Ted Cruz, machine gun bacon. Nobody in the Senate takes more money from the National Rifle Association than machine gun bacon, Ted Cruz. Now, look, the Republicans cannot win at the polls. They cannot win elections. It's why during the past they cannot win fair elections. It's why during the past 30 years, a Republican candidate for president has won the popular vote once. That was 2004. That's it. No Republican has won. No Republican candidate for president has won the popular vote in 30 years, except for George Bush in 2004. So the Republicans, they need the courts. They need gerrymandering. They need voter suppression to win elections because they can't win on the issues. And as we saw on January 6, when they can't win those elections using the courts or voter suppression, they resort to violence. The Republican Party embraces violence and intimidation because they cannot win at the ballot box. They don't believe in democracy. They believe in a strong man. They believe in what is called the unitary executive theory, which gives unlimited power to the president of the United States so long as a Republican is president. They don't believe in unitary power of the executive when a Democrat is president. But once somebody like Donald Trump is president, they believe that the executive branch is supreme, but they have to get him in the Oval Office. They believe in a strong man. And right now, that strong man is Donald Trump. Jonathan Swan from Axios reported over the weekend that in October of 2020, then President Donald Trump signed an executive order that would allow him to fire thousands of civil servants and replace them with what he secretly referred to as America Firsters who were loyal to Donald Trump. This was reported and then quickly forgotten about. The executive order is entitled Schedule F. And had Trump been reelected, it would have allowed him to fire as many as 50,000 civil servants who, according to the executive order, would have no legal recourse to appeal their firing. President Biden has rescinded this executive order. But if reelected, Trump would bring it back. And Congressman Jerry Connolly is a Democrat for Virginia, from Virginia. He chairs the, the subcommittee that oversees the federal civil service, you know, the administrative state that the Republicans want to dismantle. And Congressman Jerry Connolly is very concerned about Trump's executive order. He attached an amendment to this year's defense spending bill, specifically forbidding a president from bringing back Donald Trump's executive order. It passed in the House. It is not expected to pass in the Senate. 
This is a big story coming out of Washington this past weekend. On his podcast today, Steve Bannon celebrated the Jonathan Swan piece in Axios, and he announced, uh, Bannon announced that he is preparing a one-hour special on his podcast, The War Room, that outlines how when reelected, Donald Trump will have at his disposal, once he reinitiates that executive order, he would have at his disposal 4,000 quote-unquote shock troops who will be ready on day one to dismantle the federal government. Shock troops. That's straight out of Nazi Germany. Bannon is talking. He is using Hitlerian references. Shock troops. Here is what Steve Bannon on his show, The War Room, said today. He's got pictures of Jesus. It's This is the oldest playbook. This is the oldest playbook uh, that fascism has. Uh, Steve Bannon has pictures of Jesus behind him, and he's talking with Trump advisor, former Trump advisor, Steve Cortez, about Swan's piece in in uh, Axios. We're talking about a Republican democracy because essentially we have taken on the model of really Davos and the Chinese Communist Party of an authoritarian state, undemocratic, with institutions that are not democratic, and state capitalism. Now, how do you combat that? You combat that by deconstructing. You have to take it apart, brick by brick. You know, Steve, uh, it gets my deplorable blood going on a Monday morning to hear Jonathan Swan <laughs> talk about a purge, a purge of the administrative state. Now, of course, he means that to be an expose and to be a hit on our movement. We take it exactly the opposite and wear it as a badge of honor. And it tells me that, yes, uh, Jonathan Swan recognizes that there is a plan in place that this second Trump term is going to be far more consequential than the first one. And the first one was quite consequential. Article three, I'm going to get um, Mike and we're going to have a one hour special on the Jonathan Swan Axios articles. I want everybody to understand deeply exactly what we're doing here, okay? Exactly what's going on, because you're gonna be a part of it. And particularly want people to come and step in forward and say, hey, I, I, I wanna be one of those 4,000 shock troops, or there's gonna be lots of other opportunities, lots of other opportunities. Drop the phrase, drain the swamp. This is beyond that. This is taking on and defeating and deconstructing the administrative state. We're gonna do that. And we're going to get a one-hour special on the Jonathan Swan Axios and get some people on here who can talk about it. And, of course, uh, my- So th- this is Steve Bannon, who makes uh, common cause with Orban in Hungary. Orban, over the weekend, gave a speech, I think it was in Romania, saying that Hungary, Hungarians must, ma- must maintain their ethnic purity. Uh, you know, we ignore these people at our own peril. Uh, On Friday, Steve Bannon was found guilty of contempt of Congress. A jury convicted Bannon on charges that he refused to testify before the January 6th Select Committee. The January 6th uh, Committee wanted him to explain what he meant uh, on January 5th uh, when he warned about January 6th. And uh, Bannon says he was found guilty. He faces, I think... uh, I think 30 days or two years in prison. I think it's 30 days in prison, but maybe two years. I have to look it up. Uh, Bannon says he will appeal the decision 
in a press conference on Friday on the courthouse steps afterwards, Bannon remained defiant. I only have one disappointment, and that is the gutless members of that show trial committee, the J6 committee, didn't have the guts to come down here and testify in open that court. Thank you very much. Yes, it was the January 6th committee that didn't have the guts to testify in his trial because, you know, Bannon has guts, except when it's time for him to testify before the January 6th committee. Then he hides behind executive privilege. And then when the January 6th committee charges him with contempt of Congress and the Justice Department decides to prosecute, uh, he says, you know what? Uh, I don't want to go to prison. Uh, How about you let me testify? He wanted to testify. Mr. Guts. Suddenly he has guts. But by then it was too late. And the Justice Department continued the prosecution of Steve Bannon. He got convicted on Friday. And not only that, he's also going to have to testify before the January 6th committee. I don't body shame on this show. Yes, I do. I should stop. But Congresswoman Elaine Luria, you know her from the January 6th committee. This is (laughs) what she tweeted. Uh... It's a before and after picture. It's Steve Bannon serving in the Navy. You know, young, kind of attractive. Now, here he is, unkempt, liver spots, bags underneath his eyes, rotting from the inside. And she writes, this is what hate does to you. All right. I see. I approve of that. Congressman Elaine Luria from the uh, January 6th committee. Just any way you can make Steve Bannon feel bad about himself. Go for it. Bannon talks a big game, kind of like Senator Josh Hawley, who, as we all know, raised a clenched fist in solidarity with the people threatening to storm the Capitol. He riled them up. But as we all know, when they stormed the Capitol, he ran like a little bitch. Those aren't my words. Those are the words of former Capitol Police officer Michael Fanone. This is what Michael Fanone told Politico after the hearings. This is what he said of Senator Josh Hawley. Josh Hawley is a and he ran like um, and the fist pump combined with uh, what he did in the immediate aftermath just shows the true character or lack thereof. True character or lack thereof. Well, in other news, Ivana Trump was buried on Wednesday, married four times. Only one ex-husband showed up for the funeral. Donald Trump was the only out of four ex-husbands. Only Donald Trump showed up because he's the only one still alive. Three out of four of her husbands uh, are no longer with us. Hmm. That's sad that three out of four are no longer with us. It's very sad news that three out of four of her ex-husbands are no longer with us. Very sad. Ivana's children, she was a great mother. She, uh, they spoke. They were her pride and joy. Don Jr. spoke lovingly about how his mother would beat him if he was misbehaving at a restaurant. Don Jr. said at his mother's funeral that if he was misbehaving at a restaurant, Ivana would take him to the bathroom to demonstrate what 
quote unquote, Eastern European discipline was really all about. And everybody laughed. And he said after she beat him in the restroom of a restaurant, she would say, and if you cry, we're going to come back in here and do this all over again. That's Don Jr. eulogizing his beloved mother who would take him into a public restroom to beat him. So I guess it's OK for men and women to use the same bathrooms so long as it's for the purpose of beating your child into submission. Don Jr. then went on to lovingly remember the time his sister, that would be Ivanka, broke an expensive chandelier, chandelier and blamed it on him. Ha 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 ha. Oh, how they laughed at the funeral. Ivanka blamed Don Jr. for the broken chandelier. And so Ivana, his mother, he lovingly recalls, took out a wooden spoon and beat him senseless with it. How hard did Don Jr. get beaten with a wooden spoon by Ivana Trump? Well, by the time he said Ivana, his mom, finally realized that it was Ivanka who broke the chandelier and not Don Jr., his mother, Ivana, was too exhausted from beating him with the wooden spoon to go after his sister, Ivanka. Isn't that funny? Isn't that warm memories of your mother, Ivana, beating you repeatedly with a wooden spoon? Uh, Don Jr., why what, what, would, what would be why would he have psychological issues? Well, President Trump had to cancel that big rally in Arizona two Fridays ago after his child beating first wife, Ivana, fell to her death. But he buried her on Wednesday. And then last Friday, Donald Trump held that big rally in Arizona because there are some big primaries in the state of Arizona on August 2nd. And there is no time to grieve your your ex-wife who beat your children with a wooden spoon, you can't beat, you can't grieve uh, the child abusing death, the death of your child abusing wife. Candidates need your support. August 2nd is the big rally out there in August and August 2nd. And Trump explained why the good people of Arizona need to vote. A friend of mine recently said that I was the most persecuted person in the history of our country. And I said, that's a strong statement. But then I thought about it and I felt, you know, he may very well be right. That's that's how you get at the vote, by telling Arizonians that Donald Trump, I am the most persecuted person in the history of our country, the most persecuted person in the history of our country, not the slaves or the Japanese rounded up in concentration camps. Donald Trump is the most persecuted person in the history of this country. I think he's partly right. I think Donald Trump is the most persecuted, paranoid schizophrenic ever to hold the office of the president of the United States. I think he is the most persecuted, paranoid schizophrenic ever to be president. Donald Trump is a paranoid schizophrenic. And the most common symptom of being a paranoid schizophrenic is a persecution complex. Uh, symptoms 
also include hallucinations like saying things that don't exist. You know, undocumented people swarming over the border. They don't exist. It's, it's a figment of the Republican imagination. They're not coming. But if you're a party of paranoid schizophrenics worshiping a paranoid schizophrenic, you see things that aren't there. Well, anyway, Trump spoke to his fellow paranoid schizophrenic uh, fellow Republicans in Arizona, and he took credit for all his accomplishments as president. He hallucinated or claimed that he finished the wall. See, this is what a paranoid schizophrenic does. They hallucinate. He told the people of Arizona that he finished the wall. And then he said, then he pointed out his crowning achievement as president. Remember I said, we're going to save Christmas, Merry Christmas. We saved Merry Christmas. Yes, he, he saved Merry Christmas. And then to rev up the crowd, Donald Trump did what he does all the time to rub up a crowd. He took a dump in his pants. And after Trump crapped his pants, some of the crap rolled down the side of his leg onto the stage and it began to speak. Actually, that proud member of the Orange Mafia, in all fairness, was taking part in a competition to be Kimberly Garfoil for the day. Uh, you get to be Kimberly Garfoil. That means you get to beat Don Jr. for several hours with a wooden spoon until he ejaculates. Kimberly Garfoil is Don Jr.'s fiance, And you might remember how she stole Don Jr.'s heart when she spoke before the 2020 Republican convention and took a wooden spoon to our ears. Ladies and gentlemen, leaders and fighters for freedom and liberty and the American dream, the best is yet to come. These are like bad characters in an even worse 1970s era made for TV movie about fascism. Well, Trump endorsed Eli Crane for Arizona's 2nd Congressional District. Crane is a pro-Trump, America first candidate. He's pro-life, pro-Second Amendment, and says he hates the cancel culture, hates the cancel culture and the radical love left. What is not to love? Apparently a lot. And a highly respected man just endorsed by me today, future congressman for the second district, Eli Crane. Thank you, Eli. <laughs> but you like me, right? Okay. But you like me, right? Okay. They booed Eli Crane. And Donald Trump didn't come to his defense. He just said, uh, but you like me, right? So why did they boo Eli Crane? 
Well, it turns out there are several Republicans who want the nomination. One such patriot is Ron Watkins, who is rumored to have started the entire QAnon movement. Yes, Ron Watkins is running against Eli Crane for the second congressional district there in uh, in uh, Arizona. And Ron Wat- Watkins is rumored to have started the entire QAnon movement. His father supposedly started 8chan or 4chan. And some journalists, some reliable journalists, believe Watkins pretends to be Q. And Q, well... Nobody supports Donald Trump more than Q. So why would Donald Trump endorse Eli Crane instead of Q? What is that about? I don't know. Maybe Eli Crane and Watkins are the same people. I don't know. Well, then Donald Trump introduced Sheriff Mark Lamb by uh, crapping out his butt. (sighs) And out came Mark Lamb, Sheriff Mark Lamb. He is the duly elected sheriff of Penal County, Pinal County, Arizona. He was duly elected by taking to the courts to have his opponent removed from the ballots. That was back in 2017. And now he's running for reelection. Trump endorsed Lamb because Lamb is Trump's kind of guy. Three years ago, Sheriff Lamb raised $50,000 for a charity that he claimed builds bridges between law enforcement and the community. But according to the Arizona Republic, however, 18000 out of the $50,000 that Sheriff Lamb raised is completely unaccounted for. The Arizona Republic also reports that Sheriff Lamb left the tax filings for his charity completely blank. So nobody knows where any of that money actually went. When contacted by the Arizona Republic, Sheriff Lamb said he didn't know anything about it. And like a true Trumpian patriot, blamed his accountants. Because when you're when you're a Trump man, the buck starts over there. And that's a sheriff worthy of Donald Trump's endorsement. What did Sheriff Mark Lamb do before becoming a sheriff? He ran a paintball business that went bankrupt. A paintball business. You know, that's where you shoot paintballs at people. So it it went bankrupt. And of course, Trump loves somebody like that. Here is uh, Sheriff Mark Lamb working the crowd. I can see that you guys love the rule of law and law enforcement, and we appreciate that. Yeah, those people, they love law enforcement. That that is a crowd that just adores the rule of law. They can't get enough of (laughs) the rule of uh, law. Do you know who else loved the rule of law and who loves the rule of law? Donald Trump. Yes, Donald Trump loves the rule of law. He loves it so much. He tried to overthrow 
overthrow the 2020 elections. And he fired James Comey as the head of the FBI. He loves the rule of law. And when you love something, you know, you beat it with a wooden spoon till it breaks. That's if you really love something, you try to destroy it. If you if you love the rule of law the way Donald Trump does, then you embrace guns because the rule of law is basically citizens getting to decide which law they're going to obey and which ones they won't obey. That's why we have guns for the rule of law. That way, the rule of law is whatever we decide it is. Uh, that's that's the Republican Party, right? Kyle Rittenhouse. There's a big man, Kyle Rittenhouse, who shot and killed two protesters at a rally in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And he is exactly who our founding fathers had in mind when they gave us the Second Amendment. Let's allow people like Kyle Rittenhouse to decide which laws must be obeyed and which ones shouldn't be obeyed because it's all about the rule of law. You know, it's almost as though the Republicans haven't really thought this one out, have they? It's almost like they believe guns are there to protect the rule of law, but they're not quite sure whose rule of law they're talking about. You know, they love the police. The police are there to keep us safe, but not so safe that we don't need guns, right? But that's what the Republicans are running on. Guns, 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 guns. We we need guns to enforce the rule of law, depending on, you know, what you decide is a rule of law. I've never seen anything like this in American politics before. So. Arizona on August 2nd. There's a primary. Here's an ad for Jim Lamone. He's running in Arizona for the Republican nomination for Senate. Watch closely in this ad because it also includes an endorsement for Sheriff Mark Lamb. But this is an ad for Mr. Jim Lamone, who is running for uh, Senate in Arizona. Watch this. <laughs> Good people of Arizona have had enough of you. It's time for a showdown. That would be Jim Lamone playing the role of the new sheriff in town, even though he's running for Senate and not sheriff. And in this ad, he's a gunslinger shooting at Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi and Democratic incumbent Senator Mark Kelly. What's especially galling about this is Senator Mark Kelly is married to former Congresswoman Gabby Giffords. That's former Congresswoman Gabby Giffords, who had to resign after she was shot in the face in 2011 during an Arizona mass shooting that killed six and injured at least a dozen. After that shooting, Gabby Giffords and her husband, incumbent Democratic Senator Mark Kelly, have spent years traveling the country promoting sensible gun control, which the Republicans are opposed to. They are opposed to sensible gun control. That's what makes that ad so grotesque and incredible. I've never seen anything like this before in American politics. The Republican Party in, in under the, the, the shadow 
of January 6th and all these daily mass shootings, they are now all in on guns. They are all in on guns. Corey Mills is running for election in Florida. Uh, He wants to represent the 7th Congressional District in Florida. And their primary in Florida is August 23rd, 2022. What is Corey's qualification to serve in Washington, D.C.? Well, he owns a company that manufactures all that tear gas used on Black Lives Matter protesters. That's why he's so popular in the Republican Party. He flaunts that. He sells tear gas to the police and it's used on Antifa and on Black Lives Matter protesters unnecessarily. And the Republican Party can't get enough of him because he's in the tear gas business. Here is an ad featuring him firing an assault weapon. Corey Mills, soldier, conservative, outsider. Yeah. Uh, Then there's Congressman Ted Budd, who won the Republican nomination to replace Senator Richard Burr from the great state of North Carolina. Congressman Budd got the Senate nomination, got the Republican nomination for Senate after he was endorsed by Donald Trump. Here is Ted Budd's latest ad. Bud will tackle out-of-control inflation, unleashing our economy. Did we mention he owns a gun range? Carolina conservative Ted Bud for Senate, endorsed by President Trump. Did we mention he owns a gun range? And unlike Sheriff Mark Lamb's paintball business, Ted Bud's gun range is still in business. Unlike Sheriff Mark Lamb's paintball business, Corey Mills is making a fortune selling tear gas. Ted Budd made his fortune running a gun range. But Sheriff Mark Lamb in Arizona, not too bright. He tried to make a go of it with a paintball range. Paintball. There's no money in pretending to kill someone. Now, last month, Joe Biden signed into law the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act. This was a big Big deal. It's the first major piece of gun legislation in nearly 30 years. The Bipartisan Safer Communities Act. This law limits access to guns for individuals who have committed acts of domestic violence and individuals who are considered a danger to themselves or society. That would be everybody running for office as a Republican. And I'm serious. I am serious. If you're running for office as a Republican right now, the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, uh, you qualify for those red flag laws uh, and uh, you shouldn't be allowed to own a gun. If you think I'm wrong, I'm not. Missouri is also holding its primaries on August 2nd. One of the Republicans who wants the nomination for Senate is Mark McClowski. Do you remember Mark McClowski, the elfin and out of shape Mark McClowski? Um, You might remember him as the petite and dumpy arm-toting lawyer who stood on his porch with his wife as they waved, uh, you know, an AR-15 at Black Lives Matter protesters 
who walked through his gated community back in 2020 to protest outside the home of the mayor of St. Louis. Well, they uh, those protesters were well within their rights and they were not charged with any crimes. Mark McClowski, this guy, well, he uh, was not within his rights to point an assault weapon and other guns at the Black Lives Matter protesters. And a jury indicted McClowski and his wife for unlawful use of a weapon. That's a felony. They also got indicted for tampering with a weapon. McClowski, a lawyer, pleaded guilty and agreed to give up his guns. In February, his law license and his wife's law license were suspended for a year. He was pardoned by the Republican governor of Missouri, but since he couldn't practice law for a year, what is McClowski going to do? Uh, well, McClowski, who is dumpy and comes up to his wife's belly button, uh, uh, he's running for Senate. Here is the dumpy and trifling of a man, Mark McClowski's latest ad. When the angry mob came to destroy my house and kill my family, I took a stand against they, they them. They didn't come to your house and threaten to kill you and destroy your family. They were just marching to the mayor's office. You're a lawyer. A, a, I'm sorry, a liar and a lawyer. Now I'm asking for the privilege to take that stand for all of us. I will never back down. I will never back down, except plead guilty, give up my guns and my law license and blow the governor for a pardon. The recently passed Bipartisan Safer Communities Act would forbid this this guy, Mark McClowski, uh, the very petite and dumpy Mark McClowski, from ever being able to own a gun. Right. So he's running for office. He can't practice law. His license was suspended for a year. The law now says he can't get a gun, so he might as well run for office. Uh, well, the uh, who's up next? Also running for the same Senate seat. This is a, a tight race in Missouri for Senate. Uh, August 2nd, the Republican uh, Senate seat, the nomination, uh, they're fighting for it on August 2nd. Also running for that same Senate seat is a former governor of Missouri. His name is Eric Greitens. Like the dumpy and undersized Mark McClowski seen here, Greitens wants the Republican nomination for Senate and he's hunting rhino. Those would be Republicans in name only. I'm Eric Greitens, Navy SEAL, and today we're going rhino hunting. The rhino feeds on corruption and is marked by the stripes of cowardice. Join the MAGA crew, get a rhino hunting permit. There's no bagging limit, no tagging limit, and it doesn't expire until we save our country. That's Eric Greitens for Senate, August 2nd. He's running for the Republican nomination. He, in Missouri, he used to be governor of Missouri, but he had to resign after he was indicted 
accused of misusing his nonprofit's uh, funds. He was also accused of campaign finance violations. His hairstylist accused him of sexual assault. His wife accused him of domestic abuse, hitting her and her kids. And she took legal steps to prevent him from getting his hands on a weapon. And now he has to run for Senate because he wants, I don't know, to get elected and overturn the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act because he, too, now can't own a gun. He is a threat to the community. Max Miller is a former aide to Donald Trump. Miller is the Republican nominee for Ohio's 7th Congressional District in this year's election midterms. And his ad also includes images of him and an assault weapon. I joined the Marine Corps Reserve because I felt called to serve. The military taught me discipline, grit, and how to use a rifle to protect our country. When President Trump left office, I felt called to a new mission, to defend our people from attacks on our values by Washington insiders. Well, under the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act that just passed, Max Miller would not be allowed to own a gun. In October of 2021, former White House Press Secretary Stephanie Grisham She dated Miller when they were both working at the White House. Stephanie Grisham said that Max Miller uh, physically assaulted her, threw her up against the wall, smacked her around. Miller has a rap sheet going back to 2007, including drunk driving and assault and battery. He should not be allowed near a gun. And I don't think under this new law he is. Well, J.R. Majewski is a Republican. I love that name, Majewski. He's running for election to the U.S. House to represent Ohio's 9th Congressional District. He is on the ballot in the general election. He advanced uh, on May 3rd, 2022, in Ohio. And uh, here's his ad. This is... uh, J.R. Majewski. And I'm willing to do whatever it takes to return this country back to its former glory. And if I got to kick down doors, well, that's just what patriots do. When I'm elected, I won't bow to establishment pawns or power-hungry radicals. I will hold my own and demand that once again, America stands independent and strong like the country that I fought for. Right. That's J.R. Majewski. Uh, No arrest record, uh, but he still is not allowed to purchase a gun, according to the Bipartisan Safer Safer Communities Act. Uh, J.R. Majewski is a danger to the community uh, uh, as well as a danger to any couch, chair or pair of pants, his ass touches. And then there's David McCormick. Uh, Republican. He ran for election to the U.S. Senate to represent Pennsylvania. Here is David McCormick's ad. As a teenager, I hunted with a 30 out six. At West Point, we marched with this Springfield. And then Iraq, we used these. Dave McCormick, pro gun and proud of it. I'm Dave McCormick, and I approve this message to protect the Second Amendment. 
these illiterate ignoramuses are getting us killed. Well, that's Dave McCormick, and he lost by just 950, 951 votes in May to this guy. I think you remember this guy. My father taught me how to handle my first gun. I taught my son Oliver how to do the same. I've been shooting and hunting my whole life. So when people say I won't support guns, they're dead wrong. Boom! That would be Dr. Oz, television's very own Dr. Oz, who thinks everyone in Pennsylvania should own a gun, which is why he lives in New Jersey. Seriously, Dr. Oz does not live in Pennsylvania. He's just running for Senate in Pennsylvania. He lives in New Jersey because he's no idiot. He's staying in New Jersey where they have very strict gun laws. Guns are a winning message. They are. But it's important not to water down a winning message. When you water down a winning message, you lose. Take Josh Mandel. He ran for the Republican nomination for Senate in Ohio, but he lost. Take a look at this ad and you'll see. See if you can figure out what he did wrong. Josh Mandel, pro-God, pro-gun, pro-Trump. See, his priorities were all screwed up. Pro-God, pro-gun, pro-Trump. You don't win saying you're pro-God, pro-gun, pro-Trump. It's all out of order. You don't put Trump last. God comes last. It's Trump, guns, and, and then God. Jesus. Well, here's another Republican who just doesn't get it when it comes to guns. This is Teddy Daniels. He, uh, he lost the Republican primary on May 17th. In Pennsylvania, he was running for lieutenant governor. He wanted the Republican nomination for lieutenant governor, and he lost. Uh, this is Teddy Daniels. See, you'll see what he did wrong here. Time to bring out the big guns. And the big guns are the millions of men and women in this country who feel as though their voices aren't being heard. I'll be your voice. I did my part. I served our country in the U.S. Army. I survived gunfights with Taliban terrorists in Afghanistan, and they gave me a Purple Heart. If I was willing to risk my life for freedom when I was deployed overseas, you know I will take the fight to the enemies of this nation in the halls of Congress. We are at a pivotal moment in American history. If we don't act now, we can lose our freedom forever. They used to say socialism was at the door. Well, now it's in the building and coming down the hallway. I wish. <laughs> Socialism. I wish. Well, Teddy Daniels, uh, can you see what he did wrong? Because that was a perfectly good ad. What did he do? Uh, look, look at the beginning. Time to bring out the big guns. And the big guns are the millions of men and women in this country who feel as though their voices aren't being heard. I'll be can, your voice. Can you see what he did wrong? He brought out the big guns and they're too big. He shows himself using the M242 Bushmaster chain gun with a 25 millimeter single barrel chain driven auto cannon. That's from two years. That's for two years from now, Teddy. You brought out the big guns. It's too soon. You scared the you scared the voters. You brought out the big guns too soon. You could say that Teddy lost because he jumped the gun. We're going to see the auto cannons for 2024. Big mistake. Big mistake. Well, I'm proud to be a Democrat. We have our problems. But unlike Republicans, we never resort 
to bloodlust to get people to vote for us. I'm Joe Manchin, and I approve this message because for me, it's all about West Virginia. Like I said, Democrats, real Democrats don't use guns to get elected. These politicians are cowards. They have no policy. They have no options. Uh, Nobody will hire them in the private sector. Joe Manchin uh, had to go into politics to make his fortune. They run as gun-toting Republicans, including Joe Manchin. They talk a big game, but they are bullies mentally deranged, intellectually challenged. They are cowards who need to feel a part of something, even if that something is a fascist takeover of America. They are not men. It is why they cling to their guns and run like little bitches when things get tough. I think Michael Fanone, the Capitol Police officer, says it best. You see the way that these guys perform in public and then what they are in reality. You get a lot of that nonsense up here on Capitol Hill with these members of Congress uh, that have become like a caricature in the the media. Uh, But in reality, they have no character. Um, They have no honor. They have no integrity. Uh, And the way they behave outside of the camera's eye uh, is very different. If you need guns, you're a whiny little bitch. If you need guns to protect yourself, you're a coward. And if you need guns because you don't like an overly intrusive government, you're a fascist. We will be back with Grace Jackson. I'm on my way to be a billionaire now you can make fun of me but i don't really care i have a plan to get there by and by as long as i stay healthy and i never die 15 bucks an hour five days a week 52 weeks a year and 32,000 years I know it's a long time, honey To 34,020 But when I get there, babe I'm gonna be in the money I'm on my way To be a billionaire Now you can make fun of me But I don't really care I have a plan to get there By and by As long as I stay healthy and I never die All I really need is a second job or a third Lift myself up my boots and join that elite herd Of the 600 billionaires in the USA Who make more in a second than I do in a day I'm on my way, yes I do I'm on my way I'm on my way Yes, I am. I'm on my way. 
to make fun of me, but I don't really care. I have a plan to get there. Yes, I do. By and by, as long as I stay healthy and I never die, as long as I stay healthy and I never die, as long as I stay healthy and I never Welcome back. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Please go to davidfeldmanshow.com and sign up for my newsletter. It comes out every Friday, and it includes an invitation to office hours, which we have every Friday night at 8 p.m. Eastern. I host the first 90 minutes, and then the community takes over. If you would like to attend a live taping of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, go to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour website and sign up. We're doing a live taping. It's about gun control. You're going to meet a lawyer who is actually suing gun manufacturers. It's fascinating. It's this Wednesday at 1230, a live taping of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Go to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour website to sign up. It's free and you get to watch a live taping of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Uh, please join us. It'll be a lot of fun. Well, let us now go to Great Britain, where Grace Jackson is standing by. She is co-host of the Literary Hangover podcast, and she is an expert on she are you blushing she's an expert on history and fiction and china and if you're in our zoom audience you can submit questions in our q a and we'll take the last five minutes for audience questions if you're watching us live on youtube right now thank you for that go to davidfeldmanshow.com right now hit pay-per-view it'll it's free it'll take you straight into our virtual studio audience and you can talk to Grace and me. Hello, Grace. Hi, David. How are you? Um, I'm pretty good. I want to talk to you about the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, mm. heading off to Taiwan. I, I, I have no idea why she is doing that. But first, please tell me who is taking over the Conservative Party. Who's in charge Who's the prime minister now? I saw Boris Johnson doing his valedictory before the House of Parliament. Well, I think he's technically still in charge, but we've got two people now who are contending to be the next leader. There was a debate tonight. I did not watch it. Uh, those, those people are Rishi Sunak, who was Boris Johnson's chancellor, um, and Liz Truss, who was is foreign secretary. Um, and they're really both quite bad options. I would say, um, the kind of actually tying in with what I want to talk about today, Rishi Sunak has put out a big kind of manifesto on China today. Um, and it seems like China is one of the kind of wedge issues that they're going to use be toughest. I'm sorry, you're, um, you're breaking, up, you're breaking up just a little. They're going to use China as a wedge issue for what? 
just to differentiate them, differentiate from each other, who can be tough on China, who can be the most tough on China. It's very much, it, it's quite predictable, really. But I'm, I'm not sure who is going to prevail out of the two of them because Rishi Sunak, um, I think he's more popular among conservative MPs. But Liz Truss is more popular among the membership of the party more broadly. And it's actually the party members who get to decide between the two of them. Up until now, it's been the MPs who've decided to kind of whittle it down from, I think, eight candidates that they began with. Um, so we'll see. I, I'm... I'm not. I don't have a lot of hope either way. Let's no, put it it's that interesting way. that you you have a candidate named Truss because here I'm I'm putting my Truss on right now. I, I wear it extra tight, and I I think it's great that that a candidate uh, is named after the thing that I have to wear. So I I'm voting for Truss. That's she's okay. Sorry about that. Uh, it's hot in here. What's the weather like? In, in uh, it's pre pretty cold. I've got my flannel on again. So we. <laughs> Is it really? <laughs> yeah, it was down to 16 degrees Celsius today. I Don't ask me to do the conversion, but it was cold enough for flannel. Let's put it that way. OK, let's talk about the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. Here's what I figure. Foxconn is a publicly traded company that comes out of Taiwan. If she's going to Taiwan, I would assume Paul Pelosi is a is going to buy five million dollars worth of stock in Foxconn and we should all get in on it. That's be, that could be the only reason she's going to Taiwan for inside information for her criminal husband, Paul. <laughs> what, what, is, what is she doing conducting foreign policy? What is going on here? Uh, well, she's got a long history of being quite hawkish on China. First of all, David, can you hear me okay? Yes, you sound great. Okay, because I, I don't have my microphone. I can plug it in if that would be no, better. No, 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 it sounds great. Okay. Um, so Nancy Pelosi has a, a, a long history of being pretty hawkish on China. She's been involved in the kind of Tibetan cause. She's off, She often makes statements that are kind of um, drawing attention to, you know, China's human rights record and so on. So this is sort of on brand for her. Um, I would say, however, that it is um, extremely bad timing. And I would say also very poor judgment on her part. Um, and she was actually due to make this trip in April, but she got COVID, uh, so she had to cancel. And back in April, there were actually rumors that China had warned the US government, warned the Biden administration, that her plane would not be allowed to land in Taiwan. It was quite a serious threat if, if that but indeed was was what was said. It's a rumor. But yeah, if that was on the table, then then we should be quite worried about this. Um, in the past week, since the story of her trip leaked, China has apparently issued some more sort of private warnings. Um, and these warnings are apparently much stronger than they've been before. Um, for example, when the senators, I think back in 
early this year, uh, a delegation of senators visited Taiwan, including your favorite, Lindsay O. Graham. Um, but right now, China is is on high alert for this visit. Um, and there's been a suggestion of a, of a possible military response. Now, I don't want to kind of hype this any more than it needs to be hyped. But I, I do want to talk about, firstly, why this is such bad timing. And secondly, the sort of historical precedence for this kind of a, a crisis, if we can call it that. Um, I should say also that Joe Biden himself has said he... Uh, he he's a bit hesitant about this trip. He's he came out and made a very strange statement where he said the military is not a good idea right now. I'm sorry, so you, kind you of broke up a little. Objection. He said what? You 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 were breaking up when you were quoting Joe Biden, so you sound exactly like him, which means we <laughs> we couldn't make any sense of it. So, uh, um, so he apparently Joe Biden said. But the military said this is not a good idea right now. So he's channeling the military in his response to this. Um, I think the reason he said that is because Joe Biden and Xi Jinping are due to have a phone call at some point in the next week or so, um, allegedly before the end of July. Uh, and so this would be very bad timing in that respect. Um and basically, this this kind of a, uh, I think it is a fair to say it's a provocation. The problem is none of the parties here, like the U.S., Taiwan, and China, none of them can win in this situation because if Nancy Pelosi backs down and doesn't go to Taiwan, of course people are going to say that makes the U.S. look weak. Um, if if she goes, then obviously there's a real risk of escalation um, and kind of negative impact from that. And Taiwanese officials, by the way, have said that they feel trapped right in the middle of this. Um, there are two bad outcomes for them as well. One in which China is emboldened by what it perceives to be um, U.S. weakness and the other in which Taiwan is basically punished by Beijing for receive, receiving Pelosi. So it is it is messy. Um, and however, there is a historical context that is quite interesting for this. And that is the third Taiwan Strait crisis, which happened in the mid-90s. So between July 95 and March 96, the US and China came quite close to war, actually. Um, closer than I think we imagine, closer than I can imagine, having not really been um, around, well, not been reading the news at that point, at least. And this, this crisis, uh, there are sort of similar things and differences as well that we can draw from this that I think are very interesting. Um, just a little overview of the, of the third straight crisis. It was triggered by the Taiwanese president at that time. He visited the U.S., not in an official capacity as such, but he visited the U.S. to attend a reunion at Cornell University where he had got his Ph.D. 
this is Li Tang Hui, um, was his name. And he was granted a visa, I believe by the US Congress, uh, despite the fact that the US had said to China, they had kind of, kind of given China an assurance that they would not receive any Taiwanese politicians, high-level Taiwanese politicians. But he did go. He attended uh, his reunion. And in response, the People's Liberation Army fired missiles and performed live ammunition exercises in the Taiwan Strait in July of 95. Now, the U.S. responded to that by sending aircraft carriers. Um, it was the largest display of American might since the Vietnam War. This was under Bill Clinton. But while that was the kind of proximate cause, his visit was the proximate cause, there was an underlying simmering cause as well. And that was the transformation that was happening in Taiwan at that time. It was a very exciting time in Taiwan because in 1996, Taiwan held its first direct election for the presidency. And Li Dunghui was on the ballot and he eventually won. He won that election. Um, prior to that, Taiwan had been in a process, in a sort of gradual process of democratization, but presidents had been chosen by the National Assembly before that point. And China was not too happy about this. Um, given that only a few years ago, you had the Tiananmen Square incident um, or massacre, China was pretty sensitive to the idea that Taiwan would suddenly be holding kind of open democratic elections directly for the presidency. So in March, a few months after that initial incident, when this election was going to happen, the PRC decided to send a message to Taiwan's electorate and they wanted to basically dissuade them from voting for Li Dunghui, the guy who had come to Cornell for his reunion. So they fired some more missiles, this time very close to Taiwan, about 50 kilometers kilometers um, off the shore. And again, the US responded. It sent two aircraft carrier strike groups. There was more kind of back and forth. And ultimately, China, it, its efforts to intimidate Taiwanese people backfired because voter turnout was 76% in that election. And Historians have said that they think that the PRC's actions actually boosted Li Dunghui's um, support by about 5%, which earned him a, ma a majority. Uh, and so, in a, in a sense, though, this was an interesting crisis because the US and China kind of both claimed victory. The US, of course, their narrative was, well, we showed the Chinese, you know, we um, they they were overreacting. And so we displayed off our, our might and they backed down. But for the Chinese, after this happened, the US did not receive any more Taiwanese presidents, did not issue any more visas like that um, until recently. And so these tensions are now kind of coming to the fore again with Pelosi's potential visit. But things are very, very different now. Um, you know, in the mid-1990s, 
China really did not have the capacity to invade Taiwan. And in its sort of post Tiananmen Square vulnerability internationally, it was it was still quite vulnerable. There were a lot of sanctions applied to China after Tiananmen Square. It really did need the US. Today, I'm not sure that's quite as true. I think it's still somewhat true. But China certainly doesn't need the US in the way that it did before. And the US-China relationship is in a much worse state than it was back then. And furthermore, Xi Jinping does not want to look weak right now because in autumn, in the fall, uh, there's going to be the 20th Party Congress, which the Party Congress happens every five years. And it's where a lot of the kind of top leaders are um, elected, quote unquote, elected. And this is where he becomes leader for life, basically, right? This is where he gets a third term, which is basically unprecedented since the 1980s when Deng Xiaoping institutionalized sort of orderly succession and a two-term limit. So in 2018, listeners probably will be aware that Xi Jinping removed term limits or removed the two-term limit that was in the in the constitution since the 1980s. Um, and so he sort of set the stage for him to have a third term that will begin at this party congress. So this is a real landmark for him. Um, and China this year, you know, it's having a tough time with COVID. It's still maintaining its commitment to zero COVID. Um, its economy is not doing great. And there's just, you know, there's a lot going on and there's a lot of reasons why I think Xi Jinping does not want to look like he's faltering um, on an issue like Taiwan, which ultimately Taiwan is the number one, I would say, the number one foreign policy priority for Xi Jinping. We shouldn't underestimate that. Um, and so, yeah, things are very different now and we could see a very different outcome potentially. <laughs> What does she what does she well, she and Pelosi also she let's start with the other she what does she want in terms of Taiwan? Does um, he want does, we've talked about I, this. Do you and it's hard to predict, but you don't anticipate his taking the island, right? Who taking the island? China, mainland China. Oh, um, I I don't anticipate that happening anytime soon, no. I think that, so this is a very interesting question. If Xi Jinping has two more terms, so if he does 10 more years in office, he's currently almost 70 years old, so he would be 80. People think that's when he would probably step down. And many people think that he wants to make sure Taiwan is unified with the mainland under his watch, right, during his tenure, that gives us potentially a 10-year window. But the other interesting piece in all of this, the other big variable is Russia-Ukraine. Um, the longer that war drags on, the... Oh, you're, you're frozen there. You're... you're we're... Grace is a little frozen. Uh, okay. I think 
we're going to have to take a break, I think. Let me go to, uh, let's see what people are asking in the chat room, or if you want to join the conversation. Uh, okay, here's what we're going to do. We'll take a quick break. Hopefully, Grace will be back and we can continue. Oh, you're back. Are you are you back or not? No, we, we lost Grace. OK, uh, we will come back. Uh, let's talk to Donald Trump. We'll be back with more of Grace once we fix her connection. The American okay. people love me. The election was completely stolen from me. That So that makes me the 45th and the 46th president, David. Biden okay. is 46A. Hmm. 46A. You know what the A stands for, David? No, I do not. Ask me what the A stands for. Ask me. Okay. What, what does the A stand for, Mr. President? The A stands for a stolen election, David. <laughs> Please welcome. A stolen election. That's what 46A stands for, a, a stolen a. election. Please welcome former president. And current and current president, except for Ukraine. That's not me. Afghanistan, that's not me. Inflation, that's not me. That's 46A. 46A. He did all okay. that. That's otherwise Please. me. That was my interview with Donald Trump. Uh, our connection with Grace. Sorry, David. That's okay. It's the heat. I don't know uh, what's our, going on. In our limited time, Pelosi. Yeah. What are the politics behind this? Gingrich wants her to go. Uh, Republican Ben Sass wants her to go. The Republicans are kind of all in on her stirring up the hornet's nest. So what what does she stand to gain challenging Biden? Is this some is this something for the midterms? What, what's why is she I doing guess this? It, I, I guess it is something for the midterms. I mean, I think there's like a personal and a political calculation that she's making. I think, as I mentioned earlier, she's always had a bit of a hunch about China. Uh, she's had a bit of a bee in her bonnet about it. Um, at the same and, time, and San I think Francisco has a huge uh, Chinese immigrant population. A lot of people uh, left Hong Kong in the late mm -hmm. 80s and moved to San, San Francisco. So there's a lot of Hong Kong money there that she's probably beholden to, right? Quite possibly. And also Taiwanese Americans, there's a lot of them also in the Bay Area. Um, but I, I think that this is partly performative for the midterms. I mean, Biden has already laid out this binary opposition between democracies and autocracies that has kind of structured at least his rhetoric on foreign policy. And I think that she could claim she's just following suit. She's supporting Taiwan, which is a democracy um, and standing up to China. I mean, there's a huge amount of bipartisan support for taking a hawkish stance on China right now, which is something that it, it's, it's another thing that feels quite new to me um, in all of this and potentially quite dangerous. So I think there's there's a few different considerations for her. Right. Uh, again, 
what does she stand to gain? What, what does America stand to gain from this? I mean, what does anyone stand to gain from a bit of good old fashioned virtue signaling? I mean, she gets to feel good about herself. She gets to be the girl boss. Um, <laughs> and, and yeah, I think I think a lot of this is is ideological at this point for the Dem- for both the Democrats and the Republicans. And is Biden searching for some sort of brinkmanship for October? Is he looking for another crisis like Ukraine so that Americans get terrified and support the party in power? That that seems to be the old playbook where you stir up a foreign policy issue. So everybody rallies behind the party in charge. I'm reluctant to see any grand strategy behind any of this. I think more than anything, what's emerging right now is a sense that this government is very uncoordinated. It does not have um, it does not have a clear and consistent China policy. I mean, we've already had Biden make these little slips about defending Taiwan, this rollback of strategic ambiguity. And then, of course, his staff has come out and say, oops, sorry, no, he didn't mean it. I mean, I think there's just a lot of different issues there, one of them being Biden's own ability to kind of make policy, which seems to be impaired, um, but also a lack of coordination. And I think it's interesting that he is channeling the military when he says this is not a good idea right now, because I do think that the Indo-Pacific command people who are telling him this, who are probably the ones telling him this, they are probably much more in touch with the reality of the situation and what this would mean. You know, should Pelosi go to Taiwan? Should China not let her plane land and things escalate from there? They're the ones who will have to deal with that. And I think nobody who has a good sense of the conditions on the ground wants that war. Right. I will see you in August. You're coming to New York. Oh, yes, I I will. I may well be in the neighborhood. Maybe uh, Jason will be in New York around the same time. So that will be great. Great. Grace, yes, I'll buy you coffee, David. Uh, OK, I'll let you buy me coffee. If you, ins- not, if you like, insist that. Not as some sort of grandissimo latte with extra foam <laughs> that you're used to drinking. I'll get you a black filter coffee Ooh. and uh, we can sit on a park bench. Good. Maybe a pour over. One of those expensive pour overs. Oh, <laughs> All right. Not made of me, Feldman. Grace Jackson is co-host of The Literary Hangover, and she joined us today from Great Britain. Thank you, Grace. Always. Thank you. Always fantastic. Thank you. You're listening to the da- great job. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. And if you would like to join us in the Zoom room, go to my website, hit pay-per-view, and it'll take you right in to our virtual studio audience where you get to talk to Pascal Robert, who is host, co-host of the This Is Revolution podcast. And I think Jason will be joining us. I'm not sure, but welcome, Pascal. It's great to see you. Thank you for having me, David. Good to be on your show again. Thank you. It's always great to see you. I want to do a follow up on a crazy theory that I have about why we're in Ukraine. I'm trying to find a a noble reason 
There isn't any. But this is how I think Biden and the Democrats are justifying throwing tens of billions of dollars at Ukraine and taking on Putin. Uh, the more I read about the Republican Party, the more I believe they have been taken over by several nefarious forces, money launderers and the Russian KGB. I think I buy into the idea that Vladimir, and I know a lot of my listeners want the New York Times to give back the Pulitzer Prize, to give back the Pulitzer Prize on Russiagate. But Pulitzer looked into Russiagate and they said they didn't get, the New York Times didn't get any of their facts wrong. I think the Democrats, whether they're right or wrong, I think the Democrats, Biden and Burns over at the CIA and Obama, they believe that Putin is has so much money and through shell corporations has been able to destroy. This is what the Democrats think, our democracy, by turning the Republicans into this craven, fascistic uh crypto Nazi machine, which I think they are. I mean, they really are insane. Uh, and they are a threat to the Republic, the Democrats as well. But I think the Republicans, when you really look at these lunatics, they are right out of Nazi Germany. They really are. And can I ask you a question? Yes. Do you remember what the rhetoric was about what the Republicans had become during the days of Newt Gingrich and the contract of America? <laughs> no. It was pretty much the same thing. That the Republicans were, do you remember the rhetoric around George W. Bush during the war on before 9-11 when they believed Bush had stole the election about what Dick Cheney was going to do to foreign policy, what the cabal of the Republicans? When has there not been a time in the 50 plus year counter revolution since the new left of the 60s, when the Republic since before that, going back to uh, Barry Goldwater, let's go back to Barry Goldwater. When when has there not been a time that the Republicans presented this specter of an evil that was so bad that they were likened to fascism? I mean, you can go back to the New World Order of George Bush Sr. My, my, my point here, David, is not to diminish your legitimate concern. You know, let me just point out that this is I'm not I'm saying this is what Clinton, Biden and Obama think mm -hmm. to, in order okay. to justify Ukraine, that they have to fight Putin because they I think they're blaming rightly or wrongly. They're blaming the Republicans uh, they're blaming Putin uh, for the Republicans. I think, that, by the way, Jason, welcome. Welcome, welcome Jason. Uh, welcome. But um, I think that there's a lot of things going on here. I think one thing that we have to realize is that we have a crisis of global management. Tomorrow, we're going to have a great guest on our show. His name is Daniel Besner, who wrote a wonderful article it's on the cover of Harper's Magazine. It's called Empire Empire's Burlesque. 
It's a wonderful article. And the theory of the article is that the American century is over. What happens next? The American century being the 20th century after the rise of the United States after World War II, when the United States basically becomes the world empire of record. The global economy is pretty much hinged on American capitalism. And America is the dominant force in the world, good, bad, or otherwise, going on until the 1970s, that for the large part of the 20th century, America was the hegemon of choice for the world. It's clear in the eyes of many in the foreign policy establishment and observers of global affairs that that hegemonic control is slipping and that there are new competitors for that positionality. One of, those, one of those competitors, you just did a segment you were talking about, is China. That is the competitor that people are most afraid of. Because of the proximity that China and, the United, and, China and Russia have had, through their historical relationship, both being former communist country, well, the Soviet Union being a former communist country, Russia being a former communist country, I should say, there is a battle of empires that the United States, which wants to maintain its role as the larger economic geostrategic force in the world, logically does not want to cede that positionality. It does not want to cede that power, particularly to a country that is ideologically different in terms of their worldview. China is a country that comes out of a not traditionally international capitalist world order. It comes from its own different worldview in terms of in, in interacting with how it deals with its foreign partners and so on and so forth. So the liberal democratic order that governed the world from World War II up until pretty much the early part of the millennium has been challenged externally by the, the, the rise of China in one way and internally by a crisis of capitalism that started with the 2008 crash. Where does Russia come in? Largely because the United States has not really been interested in integrating Russia into a peaceful post-Soviet detente and has instead been interested in aggravating them with expansion of NATO, the Russians have seen themselves, rightly or wrongly, as being in a corner and striking out at anything that represents NATO slash EU hegemony. As a consequence, they have supported many of the reactionary right-wing administrations that have come to power in the world. Some say, uh, you know, uh, uh, Viktor Orban in Hungary, a few of the other right-wings or right-wings. Why is yes. that? What, what, why, why do, why because, does... Because the rhetoric of the reactionary right is counter, I don't like to use this term, it's a bad term, I haven't found a better term, anti-globalist. Right. You know, right. the, 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 the NATO... Uh, Davos, international model, Davos, the, the, the as as Steve Bannon likes to call them, the party of Davos. Well, wouldn't you just say the Western elites? The Western elites. That's a, I, a I need to find a better term because that term rises with so much conspiracy theory around it. But the Western global liberal democratic order, the foundations, the think tanks, so on and so forth. G seven, the G seven, etc. Because that global order has been so absolutely pernicious 
in governing the world, particularly with the post-2008 austerity, which led more, many of these reactionary right-wing governments into power, they are resenting the liberal elite's capacity to believe that it's their right to govern things because they have been doing things so poorly, not only on the economic front, but also on the foreign policy front. Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, so have you. Vietnam. Going back to Vietnam. <laughs> so Russia, because it has been the bullied in its mind by these NATO liberal elite forces, has been willing to make alliances with reactionary right-wing countries that also have viewed those liberal elites as bad stewards of the global order. And this agreement and this willingness of the Russians to align with those forces is what causes the liberal democratic forces of the West to find Putin and the Russians most contemptuous. My position is this. I don't think the Russians are supporting people like Orban or the right out of ideological so so much uh, consensus, but geostrategic. They want to support anyone in the West that wants to weaken NATO and the EU alliance because those they view those alliances as a threat to their stability. I like Jason, I'd like to hear your thoughts. You could jump in. I don't feel like I feel like I'm done. Uh, I, I think a lot of this discourse outside of like the the educated elite, and honestly, you know, I, I love Bessner and excited to have him on the show for tomorrow as well. But a big problem with this conversation is that a lot of Americans don't understand the history of America as an empire. Um, very salient and, and because we don't understand America as, as an empire, because we're not a colonial empire like the British, right? We're an empire that built our power kind of, if you look at, uh, since the inception of the United States as a country, uh, manifest destiny has been the project since the beginning. If you look at some of the rhetoric that people like Mark Twain had at the turn of the century from the, you know, 19th to 20th century, um, there was a big push for a lot of people not to be part of what we now know as the Spanish-American War uh, that got us Puerto Rico for a time, Cuba, and then the Philippines. Um, the, the war we had in the Philippines, you know, we don't really learn about it in school, but it was extremely bloody, extremely violent. Um, there is quite a bit of, like of half information million, out there for, for people million, that want it. But, half uh, a million F- Filipinos died after the war. We, we slaughtered about half a million. We, but, but also you're talking about people that came from the, the Indian wars. So w- when you look at, and, and people do talk about this a little bit, one thing Hitler learned was how to devastate entire populations. He learned that through what the United States had done with their relationship to native Americans. So that was the same strategy that was in the the Philippines. Um, American empire stopped being a colonial empire at a certain point. And we started setting up military bases. It's a little easier to control the world that way. Right? Because a, you don't have to, you know, install rulers and govern, but yet and still we've been installing rulers and governing kind of on the sly for the average American 
since the Cold War. So if you look at the Cold War, the, you know, a lay person will go, well, who really died in that? What casualties were made in that? There's millions of deaths in that because there were so many regime changes that the United States was responsible for during that time. So when we think about foreign policy, a lot of Americans still think about it from the, the good and evil of the U.S. versus Russia. And I think a lot of people still see Russia as the USSR from the 80s Cold War propaganda movies. Um, that propaganda is even baked into even a younger cohort of Americans that don't really understand um, geopolitics from the perspective in which Pascal is talking about. So it's so far over the heads of the average American, Russiagate can be the empire or political burlesque that is talked about uh, by people like Chris Hedges, even talked about a little bit in the piece uh, that Daniel Bessner uh, writes about and definitely intertwines with what I'm working on because that is kind of what we see play out is a political burlesque of sorts because most people following the, the news don't really understand outside of, well, who's the good guy and who's the bad guy? Show me who the good guy and bad guy is. When sometimes it's just different ideological ways of doing things. Like the rise of China has a lot to do with them as an economic power and a counter hegemon to things like the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, and the World Bank, who historically have devastated nations, especially in Latin America. So if you're an African nation, who would you rather deal with? There's no Chinese military bases all over the place. So when we think about the rise of China um, and why some people see it as a threat, is it because of U.S. propaganda? That probably has a lot to do with it, but it's one of the U.S.'s biggest trading partners. So, so why do we have all this political burlesque play out? Ultimately, no one's really talking about what's really going on from a global perspective. You're talking about uh, soap opera BS because that's the only way most of us can understand it. Putin is this. The U.S. is this. The Democrats are this. But the Republicans are this. Right. But in reality they kind of work almost on a bipartisan level when we think about these trade agreements that we have. Um, would you like to expand on that at all, Pascal? No, I mean, I think you've really eloquently said it, something that's very true is that um, Americans in general are not particularly interested in foreign policy. It's not something that's a very, very high point of interest in terms of political impact in the consciousness of the American body politic. I think that a lot of that has to do with the way in which, as Jason so well stated, the mythology that we have about ourselves as a nation is very persuasive. And I think it really creates a notion that America is an exceptional country that is fundamentally an actor of good in the world. And that uh, that in that capacity that we have an almost divine, almost God given duty <laughs> to influence things in the world in the way in which we make the world a better place. A lot of people buy into that and not all of them are Republican. And I think that what, for those of us 
who have more left of center politics who try to explain that there's a much more complicated nuance to the motivations that we have behind our foreign and international exploits and how many people suffer as a consequence of that, it becomes very challenging, right? Because you don't want to fall into the trope of, as Jason likes to say, America bad. Because then what happens is you become one of those leftists who is like, oh, you know, you, you people hate America. You think this country is evil. You have nothing to say that's good about this place. You know, you don't want to be, you don't want to fall into that trope. But at the same time, you want people to be alive to the fact that, listen, there's, there's a history here. My parents and sister ancestry come from the country of Haiti. There is a there is an over century long torturous history, two centuries, you can argue, of interaction policy-wise between the United States and Haiti that is blood-curdling. It ain't pretty. It ain't pretty. But at the same time, how are you going to get people who are inundated with this imagery and are proud to be an American and I think my land is great, you know. How do you get them to have balance? I'm not telling you that you should hate your country, that you should hate America. My goal is not to make you want to hate America. My goal is to make you have a rational, objective analysis of what our country does in the world so that we can be better citizens in helping ourselves take the reins of our government away from these people who are motivated by doing anything to protect the interests of capital and start having a type of governance that is working for the public good. Well, do we benefit from any of this imperialism you talk about? Hell yeah. I'm I'm not talking about, (laughs) hang on for one second. When I say we, I mean you and me, not... Well, I mean, yeah, the, the cold tan in people's iPhones that keep yeah. the iPhone working is definitely making you feel good. I mean, the price that you're paying for those electric devices is pretty low. The technology for the for, for those devices oftentimes comes from semi-slave labor in some poor third world hovel. The you know, water you drink? That, that, you know, where people don't even have potable water. Yeah, it's the the water you drink that comes from places like where I live, Mexico, we have a water shortage. Literally, Monterey is dealing with uh, no water in the outlying uh, smaller communities in the second largest city in the country. Uh, And a lot of that has to do with where the water comes from, how Mexico sends certain uh, treaties they made to give the U.S. so much water. Uh, Yeah, we definitely benefit from it. Everything about our lives. One of the things I keep saying, one of the things I keep saying on this show is all these horrible things America does overseas, which is legion. They say, well, we're protecting your way of life. And Mm -hmm. I keep saying, I don't like my way of life. I mean, you know, (laughs) like if if we're going to do all this horrible crap, let me see some of the. The, the swag that comes with being an imperial nation. So, you, But you know what the swag is? The swag is the cheap shit that we get at the dollar store in Walmart, right? The swag is cheap gas. Remember, a lot of Americans forget this. As we're crying about gas at the pump, people in UK were paying double than what we were paying. So 
A lot of that is taxes, <laughs> though. Like Spain, 70% of the price of gas in Spain is just taxes. So we do reap some benefit from spending a trillion dollars a year on defense. But it comes also at the, the cost of the environment as well. I mean, there's there's definitely not the benefit that we do. We want to think that there is from this. And I'm not saying that we should all be thankful for imperialism. There's just a price you pay for imperialism. And the thing is, when you, when you talk about political burlesque and how it plays out, how do you then separate someone from these cheap goods year round vegetables right. and stuff like right. that. That's the hard part to separate someone from their way of life because you want people to see a, some of the things that we're getting here. We're not just talking about Nikes, but some of the things you're getting here come at a cost, but there is another way you can live. That becomes the hard sell. Right. I'm looking at, I'm in New York city and I'm thinking about what the 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 financiers, the bankers, the the one percenters are thinking. They can't imagine making money without a military, right? The military is there to make sure that we can keep third world countries in line, keep the oil coming, the free labor, cheap labor. Like there's any difference between free and cheap labor in Bangladesh. Uh, keep it coming, keep, keep destabilize regimes that might cost us in terms of labor. They can't imagine these profits without destabilizing Haiti, robbing it. Uh, well, now we destabilize domestically, right? Because there's an article that came out, I can't remember which news outlet had it, where there's 12 year olds working in a factory somewhere in Alabama, uh, 12 year olds working in a factory right. somewhere in Alabama yeah, in 2022 that. that had um, um, amputation risks. So I, I think what we're seeing and we're not really understanding is people always talk about things like late stage capitalism. I stopped saying that phrase because I don't think there's a, a late stage of capitalism, neoliberalism. These things will always morph to work. We're seeing a return to child labor. And there's right. not really an outcry about it. Because the political burlesque always will take up the majority of the news cycle because that's the sexy story. Because Putin loves playing villain. He doesn't mind it. Um, the news shows don't mind it either. Right. Trump was the perfect villain for four years. Even though a lot of his rhetoric wasn't all villain, some of it was anti-hero. And I think those of us on the left or even people that just in the Democratic Party only saw the villain and they didn't really understand the anti-hero rhetoric. And so, so are you saying yeah. that we keep hearing about end stage capitalism, mm -hmm. that it's collapsing under its own weight? Are you mm -hmm. saying that may not be true, that capitalism has a way of adapting like it's like a cockroach where it can somehow yeah. figure <laughs> Have, have you have you seen anyone in Congress or the Senate talk about the need in a pandemic with another one coming? So say the World Health Organization about monkeypox. We are a nation that literally can't handle sickness. 
Have you seen anyone say, now's the time for socialized medicine? We can't even pass a $10 billion COVID relief bill. But there's money for but Ukraine. You, so do you think capitalism is failing? I think a lot of people believe that the, the, so many Americans will end up evicted living on the streets mm-hmm. and they won't be able to buy anything. This is what I've heard. Two thirds <laughs> of our economy is what people purchase that eventually all the money will trickle up to like five people and the economy will collapse because nobody will be able to buy anything. Speak to that. We, Why is that? We not farm true? out a lot of our public services to the private sector. And in farming this out, there's people in services, foster care, veterans for all those that love America, that take from them. We are literally siphoning sometimes the houseless and the poor for whatever benefits they're getting. Capitalism will find a way. It will find an other and it will find a way. We always talk about the reserve army of labor. Don't you see that growing? Right. What's going to happen if there's a water crisis in Mexico? You don't think you're going to see more people moving up? They definitely won't be moving to Guatemala. But we have what uh, then happens to your reserve army of labor. It gets more exploitable and it gets cheaper. I think that what we see is that the internal contradictions of capitalism become more extreme and that what happens is the capacity that it has to potentially fall upon itself in the face of crisis, crisis become more real. But the question then becomes, how does it reorient itself? Because we had a crash in 1929. And capitalism reoriented itself with the New Deal and adapted in a way to make it more, more protean, more strong, to exist in a way in which it incorporated state social functionality, but was still able to exist. The 2008 crash, the response was austerity. There was no, there was no social welfare capacity right. Right. that was brought in to try to ameliorate the harms of the crash. So the question becomes... In this period of stage of capitalism, where we're seeing these bumps and bubbles and crashes and and expansions, when exactly is there going to be a a decision made to put an overall remedy to the system so we can have some kind of stability, some kind of stasis? And I think that what we're seeing is that no one understands or has come to an understanding of an actual economic model that takes us away from this kind of precarity. Right. It's causing instability all over the world. And it's leading to not only a crisis of economic proportions, but a crisis of governance, a crisis of leadership. We can't have a country like Great Britain and England. There's no governance in England. We don't have <laughs> governance in America. There was this Pollyannish hope that there was some way to force uh, the incoming Biden administration to the left, which I always found um, silly. And then there was also a, a kind of, um, uh, rear view mirror love affair for the new deal as well. And there was going to be some sort of new deal and Biden was going to, to come in and, and save us from the COVID nightmare. That was the Trump administration. But again, you know, we have to ask the question, what really has changed? Well, speaking we, to what you speaking to what you just said, the 2020 and the 2021 
uh, stimulus packages have all been to the benefit of capitalism. Mm-hmm. Bingo. The airlines laid off 90,000 people during COVID. They haven't hired them back. And but we bailed them seeing, out to save those jobs. Say again? We bailed them out to save jobs. That's it's what we were told. They didn't. Right. Kind of the biggest middle finger to the people in general, to the people, not the government, but the people, the populace, the demos, whatever you want to call us. Has anybody stopped flying? Has anybody said, I think there's a monopoly with flight and we need to bust that up. The airlines stopped flying, but we didn't. We're still flying. The airlines aren't flying. And airports are filled to the rafters. We just had, well, I live in Mexico, but I'm not too far from San Diego. And I picked up my my lady friend and we forgot it was Comic-Con. At four o'clock in the morning, the airline was filled. Right. That must have have smelled good. You know how hard it is to get people to care? That's the thing that I think we forget to understand that ultimately, as long as I got my dollar store bullshit. Right. I don't really give a shit. Is there any way I have a question for Professor John in a second. Do you have a few more minutes or do you have to go? Uh, I got a few more minutes. I don't know. about Pascal, Pascal. do you have like five more minutes? Five minutes. Okay. So I'm old and I still believe that the government is the solution. I'm tired. I'm a tired old man. And I still believe that if we take hold of the Capitol, we can rescue the American people and uh, and nationalize a couple of industries and be a hybrid quasi economic system. Not so sure that's possible. Is there any way the people, how do the people take hold of capitalism? Is there a way, because it seems like Americans politically are, are not too keen on or even understand what it would mean to find an alternative to capitalism. Is there any way uh, the workers, the people can take over these corporations and rein them in through shareholder value? And I have a, my economic model, my silver bullet paradigm is a cooperative socialist model. Meaning, why can't we divide all of our publicly traded companies, every publicly traded company that issues stocks, why can't we divide it into thirds? One third is put into a trust for the overall citizenry. Every American citizen has literally shares balanced out in all American corporations. One third to the private shareholders who started the government, to start the, who started the company, the enterprise, and one third to the government so that we can diminish taxes and revenue goes directly to the government for the sake of governance and for the internal management of the state instead of actually having to tax people. I love that. You've talked about this before, uh, but right now that sounds, that. how do you, State that again. That's absolutely amazing. Say that again. Yeah. You, know, you basically every privately traded corporation is divided into thirds and where you have one third is put in a trust for the beneficiaries of every American citizen. When you American. say one third, you're yeah. saying the shareholder, the stock, the stocks. Yes. Right. One third go to the, to the public in a public trust 
one third go to the actual original equity investors who started the public aid, the the the, 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 the corporation, and one third goes to the government. Every every private enterprise that's over five million dollars in profit that becomes publicly traded is cooperatized in that fashion. It democratizes the economy. It gets everyone invested in the system. My next step would and be it retains all, the animal spirits of greed. If you're yeah, one, it maintains greed, profit, and at the same time, it makes a more balanced, economically humane society and social structure. Okay. Mine's the Oprah Winfrey model. I just give everybody a car. You get a car. You get a car. That's it. Done. They're all Teslas too. Uh, so I want to. I, I want to revisit when you come back the the one third of uh, yeah. That's that's very interesting. It would mean that the government would be holding hearings on the management of companies. Yes. We would the, yes. right. We would. Uh, it would increase shareholder value, and uh, these corporations might actually do better. Most corporations are not doing well. No, they don't. Most of them don't make them, they don't make much profit either. Right, and they're they're leveraged uh, to the hilt. So, Professor Jonathan Bick asks Pascal, "What is your preference for the U.S. response and/or stance towards Russia? How how would you?" Uh, so I, I, I'm going to let me put it, let me instead of giving a history lesson about how Biden uh, invited Russia to invade Ukraine, I think we have, we all agree that Biden wanted to trap Putin in Ukrainian quicksand the same way as a big new Brzezinski claims to have trapped Russia in Afghanistan. Uh Let's say uh, Bernie becomes president today. So you can't relitigate the past. What do you do now about Ukraine without revisiting the history? What is the response? I, I personally would suggest that we diminish the amount of military aid to the region and try to negotiate a peaceful settlement between the two parties. Uh, I'm not an, I'm not a fan of supporting war. I think the Russians were wrong for invading Ukraine, and I not make apologies for them doing so. But I think that at this stage, we should try to avoid having a major military conflagration on the shores of you know of Europe as a result of two you know neighboring countries who have been more than allies, almost brothers for years, coming to this kind of conflict. That will be my response. And is this this is our new economy, which is the military industrial complex has realized. Why are we sending men and women overseas? They come back damaged. They have PTSD. We -hmm. have to have veterans hospitals. Let's just sell weapons. Why are we? Proxy wars are the wars that you're going to see fought more or less like uh, there's again back that political burlesque always talks about are, is the u.s and china going to get in a fight over taiwan that, that would be a proxy fight for both sides and also what we saw and a lot of people forget this the, the memory is extremely short uh the first iraq invasion in the early 90s 
was over in what, like 30 days? That was supposed to show the new combat. Even right. our first initial going into Iraq was over relatively quickly. It was when boots came on the ground that she, that things really started to go uh, haywire. So for the, for the most part, when we think about the way war is fought, it's not fought like in the movies. Right. Professor That's, Ann Lee just said the problem is as we start giving more and more advanced weapon systems to countries like Ukraine, their soldiers aren't trained in how to use them. So Vietnam started with our advisors going over there and advising uh, them how to use our weapons and fight. And next thing you know, we're, we're sending half a million soldiers. I mean, the, the, major, the major problem is when we think about hegemony, and even the, the article Besner writes, and there's another great book um, I would recommend uh, for for anyone that wants to really learn a, a quick history of U.S. empire that's shorter than Zen's book is How to Hide an Empire. Um, a, a really great book that explains um, the involvement in anything by um, Stephen Kinzer. <laughs> it's pretty okay. good if you want to understand uh, U.S. empire and their and their journeys right. into foreign lands, starting even in, again, Hawaii, all the way to, you know, the history of uh, the, the taking out the or installing the Shah in, in Iran. Uh, right. Those are some really good histories. Great. Next week, we'll talk about why you think Pelosi is going to Taiwan. Uh, I really appreciate this. Fascinating. I'm so grateful uh, for you. Coming on the show, Jason Miles and Pascal Robert, our co-hosts of the This Is Revolution podcast. And you've plugged it. Plug away. Tell us who the guests are coming up. Uh, we Tomorrow we have Daniel Bessner. He is a professor at was it Eastern Washington of political science, inter right. political inter international theory. And uh, he's also a fellow at the Quincy Institute. Uh, and also... This is revolutionpodcast.com. We now have mugs. The merch is growing, David. Mugs. The merch is growing. I want to send you a, a mug, David. Now, I now hang on for one second. I feel guilty making mugs. Like, I stopped making, I don't want to, you have a mug. You don't want to sell merch? Yeah, I feel guilty doing that, but we have a mug and it's the first thing of merchandise I've ever had with my face on it. And it's the only thing you'll ever see with Pascal smiling on it. <laughs> and how do people buy the mug? This is revolutionpodcast.com. So you, you have merch. We've got merch. We do. But I'm merch. sending you a mug. Now, did you feel do you feel guilty? No, no. Not a goddamn bit. <laughs> okay. Every time one sells, uh, our teeth get white. talked out of merch oh telling people to shut up yeah okay <laughs> uh go buy the mug thank you i i was actually you know i was arrested in washington and there's a mug shot floating around there and i thought of selling like i, I have a, an idea for a company called coffee mug shots and it would be mug shots of people uh you're talking about your recent arrest. My recent arrest, which I'm 
almost out of the woods there. Hey, but uh, capitalism's got to capitalize. Yeah, I'm going to keep my mouth shut. I, I want <laughs> There's some things I actually, anyway, some serious stuff that I wanted to talk to you about about that, and uh, I'm going to keep my mouth shut. Uh, thank you, Pascal. Thank you, Jason. When are you going to be in New York, Jason? Um, we're working out the dates. It looks like November. Uh, looks like we nailed down a date for our LA show. The, this is revolution. And, and, uh, Ben Burgess gives them an argument. Um, I can't really say who's all going to be there, but it's going to be a leftist star studded event. Great. In Los Angeles. looks like October 22nd. Um, and then New York looks like we're trying to be there for election night. Mm. We're going to have an election night party. So if you're down to be part of the election night party that we're going to have in New York, our last election, maybe could be our last election. <laughs> Thank you, but, Jason. Thank you, Pascal. Great job. Right. Everybody go listen to uh, the This Is Revolution podcast, please. And buy a mug. And I <laughs> and I I uh, chief running just gave us some money in the super chat. Hey, Dave, you called into the majority report one time and I didn't get that it was a bit <laughs> Here's a beer on me. Yeah, I call in. I'm going to be on the Majority Report this Friday. You guys were just on. I was just on recently. Yeah. yeah. If you're going to be on there, I will make sure to send uh, an IM to Sam that hopefully he reads on air while you're there. Yeah. Uh, there are still some people who think I'm serious, which is very, it's Keep pleases doing me. It. Yeah. Thank you, fellas. I appreciate it. Oh, so, oh, there's a mug. Look at that. Dan has a, an old, that has to be like eight years old. Look at that. When did you I buy that, it. Dan? It was about a year ago. <laughs> okay. That's Dan. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send some mugs your way, David, so hopefully for you and your staff. So okay. uh, keep an eye out. Send them to me and I'll sell them to my staff. <laughs> Now that's a capitalist. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Peace, David. Thank you. Thank you. Thank All you. Right. I hope to see you next week. Great. Okay, sure. You're listening to the David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Well, it's time to see who in the chat room wants to lose to me. Now, I, I beat Karen Emerson, uh, I, Jill of Canada, Jill of Canada, Whoa. Jill of Canada. Hello. Can yeah. you hear me? So you want to be humiliated? Oh, well, it's inevitable. That's okay. 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 This is, you know, you know what I did to Karen Emerson two weeks ago? This, yeah, I, I heard that. Three Stooges. I mopped the floor with her. And then. Yeah. Last, yeah. She was very humbled. And then uh, who did I beat last week, Dan? It might have been uh, Chris of St. Hitchens. Was it Christopher's? No, it was. No, I think it was one of the professors. Oh. In the last month or so, we've, we've had Chris of St. Hitchens. We've had John Hayes. And I don't, I'm always amazed that people are willing to take me on. But Jill of Canada, uh, <laughs> foolishly. Like a moth to a flame for trivia. <laughs> You're going to take on JC. Okay, JC. Oh boy, what's the subject? 
Well, here's the here's the clue for the subject. This song gained tremendous MTV and radio airplay and topped the charts worldwide during this week in 1982. Oh my god. Fantastic. I'm just revving up my brain. Okay. It's been It's been 15 consecutive weeks in the top 10 which was the second longest run of 1982 behind Hurt So Good by John Mellencamp. And it held number one on the Billboard Hot 100 chart for six consecutive weeks behind um, uh, Olivia Newton-John's physical. All right, let me put some money in the kitty. All right. This song by American rock band Survivor was Eye of the Tiger in today's uh, quiz is on Rocky. I'm sorry. The, oh, the, the quiz is on, on well, Rocky. Well, well. Rocky. Well, there's no way, Jill of Canada. It's unfair. How would I know anything about that movie? I, I'm a man. I'm an American. I love boxing. I'm a big Stallone fan. Rambo. I model my life after <laughs> Sly. It's kind of unfair. <laughs> I'm out you'd of re- you'd rather pull the guy out of the car. Yeah. And whack him a good one. Yeah. Jill, are you sure you want to do this? Um, this is, well, this is yes, Karen Emerson. Sure. This is Karen Emerson from two weeks ago. <laughs> this is. It's going to be all right, Karen. Oh, my. Okay. <laughs> I, I feel guilty. All right. I'm really glad you're managing expectations, though. I never lose. It'll be, yeah. It'll be much less humiliating when I lose. Okay. All right. How many questions are there, Quizmaster? How many questions? We have six questions, and the guest, uh, JC, is going to be first. Okay. Okay. Question question number one. Referring to Ivan Drago, which character stated that whatever he hits, he destroys? Was it Duke? Ludmilo Drago? Nikolai Kolkov? Or Christy Canyon? (laughs) I know. Good Lord. We have a scene from that. We have a scene from that Rocky movie. Okay. <laughs> um, I don't remember any of those characters except for Drago, but I um, think it would be like a Russian talking him up. So I think the, what was the third one? The third one was Nikolai Kolkov. Okay. I'm going, I'm going with that. Uh, which one was Hubachikakov? <laughs> oh, that was Christy Canyon's cousin. Oh, okay. Uh, well, this is really oh un- no! This is really unfair to Jill from Canada. Uh, what's what's number one? Number one was Duke. I'm going to go with Duke. The correct answer is Nikolai Kolkov. Woo-hoo. <laughs> I have a little note on that. Nikolai asked Ivan to demonstrate a punch on the special machine to see him demonstrate his strength. And what was revealed was that Ivan Drago could hit with a force of 1,850 pounds per square inch 
and that was 1100 uh, PSI higher than the average heavyweight boxer. Wow. That was okay. So I'm cool winning. Call. I'm beating Jill from Canada <laughs> 10 to 1. Oh, hold it. Joe Biden, COVID Joe is calling in. Yes, Joe. <laughs> Okay, your rest. Get some rest. <laughs> uh, all right, who's up? Me. Uh, Mr. Feldman is first on question number two. When Rocky begins training, we see him wake up in the morning and drink raw eggs from a glass. In the background, the radio is playing where the DJ calls a listener to award a prize. The woman he calls says, "Which of the following sentences? I've won what? I've never heard of you." You've got some nerve calling me this time of the morning or Baba Booey. Uh, I'm going to say you've got some nerve calling me this time in the morning. Okay. Jill. Hmm. Um, just to be different, I think I'll take the first one. You're saying, I've You're, won a what? Yeah. You're wrong. Uh, the correct answer is, you've got some nerve calling me this time of morning. Yeah. I, that's my first guess. So I'm winning. Yeah. It's tied one to one. Uh, Canada is first. Canada. Question number three. Okay. After taking Adrian to the zoo on their second date, Rocky proposed to Adrian. She accepted his offer of marriage. The scene then cut to a church for their marriage. There, the viewers first learned Adrian's last name. What was it? Zamed. From Dance Fever. Right? Was it Panino, Anderson, Klein, or Jean Rambeau? <laughs> <laughs> I think um, Klein. Klein. Um, no, no, no. That's not my guess. My <laughs> guess is I think they were Italians, right? It's pronounced. Polly was her brother. Hang so on. So I'm guessing second. their parents went with alliteration and the name was Polly Panino or it's, whatever it was. It's pronounced Italian. <laughs> I, don't right. what, I don't know how they pronounce it in Canada, but here in <laughs> America. We call them Italians. Mm-hmm. All right, so, so the first one. Jill goes with Panino. Panino. Give me the choices again. Panino, Anderson, Klein, or Jean Rambeau. I'm going to have to go with Panino. The correct answer is Panino. It's uh, tied, right? It, 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 right, Jill? It really is tied, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it is. All right. This is humiliating. This is <laughs> question number four, and David is first. For Rocky's advanced training regime, Mickey thought that the best way to beat Apollo was with speed. And it turned out that back in mixed fighting days, the best way to get speed was to chase what animal? Was it a chicken? A squirrel, a, a dog, squirrel? or three blonde birds. All right, give me the, give me the, 
Let me clear my head. Okay, what? <laughs> Give it to me again. Um, to get uh, more speed for fighting, what animals were they training uh, to chase? They to to chase. chase this animal. Yeah. Was it a chicken, a squirrel, a dog, or three blonde birds? It's either a chicken or a squirrel. I'm going to say he lived in Philadelphia. So all the chickens. I, I'm going to go with... Uh, I've seen in movies people chasing chickens, but uh, squirrels can run up trees. Hmm. This is uh, this is a tough one. I'm going to go with squirrel, even though I want to say chicken, but it's too comedic. Squirrel. Jill. Okay, I think um, I think I may be imagining this scene but i also have chickens myself and i know chasing them is very good exercise and difficult so you're gonna chickens. you're gonna say you know what where how chris christie gets his exercise he chases himself uh, go, go. Yeah, I'm going with chickens. I'm going to go. I know with, from experience. I'm going to go with squirrels. The correct answer is chicken. <laughs> well, this is unbelievable. Okay. Jill is leading. Jill is, I can't believe he's admitting it. it it's, it's temporary, I'm sure. It, it, it is. This has never happened before. Uh, right, Karen Emerson? <laughs> <laughs> she still hasn't gotten over it. She still can't. Karen Emerson still. Okay. Question number five. Who's first? Jill, Jill is first. Jill. Okay. Where does Rocky keep his gym lock combination written is it on his wrist on his id card on a slip of paper in his hat or on his forehead okay give those again please. is it his wrist his id card on a slip of paper in his hat or his forehead i'm thinking i uh, I think I remember it being on a slip of paper in his hat. I'm going to agree. Uh, you are both correct. <laughs> okay. So uh, Jill has one, two, three, four, has one point, and I have one, two, three points. It's three to one. Somehow I took... The lead. It's four. Well, here's the last it, question. It's four to three. Jill's in the lead. Who's first? Uh, oh boy. David is first. Last question. This is rigged. This is <laughs> so unfair. So unfair to me. No podcast host in the history of America has been as mistreated as I am by these questions. So unfair. Mm -hmm. 
Go the ahead. very first scene, the very first scene in the first movie took place on November 25th, 1975 and featured a fight between Spider Rico and Rocky Balboa. I have Where here's a the, clip. Here's a clip. <laughs> Okay, go ahead. <laughs> that might be a spoiler or a clue. Yeah. Where did the fight take place? Was it the Philadelphia Spectrum, Mighty Mix Gym, a church, or a cream <laughs> cheese factory? <laughs> I'm going to go with Mighty Mix Gym. Hmm. I, I think I have to, I think I have to agree because I, Rocky was kind of a nobody at the beginning, I think. The fight was Rocky's very first that was shown in the series. After Spider Rico headbutted him in the second round, Rocky got angry and pummeled Rico into the canvas. This was held in a church. Oh my gosh. No. Hey, uh, the church I go to, they work with their their fists, but it's not fighting. The, the priest uses his fists for some, but it isn't. Uh, You'd think JC would have got that right. Uh, well, I'm just imagining that was funny. <laughs> so we both got that uh, wrong. Uh, Okay. okay, we're not ending on a good note. Yeah, but let's tally the the points. Uh, Jill has one, two, three, four, five. I have one, two, three. Uh, unless I'm mistaken, I won. Am I? That's usually how this goes. I think I won. I beat right. you three to five. Well, fair is fair. Uh, good job, David. <laughs> Thank you. There we are. There she goes. She <laughs> Don't take it so hard. Don't take it so hard. Jill. I'll get over it. I'm sure I'll get over it. How can you talk and cry at the same time? Uh, thank you, Jill. In Canada. Are you really in Canada? Oh, yes. I'm definitely in Canada. You're lucky. It's a, it's a, I definitely feel that way. Yeah. Yeah. Go in the it's backyard and chase one of your chickens. Burn, That's burn, right. Burn. Off I go. <laughs> hey, you know what you win, Jill from Canada? Oh, what's that? A this is Revolution podcast mug that I will sell to you for Discount. only $18. <laughs> 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 <Wow>. <laughs> All right, send it. That's that's what you won the opportunity for me to sell you a This Is Revolution podcast mug. That that's wonderful. You want a Thank coupon? You, you want a coupon? <laughs> Thank you. That so long. So alrighty, ciao. Thank you. And my streak continues undefeated. I am the king of the world. You're listening to the day. There's David Cobb. I'm going to go pour some water. Uh, it is so hot in here, and I don't use air conditioning. It is so hot in here. So I'm going to put some ice cubes uh, where they don't belong and then.
We'll be back with David Cobb, who's been away for a while. It's good to see you, sir. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Come join us in the virtual studio audience. If you're watching us on YouTube, go to my website, hit pay-per-view, and we'll take you right in. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. We'll be right back. Traveling light, got everything I need. Got a little bottle of Rolite and a little bag of weed. Got to saw Bello novel, cause I really like to read. I'm traveling light. I'm a creature of the road, got no regrets. Gave up my postal code and cigarettes. I'm doing much better with a touch of Tourette's. I'm traveling light. Just need a clean room in a Motel 6. Not too close to downtown, but not out in the sticks. I need my pen and teller magic kit so I can do my tricks. Got my favorite pillow, which I call Mr. Fluffy. Four kinds of allergy pills in case I get stuffy. A pound of Epsom salts, cause my ankles get puffy. I'm traveling light. I got two pairs of socks and shorts in my little valise. A couple of passports and my sex doll Denise. I'm staying real quiet so they don't call the police. I'm traveling light. sedatives and my antipsychotics a high speed parallax motor cause I'm into robotics and my little red speedo I like to do aquatics I'm traveling late got my CPAP machine and my George Foreman grill a copy of Lolita and my little blue pills a Navajo blanket I get a chill, I'm traveling light Got my margarita mix and my rusty old blender A 50 tequila, in case I go on a bender My attorney's number, in case I want to change my gender I'm traveling light In case I have some visitors For breeze if my room is stinky A Polaroid in case I get kinky My Jesus bobblehead And my Star Wars bedspread I'm traveling light I got my rabbi costume And my portable dark room My hair plug lotion And my expensive wrinkle cream My Emmy statue For my self-esteem I'm traveling light 
I got my podcast mixer and a fancy microphone, my exercise bike so I have a place to hang my pants, my very valuable Hummel collection, a menorah made of fish heads, a Christmas tree, I like to keep my options open, don't you know, a shoe shine kit, a skill saw, a crossword book, a large supply of mechanical pencils, a year's worth of New York magazines I've been trying to get around to read, some scripts that I've been tweaking for those people in L.A., and my enemies list. Don't forget about my enemies list. Welcome back. Welcome back. Hang on. There we go. I'm back. I just did something that is so much fun, David Cobb. This is everybody should do what I just did. Get a banana. You get a banana and then you get peanut butter and you spread the peanut butter all over the banana and you eat it, right? Peanut butter and a banana and then drink a cup of decaf and wait five minutes and you'll think you're having a heart attack from the indigestion. It, it really does recreate all the symptoms of a heart attack. Peanut butter, a banana and decaf. Hi, David Cobb. Well, hello there, David Feldman. It is a pleasure to see you. And you, I got to say, because you brought up peanut butter and banana, I got to ask you, what what famous person does that combination remind you of? Peanut butter and a banana. So I'm just going to tell I, I'm going to I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it a little bit easier. Fried peanut butter and banana. Elvis. Don't look in the chat because your 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 Elvis. your fans are smarter than you are. It, they're flooding in with answers. So don't you look at the chat. I'm not, is it Elvis? It is Elvis. OK, I got. And, and you know what? Uh, here, oh, here's something, you know, like a, a, a another thing that I'm proud to say the first concert I ever saw, I am eight years old. My mama and my daddy took me to see Elvis Aaron Presley at the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo. And what was the opening act? The Beverly Hillbillies. I shit you not. I am not joking. At the Houston Astrodome, uh, the Beverly Hillbillies come out of that jalopy. They ride around in a circle. We see Buddy Ebsen. He does. They they do skits. Buddy Ebsen does a little sideshow. Uh, we see all the Beverly Hillbillies doing a little thing, and then uh, Elvis Presley comes out. Wow! How about that? That that's amazing. David Cobb joins us from Northern California. You've been away. So where, what have you been up to? Tell us what you've been Listen, up to. Uh, well, first of all, you, like I, I just, uh, where I'm from, we say, David, you don't whistle past a graveyard. Right. So, you know, since I've seen you, you had a loss. So I just send you love and support uh, for that grieving process. So that's the first time I wasn't here. You too. Then the next time you had two weeks off, I think. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So so we were the whole show was off for two weeks. Yeah. Then the next time I was supposed to come on, actually, uh, I had an opportunity to make an application on behalf of the Weat tribe, where I think, you know, I now work as the uh, director of a Dishgama Community Land Trust uh, for the state of California to purchase a, a two story commercial building 
with the idea of converting that into housing for uh, youth, homeless youth and at risk youth. So uh, it, it was sort of a, a, a uh, it was handed off to me and I had literally uh, I mean, I, it's due on August 1st, but I had 48 hours to decide, can I do this 100 page document application? And uh, so I, I I needed to take a look at it and see if I could do it. So so this is commercial I, property because this is very important here in Manhattan. It's 40 percent occupancy in commercial real estate. Nobody's using these buildings and yet people are living on the streets. It seems to me it's time to start to convert these skyscrapers to housing. I think there's talk in L.A. of converting the old Sears store into housing for the homeless. Is this it is very similar. And uh, before I go in, I, I got to say to uh, uh, Ann Lee uh, uh, in the chat, eminent domain. Right on, Anne. Like, that's exactly right. If, if there was sufficient political will, we could absolutely do, use eminent domain uh, to just go in and buy at fair market value. The Fifth, Fifth Amendment is very clear. Yeah. All you have shooter. to do is provide just compensation, uh, and that could actually be done. We've used uh, eminent domain to take uh, to build stadiums for the Ra Texas Rangers. George W. Bush did that. Developers use eminent domain. I think Justice Souter offended the Republicans because he ruled in favor of developers using eminent domain. God forbid the government use eminent domain to put a roof over somebody's head. So, uh, yeah, exactly. Right. And in California, and so this is a challenge to the state of New York and, and any other state where there are uh, uh, Democrats uh, in the majority, because we know that this current uh, Republicans, they're just right wing assholes. Let's just be honest. There's there's no more principled conservatives in the Republican Party at this point under the Trump uh, under Trump. Uh, but uh, in California, with a majority Democrat uh, uh, leg state legislature and a Democratic governor, as is the case in New York, by the way. Uh, so what it, California has done under their uh, state housing and community development, or HCD, has created a program for how to use American Rescue Plan Act uh, money. They did two things. Uh, uh, one, they made big block grants available for municipalities, uh, nonprofits or tribes to make an application to go in and purchase commercial real estate and rehab it and turn it into housing for uh, houseless or at-risk uh, houseless people. And the reason uh, is, is exactly as you say, uh, the, the, the commercial real estate market has cratered. Uh, and the, it, it, there is like the the occupancy rates are have cratered, right? So there are opportunities to be able to purchase uh, commercial buildings uh, uh, in order to do this. And so, David, what I'm really excited to share with you and your audience is what because the Weot Tribe is government, and there's not a profit motive associated as developers. Our community land trust is to, is saying, all right. 
we're going to purchase this uh, uh, two-story commercial building. We are going to retrofit it for housing. And because it's for youth, every uh, one will get a, a, a door and a bedroom and a door that closes. But in addition to that, we're going to have on-site uh, substance abuse counselors, uh, life coaches, uh, a, an entire wraparound services uh, that are available there. Uh, and then one half of the building will be specifically for students who are uh, either houseless or at risk of being houseless. Because by the way, here in Humboldt County, where we have a Cal Poly Technic University and a College of the Redwoods Junior College, 10% of the student body uh, uh, is houseless, David. Mm. It's, it's obscene. So what we're going to do is segregate it to say there will be a section for uh, college students and a section for uh, other young people. Wow. So all I'm saying is these are solutions that are available if we take the profit motive uh, out of the idea of uh, human needs uh, and simply begin to provide human needs. This is what we need to do to act locally. That must be very That's satisfying. Uh, it is satisfying. And I'll tell you, David, I'm glad that you brought it up because uh, like, look, I'm pretty clear that, uh, that it is entirely possible that by November of 2025, we won't have another election in this country. And, and I'm, I'm being sincere when I tell you this current Republican Party are led by fascists. Uh, they're not like it's. And again, you know, Ronald Reagan had, was an asshole and he had horrible policies, but I would have never called him a fascist. Uh, but but under Trump, the 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 idea of uh, democratic elections don't even matter. The idea of objective truth don't even matter. It is not uh, the same thing, right? Like this this current batch of folks are dangerous. So I know we have to defeat fascism, uh, and I understand that that means uh, an electoral, uh, you know, like sort of holding pattern, if you will. But I also know this, the current neoliberal Democratic Party are not going to, to create the policies uh, that we need that allow fascism to emerge. So I've kind of given up on national level, uh, like building a movement at the national level. What I'm saying is wherever you live, work, play and pray, that's where we have to lean in, create policies that meet people's needs. We need to start thinking about building lifeboats, Faldo. We need to start understanding that like we are with this ecological crisis, this economic crisis, this political crisis, all these things put together, we are in the early stages of full on actual systems collapse. And we've got a short window to get it together and be able to feed people, to be able to house people, to be able to provide whatever level of healthcare we can to the best that we can at the local level. So I'm not being hyperbolic when I say we need to get ready. And that means at the local level. Right. Why explain the, the, the fascism to me, the, the 
the the American citizens who have no skin in the game, but other than delighting in violence, is violence that power? No, 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 no. That's no. It's it, and I'm glad you asked that question. And and I gotta say, look, Feldo, I'm like I'm not blowing sunshine up your butt here. Like one of the things I really appreciate about you is that you and I think. I think myself the same way. And that is I ask questions. If I don't understand something, I'll say, what the hell? And and ask questions. So when you ask, like, why is fascism emerging now? And like, what is it? Are they just genetically defective? Are they just mean? No. Now, look, like the fascist element, you know, the 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 idiot clan members the you know, the, the, like those those cockroaches have always been amongst us. Right. But remember, 10, 20 years ago, they were at the margins. Right. Everybody recognized them to be disgusting. Now you're having neo-Confederates getting elected to office. Uh, all across the country. You've got the the Confederate flag and swastikas waving outside of Republican Party events. It hasn't yet uh, gotten to the point where Trump is wrapping himself in it, uh, except he's wrapping himself in an American flag. But remember, after Charlottesville, you had Trump saying, there are good people on both sides, Right. right? So all I'm saying is something different is happening now. And I would like to take just a moment to explain what that something different is. Because remember, fascism is not merely jackbooted thugs and totalitarianism. It's not merely white racist cops gunning down black and brown bodies. That's a part of it. But fascism is a way to organize the politic, the entire political economy based on an ethno state based on hyper-militarism, based on a level of command and control order from the top down. It is authoritarian, but it's not merely authoritarian, right? It is, it is authoritarian coupled with ethno-nationalism, coupled with hyper-masculinity. There, is a, there are characteristics of it. So why is fascism emerging now, we might ask? Well, for the same reason it emerged in the 1920s and the 1930s, because society was being reorganized, because there was chaos going on. Never forget in the 1920s and the 1930s, the entire world was witnessing the transition from agrarian society to industrial society. And in that switch, there was chaos. There was a level of what is going on and we don't understand it. And what the fascists uh, offered in Italy and in Germany was order. We will take care of you. You know, and, and remember that Benito Mussolini, the, the great fascist philosopher, right? He was not just a dictator. He was a, a thinker, a deep thinker. Mussolini said famously, fascism more properly should be called corporatism because we are merging the economic might of our corporations, our Italian corporations, with the military might of the mighty Italian state. And he put those together and then he added on top of it complete control of the media, complete control of the narrative, and the narrative becomes 
Italy will rise to its former Roman uh, glory. And it's sort of the hearkening back to the old days, right? So fascism emerged in the 1920s and the 1930s as a way to react to chaotic changes in the economic and social systems uh, and offering something that uh, that that sort of ordinary Italians or ordinary Germans could feel, oh, okay, we'll be safe, right? So I want to stop for a moment and ask, am I making sense so far? Because yeah, I'm yeah. going to now... All right. Yeah. So now I want to fast forward, David. Today, we are seeing an ecological crisis. It's not coming. It's here and getting worse. There's a level of disruption that is accelerating, right? You couple that with an economic crisis. And the economic crisis is not merely that we're uh, extracting from Mother Earth resources faster than she can replenish herself. We're also experiencing a change from industrial economic order to a new information order or, you know, uh, 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 surveillance capitalism like data literally as capital for the first time ever, like just like this is this is a completely new system. And and so whether it's blockchain or or whether it's Facebook or Google or what or, or what have you, the entire society is being reordered. So you have an ecological crisis, you have an economic crisis. And oh, and by the way, the other reason that there's an economic crisis is because capitalism itself as an economic system depends on the extraction of the surplus value of the labor of the worker, right? That's how it's always worked. But Feldo, with automation, technology, robotics, like they can't extract the surplus value of labor anymore in the same kind of way. So the society is going to be reorganized. Now, what pisses me off to no end is that there, in fact, could be paradise now. Like literally there's enough there's enough technology, there's enough knowledge, there's enough there's enough stuff that there's plenty to go around if we would just share it. Right. Right. But the ruling elite being the the, the mentally ill people that they are like literally addicted to accumulation of stuff and power are doing it so fast that they're they're willing to destroy the planet. So an ecological cry, coll collapse coupled with an economic massive transformational shift is creating political uncertainty so much that the ruling elite and the political system can't solve the problem. Now, to be clear, this political system was never designed to solve the problem of white supremacy or heteropatriarchy uh, or class oppression. I'm saying something different. I'm saying the current political system can't even maintain order. So it is in that level of crisis that somebody like Donald Trump can rise. And what's really frightening to me, Feldo, is that Donald Trump uses better populist rhetoric and language than do the Democrats. Now, to be clear, that bastard doesn't believe any of it. Right. He doesn't give a rat's ass about the working class. Uh uh, but he pretends like he does. And the neoliberal leadership of the Democratic Party are so flat footed, are so just just completely uh, out to lunch that they are allowing the, the conditions of fascism 
uh, to fester and grow. And in fact, they're even playing an incredibly dangerous game by trying to support those kind of people in Republican Party primaries. They are playing with more than fire. They're playing with dynamite. Right. They are donating and taking out ads that prop up the far right who they're running against in the general. I think Mastriano, the Republican candidate for uh, governor in Pennsylvania, was propped up by the Democrats, sold to the Republicans. Uh, It's an old trick that they use uh, where they take out ads and as Democrats running against the far right Republican in the primary. Remember, Feldo, let's never forget that Hillary Clinton wanted to run against Donald Trump, that that Hillary Clinton and her campaign, the memos are clear, they were literally trying to find ways to help support, to ensure that Donald Trump would be the nominee because they thought that he would be easier to beat. Uh, and of course, the, if you take a look at the, uh, the 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 amount of free coverage in 2016 that Donald Trump got ever since he came down that damn escalator, uh, like the, the the corporate media created Donald Trump out of their mere fascination, right? Uh, and Hillary Clinton and the neoliberal Democrats played a dangerous game and got burned for it. Right. Let me revisit uh, watching Steve Bannon who really knows the the language of fascism. Today, he's talking about shock troops, unleashing 4,000 shock troops uh, the minute Donald Trump takes over the administrative state. Trump was a merchant of chaos. He purposely confused us every day. He knew, is that innate, or did he just plan to keep the whole system... That's a great question. Here's my read on Donald Trump. I don't believe that Donald Trump has the ideological basis that uh, Bannon has. Uh, I don't think he has the ideal. And this is the other thing. I don't think he has the ideological basis that DeSantis has. Right. DeSantis is actually scarier to me than Trump because DeSantis is literally a slicker version of it. Right. Uh, uh, who, who actually can govern. Donald Trump could never govern uh, like, and he couldn't control himself. I don't believe that Donald Trump was in like, I think he was intentionally keeping things disruptive, but not because he was playing a smart political game, but because he's a grifter. And he understood that by keeping things chaotic, he never, he could always kind of maneuver that way. I mean, he, he campaigned as a uh, celebrity. He governed uh, as a celebrity. Uh, he ne- I, And I'll tell you, I don't think he cares anything other than making money and hearing applause, right? He doesn't have the ideological commitment that Bannon or, or DeSantis or the whole host of other uh, fascists uh, do. Right. Holly is is crazy. Like like these folks are really dangerous, Valdo. Josh Hawley, ultra religious, uh, possibly uh, a candidate for president, despite not th- not not this time. Uh, like uh, the only one who could even possibly challenge Trump 
uh, is DeSantis. And that's the point. Like, that's just out of the frying pan and into the fire. I, I honestly don't see any uh, uh, like that's going to be uh, uh, it's either uh, Trump runs basically unopposed or Trump versus DeSantis. And the thing is, there's nobody to root for there. Right. Both Trump and DeSantis are both fascists. Like they have clarity on. Uh, hello, Dr. Fraud. Uh, oh, and you came on right on time to agree with me. I saw you shaking your head. <laughs> We're talking about your favorite subject, fascism. David Cobb, who, by the way, didn't properly introduce you. David Cobb ran for president on the Green Party ticket. And he also managed Ralph Nader's uh, presidential campaign in Texas. He was talking about uh, all the ingredients that the Republicans are uh, applying to create a fascist state, hypermasculinity, ethno-nationalism. They create chaos in order to promise order. Where does religion play into this? I'm hearing a lot about people admitting openly to being Christian nationalists, this is a Christian nation, and you have to see the light. This has to be a nation of Christians. Uh, yeah, that's part of it. You know, the Supreme Court has two different uh, religious permissions eroding church and state, because one of the things you really do need for your population is to teach the lines of dominance and submission through religion and through orthodox religion. That's why they are allowing parochial school funds to be operated with public money. That's why the uh, coach can get on his knees and pray at the end of the football game right on, on the field. I think religion is part of the submission of the people. Superstition, submission, the lines of dominance and subordination to a leader, condemnation of women's sexuality. All the Abrahamic religions share a condemnation of women's sexuality. In Catholicism, the only really great woman is the Virgin Mary, who happens to have a kid without sex. Whoa. <laughs> so um, you have all through the Bible, women are punished sexually. Women are to be dominated by men. The biggest Protestant denomination in the United States is the Southern Baptist Convention. And at the Southern Conference, Baptist Conference for Men and Women, since 2000, early 2000s, women are to be subordinate to men. Men are to be protective. A woman should never be a boss of a man or to have the authority over a man in any way. It's built in. And so that you, you know, you have half the population subordinate to the other half and you throw men these bones. You throw men the bone of superiority over women. You, and if they're white, superiority over black people. And you take the deep sense of loss of the American people who have lost the American dream, the ability to, if they're white and male, to support a family on a family wage, to have mobility in their jobs, to have a secure future, to have their children do better than they, they've lost that. 
And women have lost support for their lives by marrying a man with a family wage. And so there's tremendous loss. And fascists capture that deep loss of a people and turn it on whoever is subordinate to them, whoever is below them, to give them a sense that they can have something. You may be poor. You may have to work at an, an Amazon warehouse, but you're better than women and you're better than black people if you're a white man. And if you're a white woman, you're better than a black woman. And so they compensate, you know, Trump and DeSantis are compensating the people that they rob with the help of corporate America by throwing them racial and sexual superiority and superiority to refugees. They're also breeding a whole bunch of desperate white people because the shit jobs were always done by immigrants. Now they don't want immigrants. And so, because they don't want them to pollute the white majority. So who's going to do those shit jobs? Desperate people. That's why they're engineering the recession now. So people are more desperate and people can't get abortions. So they raise children who are disliked and by overwhelmed parents who don't have the patience for them. And they get a population of desperate people, which you need for a fascist state. You also need the best opportunity they have is to join the army so that the United States can fight for its dying empire after having lost four wars and uh, have a sense that they're, we're going to be great again, just like Hitler's made the Germans. You're great. You know, we're going to make Germany great again, in spite of the inflation, in spite of the jobs being knocked out, in spite of the frugal people being robbed of their savings, not that Americans are frugal, the Germans were. We are going to make you great again. We are going to conquer the world. And they couldn't accept that they, they lost World War I and they were humiliated. America has lost four wars and has an 871 million, I think, or maybe it's 817 billion dollar war budget and that doesn't count a lot of stuff. So it's a trillion dollars while people are being immiserated. But they can be white and they can be male and they can be real Americans, not like those refugees, which right. is ironic because the only real Americans were the Native Americans and they're treated the worst. They got the vote in the 1960s. Whoa. Is so, that true? You know, yes. Look up when Native Americans got the vote. I mean, it, Wow. And they are the poorest people in the United States. Wow. And so you, you know, you are building the lines of fascism, but at the same time, people are joining unions. And there's nothing more democratic than joining a union together and working together. And, and people are standing up for black rights, and people are standing up for women. But what we haven't done is we haven't formed the kind of coalition that will win. I think women are just dumbstruck by the suddenness of losing abortion rights. It's been creeping up, but the suddenness of these losses is not lost on women. And the next thing is contraception. And I want to point out that Hitler had three things he did first. 
banned unions, banned birth control, banned abortion. And so that he was making sure that people knew their place. And that's what they're trying to do. Now it's up to the left to unify and fight them rather than monitor each other's microaggressions or whatever and join together and fight for justice for all of us together. Because this is a real assault by the right, these unelected people with total power. And the Democrats didn't stand in and make the kind of fuss that the Republicans did to not allow Merrick Garland to be a Supreme Court judge. They don't, they don't really, they say things, but they don't stand up and make it happen. They don't stop at nothing to make it happen. And so, uh, you know, there, there has, this has to be a movement to make this happen. I'm so glad, Dr. Frog, that, uh, you know, I've missed talking to both of you, by the way. And, and uh, I say almost every time I'm just it always makes me so happy when you come on a little early. So we get a, we yeah. get a little. I tried uh, to get on earlier because I thought you'd be on, but I had to do a password and everything. Finally, it worked. But <laughs> sorry. Well, listen, here's what I want to pick up on. Uh, Dr. Frog's point about. We have to defeat fascism because of what it is, and we have to be willing to be critical of the neoliberal Democratic Party leadership for what they do. Because, and and uh, I'll I'll use a little lingo here, and then explain it as I go. Because we need a united front against fascism, but not a popular front. And uh, I'm going to describe what that means. Yeah. The united front against fascism. Uh, was a, a all in against fascism will work with anybody we can. But socialists were very clear that they were still socialists and that they were fighting for a socialist world. Right. The popular front is one where you all come together and say, we're, 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 we're like, you don't have that level of clarity. The, the, you just have a very popularized front. And it sort of leads to this idea that, oh, well, we're, we're going in and we're voting for Democrats in order to prevent fascists from winning. And that's the narrative. A united front against fascism would say these fascists are dangerous. They are they are horrific. They are going to, to lock people up. They're going to pre- prevent any other elections from ever taking place. A scathing, unabashed critique of the Republican Party as fascists and a unequivocal call for a socialist political economy, that the majority of the Democratic Party are not capable or willing to actually lead. And even as we offer the scathing critique of the Republican Party as fascist, we say, and remember, Democrats had 20 years to codify Roe versus Wade and didn't. Uh, They also, by the way, had several months of advance notice that Roe versus Wade was coming down the pike and did not do a damn thing to prepare for it. The Democratic Party allowed Citizens United versus Federal Election Commission to advance corporate constitutional rights, which have de- which have begun the process of return to the Lochner era of pre-FDRs. Uh, and then we go down the list of 
what the Democratic Party has allowed to happen. And I got to tell you, it is foolish to say our call to action is we're not as bad as the Republicans. And that's all the majority of the leadership of the neoliberal Democratic Party had to offer. That's right. The progressive Democrats try for more. But of course, that's all they offered. They don't fight. They don't act up. At this point, Biden could himself levy an excess profits tax. He could himself allow $10,000 off of every um, community college student's debt. He could do all sorts of things. You know, just like gays never got their rights until they did act up. Okay, you have to act up. The Democrats are not willing to act up. They want to, because they, they, are, they are beholden to the same corporate donors. And so they won't fight this way. And we're not talking about people like AOC or Elon Omar, who is beholden only to the small contributors and refuses corporate monies. We're talking about Nancy Pelosi. We're talking about Chuck Schumer, all big pack money collectors. There has to be the program that private money is not allowed in elections and that corporations are not persons and that this is enough. It's enough. And, and you know, Dr. Fraud, I love like the clarity with which you speak, because it reminds me of one of the great political philosophers uh, in the United States of America. And that was Frederick Douglass, yes. who said power concedes nothing without a demand. That's it right. never did. And it never will. A lot of people know that. But the, let me actually share the next sentence, which is just as important. Douglas says, find out what any people will quietly submit to. And you have found out the exact measure of injustice and wrong, which will be imposed upon them. And these will continue until they are resisted with either words or blows or with both. And my point is that the current leadership of the Democratic Party do not understand power. They do not understand, either they don't understand what the Republicans actually represent, or they don't care. Either way, they are complicit in the problem. Yes, they have the same corporate donors, and they're the same capitalist dependents. We have to have a different vision in order to win. Otherwise, you know, they say, speak truth to power. That way they have, you have the truth, they have the power. Okay, that's not good enough. You have to do something. And at this point, although Biden does have some good words, he's not doing anything. I know he's probably afraid to really go to West Virginia and Arizona and campaign against those people because they'll become Republicans then. And then there won't be a Democratic majority. But, but what I would argue, Dr. Do something. I would argue this, Dr. Fraud, that if if uh, and this, the polling data actually backs this up. The last time I was on, I think we actually talked about some of the great work uh, that's actually been done on a the winning strategy of a race and class analysis. Uh, and, and, you know, the, 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 the data's clear. Next week, maybe we'll revisit that, uh, Feldo, because I think that it's really yeah. important to understand. See, the problem is 
that uh, 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 Biden and the neoliberal Democrats try to 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 walk a line that like this is a which side are you on moment in the great in the words of the great uh, union anthem, which side are you on? Because you can't actually say you're for the working class and corporate America. That's impossible. Like you can't be for those things. Like like you you can't say that you're for a strong union movement and then denigrate uh, the Amazon workers when when they organize themselves. I could go down the list. The, The reality is that if Biden would actually just come out and say, we have a a, a, dis, a desperate situation. We need the American people to have access to uh, uh, living wage jobs. We need uh, to ensure that the American people have access to health care for all as a human right. We're going to guarantee housing for everyone. If he had a full throttled embrace of FDR's vision of the Economic Bill of Rights and said, and we're going to challenge the racist behavior, like it's a winning strategy, but he can't do it. Behavior. Yeah. Sexist behavior too. But it's too militant for them. They are are beholden to the same corporate donors and they don't care that much if they win. It's not an ideological struggle for them. And the mass of Americans are getting shafted. And the Republicans' passion is picking up their sense of intense loss and putting it in racist, sexist, and economically terrible terms. And, you know, Trump didn't have to give anything. He gave that huge tax cut to the rich. Which we still haven't gotten rid of. The Democrats Democrats still haven't gotten rid of that tax cut for the rich. No, and they haven't suggested it either, and they haven't pushed for it. And there's all sorts of things they could do, and they haven't done it. They haven't tried to cancel that because they want the corporate money for their elections. And they're not willing to have a general strike. There was a general strike in the United States in 1877 around the railroad strike where all American workers went on strike. Which, by the way was part of the reason that you had the great populist uprising that started with rural uh, dirt farmers spread across the country, organized labor was militant. We really had in the populist uprising uh, the the beginning of a complete economic transformation. The rich. What happened? The rich bought off the Democratic Party. Uh, They they uh, they they. They they for the first time went in cahoots with uh, with the bankers and, and and the establishment and and destroyed that movement like the 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 history of and remember it doesn't matter the the the, the real ruling elite they don't care about a D or an R next to their name right no. they really don't care no. what they care about is are they as the ruling class. Are their interests being served? This is why you'll hear Dr. Fraud and I constantly on a refrain for class consciousness. Like, uh, and Dr. Fraud, I used to always say, I've only got one real enemy, a class enemy. And otherwise, you know, we just have to find ways to work together. But I've now changed that. I actually have two enemies now. I have my class enemy and I have 
it, members of my own class who have decided I'm going to break with the fascists. And it reminds me of the because think about how many working class people are now lining up for fascism. Uh, and those people are my enemy, too. Uh, it, now, now, folks who have not yet made a determination, folks who are still on the bubble, I want to work with them. But those working class people who were part of the January 6th insurrection, they're lost to us. I'm not trying to fool with them anymore. Right. Like, I think that we have to be clear that there is an understanding there. And I'm going to end with a, a, a quote from Ernest Hemingway in For Whom the Bell Tolls. He said, oh, you don't think there are many fascists in your country? Well, he said, there are many who do not know they are fascists yet, but they will when the time comes. Right. And I think this, yeah. this, this is where we are. We have to win people over. But some people have already decided that they are going to go in cahoots with the white nationalists, the ethno nationalists, the 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 the, the explicit misogynistic worldview that fascism represents. They have already made that determination. Yes, but there's a lot of people who have a deep sense of loss and we have to speak to them so they don't attribute it to uppity women and black people. Correct. It's simple. There's two classes in, in the United States with one in between. There are the employer class and the employee class. Most, the overwhelming number of Americans are employees. They're not employers. And they could side with us. And we could say to people, we understand your sense of loss. This is who robbed you. This is what you need to get your country back. So then this is but really there's a lot of people who are sympathetic because at the anger that is expressed by the fascists and by understanding that they have lost, they've lost the American dream. So this is really important because it's calculated and uh, David Cobb has isolated this this premeditation on behalf of Fox News and and Trump and Steve Bannon, they decided years ago to offer hypermasculinity, ethno-nationalism, order over chaos and religion in lieu of jobs and financial security. Right. And, in, in and that, is, that is right here and now. I'm sorry. In lieu of the dream right here and now. So they're getting people to vote their hatred instead of their own self-interests. And their interests in uniting with everyone else. Right. You know, and, you know, the, the left has got to unify and get that word out with the passion that we have, because... Uh, Trump did capture people's emotional turmoil. And what Trump and the fascists are offering in America is the same thing that Hitler yes. and Mussolini is offering. And that is if you're a white Christian male, you will reap the benefits of fascism. They, they won't call it fascism, but if you're... A, 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 a male and a, a agro aggressive male 
uh, and you're white, you we come be a shock troop with us. Yes, but they, you know, it's interesting. Hitler act, actually had to deliver. He invaded all those lands and gave the wealth to the people who followed him. He took the wealth from the Jews and the communists and he gave it to his people. Trump doesn't have to give them anything. All he has to do is express their frustration and their fury and find somebody to blame besides the corporations who've robbed them blind. Right. It's easier. It's easier. I've got to jump uh, because I have another commitment. And I am so sad because uh, this is the the conversation that has to take place. Dr. Fraud, I'm going to ask. Next Monday, like I'd lo- I have to look at my schedule because it, it may be the tribal council is coming up. But I'd like to actually uh, find a time where you and I come on and just split an hour together. Yeah. Right. Oh, and, or have the to hour that. together with each other. I think that's great. Yeah. Yeah. I'm all in. You know, yeah. I'm all in for Monday, the 1st of August. I, but, I don't know. I have to look at my schedule and I have to jump now. But this conversation like the, your insight about how to speak in the kind of language uh, the, of the therapist, uh, you know, clarity around that, about how to win people over. I feel like I have a really good Marxist analysis, but I feel like I need to hear from you more and more how to win that the bubble over. Right. Like, I right. think I, I think I, I'm a, I do a good job with people who already see it. And I think I've got a plan there. But I and I think others of us need more help about how can we talk in a way that will inspire people to break our side instead of the fascist. Right. And we have to offer them that we understand they've been robbed and these are who the robbers are. And it is fake news because, look. Murdoch owns the Wall Street Journal and the Post and Bezos and uh, the, the New York Post. Bezos owns the Washington Post and there's a corporate group that owns the Times. What are we talking about here? What information we are we getting? It's fake news. And we should pick up on a lot of the things he says that reach people because they're right. Anyway, bye bye. Before you go, bye, y'all. before you go, yes. David Cobb. I just the clarity you've offered tonight, watching the January 6 hearings and the the allure that fascism holds for the working class. It's important for me to just repeat what you've said today. What the Republicans are offering are hyper masculinity, ethno nationalism, order over chaos and faux religion. Same sex, you know, being against same sex marriage, being against abortion, the illusion of God. This is what the Republicans, the fascists in this country are offering the 99 percent of us in lieu of financial security, in lieu of jobs and freedom. Living, Yeah. And it's as old as Mussolini and before that, correct? Yeah. Correct. Correct. We have to Again, repeat. I've got to jump. Jump. But this okay, has, so thank jump. you. Are y'all. Hope to see you next week. Thank you. Great job. The, the, the intellectual clarity that he offered, we just have to hammer this over and over again. 
that uh, because we are on the precipice, it sure feels like, you know, if you're a white man, you the culture, you can be tricked into believing that the the culture is persecuting you. That's right. And you have to fight back and affirm your superiority to them. And it's a zero sum game. If women are getting ahead, you're not. I'm falling behind. And, you know, the irony is women, women's salaries have increased in relation to men's. But that's because men's salaries are flattened. Not because we've really gotten anywhere. It's because they're losing. Right. And they're also losing their marriages and their families. So that there's tremendous loss. And that's what the fascists are capturing, that sense of loss and wanting to return what has been robbed by returning women's subservience, which was, by the way, based on a family wage that whites are no longer going to get. Right. And the, the system of control in place is we will pay lip service to wokeness by giving women a job, but we take a job away from a white man. So he feels emasculated, emasculated. And look, they they give women jobs in the service sector. The manufacturing jobs are gone overseas, robotized, computerized and uh, exported. And who did that? Who? It's just like with this whole inflation thing. Supply chains. Fuck that. Who sets the price? The people who own stuff set the price. The people who are at the stores set the price. The people who are selling set the price. It's not a mystery. And why are there supply chains? Why don't people pay to have some extra supplies? This is crap. Right. The inflation is price gouging because they didn't make as much money during the uh, pandemic. They're making it back now. That's why oil companies made a hundred billion. And Biden is not saying saying there will be an excess profits tax, right? On the oil companies and the armament companies that have done so splendidly during the pandemic. Great. You know? Well, Dr. Harriet Fraud is a psychotherapist who filters our personal lives through the prism of capitalism and uh, as well as our families and personal experiences. But uh, you're not immune. Your your psychological state is not immune from the economic system. Absolutely not. Yeah. And on Capitalism Hits Home, which is a, a podcast of mine, and with Liam Tate and Ekoi Hero, the podcast, it's not just in your head or on my radio program, interpersonal update on BAI. That's what I try to do. You know, if you're depressed, it's not just that you made bad choices in your life, honey. The place is falling apart. Right. And you have to do something about it to restore your sense of purpose and dignity. Right. Yeah. Next week, we'll talk about what we can do. You, you touched on it. Uh, it's one thing to identify the cause of the problems and that the problems exist. But how do we cope with all this stuff? We'll we'll revisit that 
next week. Thank you so much, Dr. Harriet Fratt. How do people contact you? Either they could, if they want to read my stuff, they go to harrietfraud.com, look it up on the internet. If they want to reach me directly, they go to hfraud, that's H-F-R-A-A-D, at gmail.com. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. We love you. This is an exciting time. It is. On your show. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We love you. Thank you so much. You too. Bye-bye. Well, Joining us now is Liam McEnany. He is a brilliant stand-up comedian, also host of Tell Your Friends, uh, the world's greatest podcast, I believe, right? Well, I haven't produced an episode in three and a half years, but... Uh, that's what makes it so great. That's what makes it a, one of the best podcasts in the world. What are the numbers like for this now? This podcast, is it going up or, or how, how's it doing? It's going up. It always goes up a little each year. And then we've added YouTube. It's growing. Okay. Yeah. Speaking of YouTube, uh, if you're watching on YouTube right now, you can um, send money to David through Super Chats or Super Stickers. You can send $1, $2, $5. Don't be shy. It adds uh, if you, up. If you send a Super Chat, your uh, message will be displayed on the screen that's right thank you for that chief running i'm really worried about you david are you why is that this cannot be making you any money and i i don't know what if you have the time to to host two eight hour podcasts a week hopefully you're not working a lot so like i don't want you living in my guest room in 10 yeah, years i'm counting my money This show is a labor of love. And we make, you know, we're trying, we're growing it. You know, we're growing. Nobody's cheaper than a leftist, David. I'm sorry? Nobody's cheaper than a leftist. They cannot be supporting you financially. Well, maybe they don't have the money to support me financially. That's why they're leftists. Maybe, maybe if we redistribute the wealth from the top down, Maybe or maybe if you redistribute your airtime and give like just a half hour to some crazy right wing guy, those are the ones. <laughs> the like someone from uh, what's the institute that the Koch brothers finance? Uh, Dave, you talking about Dave Rubin? <laughs> no, what, 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 what do you what 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 is the Koch? I didn't hear you. The Koch brothers finance who? Like a think tank. Oh, Cato, the Heritage Foundation, the American yeah, yeah, Enterprise yeah. Institute. The Daily Wire, Tucker Carlson. Why don't you just do a half hour of stand up at one of those that big conservative function they just had in Florida over the weekend? No turning points. Turning points. Big money there. Pay well. They do pay well. They do. They had Trump there. You know he's not going to appear for free. Yeah, but then, and you know what? I, I say, well, how would I sleep at night? I'm not sleeping now. I already have insomnia. No, so the I, IRS is calling you day and night. How can you sleep? <laughs> so I might as well take money from the Koch brothers. Yeah. You're absolutely yeah. right. I would sleep better on, on would, a thousand count cotton sheets. You'd be able to afford a bed spring in a frame. And sheets. 
and sheets, any sheets. You know what makes my bed soft? The bed bugs. That's what I, I, I need the bed bugs for the cushion. That's, <laughs> that's how bad things are. It's good to see you. So go on. So you have some money making ideas for me? Do you still do stand up? Well, I've kind of slowed down since COVID. Uh -huh. uh, I'm thinking of doing another live show. I, I was thinking of calling Cambry over at QED and uh -huh. doing a live podcast with you. How long are you in town for? Until uh, mid-August. Remember we did a live show at QED of the podcast? I remember uh, 10 people showed up. We didn't make money. We got a, I think we had more than 10 people. You know, now I'm going to USC film school. Oh, you are? You don't, hang on. You decided. Hang on. We have an announcement. Yeah. Liam McEnany is a college graduate, and he had two choices, two film schools that he was accepted to, and he's made a decision. He's going to make the announcement right now. Liam Maganini will be attending USC Film School in the fall. You are going to USC Film School. University of Southern California. And who are some of the graduates from that renowned institution? Ryan Coogler, who directed the, um, the I'm sorry, the auteur, who cineasts might remember his work in Marvel Comics, uh, Black Panther. Okay. Um, your buddy Judd Apatow, I think, dropped out of USC. Yeah. Steven Spielberg dropped out of USC film school. Imagine how successful Steven Spielberg and Judd Apatow would be right now <laughs> if they had just gotten that degree. And, and didn't Bill Gates drop out of Harvard? You know what? Actually, Spielberg got his degree in the mid 90s because he finally turned in a final project. You know what that final project was? E.T. Schindler's List. Did he really? try? That's cheating. Yeah. <laughs> really? Yeah, really. In fact, instead of Dean's List, he made Schindler's List that year, which uh, and, and that was bad. What got him <laughs> That was I, a bad joke. I what got him the the degree was he actually screened it for them backwards so it had a happy ending. Or if you're my listeners, it has a happy ending the way it is. He's here, by the way. Did you ever hear Hitler's indoor voice? That's his indoor voice. I like to think that that's your, the voice in your head that mm -hmm. talks to you all day. I just think that's like, I could see living in Nazi Germany during the 30s. You know what's crazy about Hitler? What? You read about what a great public speaker he was and how charismatic he was and how magnetic his personality was. And then he watched the news reels and he looks just fucking insane. He's like, bun, bun, do, bun, 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 bun. <laughs> who the fuck would listen to that guy in a street corner? I, I agree with you. Marshall McLuhan would would have told him 
radio is a cool medium. Tone it, dial it back. <laughs> You're, it's, I, think, I think Stella Adler would have told him yeah. to take it to the notch. Yeah. I guess you had to see him live. <laughs> That's what they say. That he was he, like um, like Gallagher. He was like, like Gallagher. In the room, it was a lot funnier. Yeah, they, they can't. He was lightning in the in a bottle only right. live, though, that you really couldn't capture. By the way, did you know that TV was invented by the Nazis, that it originally started in Nazi Germany? I know the pitch meeting was. <laughs> That's an inside baseball joke for us in showbiz. But the, if you look that up, the Nazis invented television. Wow. But they killed all the people to program it. So that was the, this is true. All the original TV shows were in Nazi Germany. The joke part was about them killing the Jews. As you have said many times, that's a myth. What's a myth? The Holocaust. Now, these are not my words. These are David <laughs> Feldman's words. That is not. Why would you? Feldman has said time and again. No, I don't. You know what? There was a time before Donald Trump was president. that. Um. I would sometimes play fast and loose because I was coming from a position of security. Uh, those days are over making jokes about being Jewish and the holiday. I don't trivialize any of that stuff. There's, it's, it's so not crazy now to think about how, like, in the 90s, everyone was so ironic about that. There was mm -hmm. Hebe magazine. A lot of Jews made like, you know, Conan was making Hitler jokes nightly at right. one point in the 90s. Right now, now that Trump was in office, it's really funny. Because <laughs> now we've seen it firsthand. We can get the jokes. The thing in my dotage, what I've learned as I've become a dotard is uh, we're never safe. And by we, I mean humans. You, you right. think, all right, women's liberation, the civil rights movement, uh, the the, uh, the state of Israel will keep nothing. No, it's constant vigilance. You're always under threat there. There are bad True. people always trying to make you unhappy, especially you. I would say you might even be like close to a baby boomer than Gen X. Me, I'm a baby boomer. Like, you grew up with that idea like you would hear eternal vigilance is the price of freedom and you would laugh because it just sounded so right wing and conservative. But the older you get, the more you realize that's 100 percent the truth, even if the way people used it wasn't necessarily. Uh, but, you know, like you're talking about hate crimes going up and Roe v. Wade being overturned. Uh, but I think the worst thing that happened is I had one good barber in New York and now he's flipping houses in Long Island. I can't get a haircut in this town anymore. He's giving his customers a haircut instead. That's right. Not only a haircut, the whole fucking trim. He, he's flipping houses? Less of a barber and more of a moil. You know <laughs> he's flipping houses? Flipping houses in Long Island now. That's a bad yeah. sign. That's when you know the economy's about to collapse. There's yeah, a famous story about Joe Kennedy. He huh. knew he knew to get out of the stock market when his shoeshine guy gave him a stock tip. Yeah, I mean, the equivalent of that would be 
a couple of years ago when all those Reddit guys got rich off AMC. Right. Right. Um, no, I've got all my stock invested in Amazon now. Well, that's right. You torture me. I appreciate that. Right. You torture me by investing in evil. You bought ExxonMobil a couple of years ago. Well, you know what? You and my mom both gave me a talking to about that. And I reconsidered and I got out of ExxonMobil and into renewable energy. I did really well with it. I made a bunch of money. Mm -hmm. I decided to invest in the stock market again. And uh, I think Amazon's I think the thing I like about it is it's a fascist investment. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like um, I feel like the thing is. American business, what's holding it back is too many bathroom breaks. Right. I feel I feel like I want to invest in a business. And, you know, having people, I won't even make, I was going to. No, you can make jokes. Nah, you know what? I'm reading. Well, you used to do. No, I, you know, what pisses me off is concert tickets for Bruce Springsteen are selling at what, $5,000? And um, they were not sale yet. They're on sale in four more days. For five thousand dollars, and he can't seem to make it to out to Staten Island to support Christian Smalls. Where, where? Who? Christian Smalls from the Amazon Labor Union. Uh -huh. Bruce Springsteen writes all these albums, "The Ghost of Tom Joad," about the plight right. of the working man, and he can't seem to get it together to support the Amazon Labor Union or Starbucks. Why is it his job to support every labor union? Like, why is it his job to go to Staten Island and make a personal appearance there? Because the labor movement has to include artists, successful artists. And now, has, has this Smalls guy invited Springsteen and Springsteen said no? What would or happen if they gave a or is this just something you decided Springsteen should know to do? Yes. Yes. I, de I decided. Him. Yes. I decided <laughs> that Bruce Springsteen should know. Right. So. Right. So you wrong. think Springsteen sits at home in Red Bank, New Jersey at the age of 74, uh, writing songs all day and then reading about Staten Island's local labor scene at night? Don't you think that would make him happy to go support Christian Smalls? Don't you think that would enhance his song? Dude, I have I have way less to do in my life than Bruce Springsteen does. And I didn't know who the fuck Christian Smalls was either. Well, I, I, I think in order for us to affect change, these so-called um, cultural heroes should right? help. They should step up um, and support labor. Um, okay, they talk so, a big game. They talk a big game when it's the actor strike, uh, when it's the writers who are on strike in Hollywood, labor, labor, labor. But where are they when it comes time to organizing the the people who distribute your product? I mean, how many albums are sold by Amazon? Here's the thing. Eric Anderson has time to go support From Jethro Tull and Smalls. No, Eric Anderson, the folk singer from Greenwich Village. I'm thinking of Ian Anderson. I'm thinking of Ian Anderson. Your readers, your listeners know who Eric Anderson is. Most of them stopped. From what I understand, Ian Anderson from Jethro Tull turned out to be a capitalist. Like he 
owns salmon fa- farms and either What's wrong with that? nothing, nothing, nothing's wrong with that as long as it's sustainable and he treats his employees well in their union. Nothing. Aren't you going out to Staten Island and supporting Christian Smalls? You're right. You're you're right. So you're out. Where are you now? You know what? Get get Triumph to go out and do a segment with Christian Smalls. I met Christian Smalls through Triumph the Encelcomic Dog. Really? Yep. If you look at Let's Make a Poop, the game show that Triumph hosted. Um, I would the, never watch that, but go the ahead. The contestant was Christian Smalls right after he got fired by okay. Jeff Bezos. So, so there. I never would have known who Christian Smalls was had it not been for ex-con Triumph the Itzel comic dog. By the way, I, didn't, I, I haven't talked to you since then. Congratulations on getting sprung. Yes. That's, uh, that's fantastic. I Although I was kind of hoping you and Josh Comers would share a cell for the next 20 years. We did. We actually, in all serious, Josh Comer's great, great comedy writer. Great comedy writer, great joke writer. I've always said that. Yep. And so they they literally frog marched me into a cell with him and somebody else. And I said, for the next couple of years, you and me are going to be husband and wife. Now get on over here and start sucking your wife. I did that joke. Did you? Uh, did you- he did not laugh. And then when he didn't laugh, I started having a panic attack. Did you then uh, take off your belt and make him hold one end and lead him around the cell with it? We did some things. It's not, I, I've lost my sense of humor about prison and the way we treat. It's. Uh, do you realize what's going on in Rikers Island? Yes, it is anarch, literally anarchy in there. It is. It is a Dickensian insane asylum. Uh-huh. where inmates are being killed, what, once a month we read about an inmate being killed? Didn't some guy film a uh, like a pseudo-documentary inside Rikers? I don't know, but you should do a film about... Are, are you at USC? Will you be become a documentarian? I actually am going to do a documentary, and it's a very interesting idea. But I don't want to talk about it publicly until I get all my ducks in a row. Oh, so it it's, a, it's good, a documentary. It's, it's a doc- literally such a good idea. Someone might steal it from me. So I have to like um, I have to be very, very careful about even revealing any more than that right now until I can make my contacts and get get people on board with it. And this is uh, the labor struggle from Jeff Bezos's perspective like we always know i want to i want to make something someone will watch so it's not going to be a labor struggle well what about just try to imagine a documentary about rikers island why don't we try to gain access to rikers island and and see what's halfway there Film another one of your skits inside the U.S. Capitol building and I'll have a man on the inside. I think if Americans knew the current state of our jails and prisons, they would not be happy. 
You know, David, they know and they don't care. They don't not only do they not care, but they consider all the horrible shit that goes inside to be part of the natural punishment that these guys deserve. Right. It is a punitive criminal justice system. It's about issuing punishment, not rehabilitating. They arrested several Congress people outside the Supreme Court. I think it was uh -huh. a week ago. And it's all performative, like AOC and Elon Omar. They weren't arrested. They weren't put in a, as they say, paddy wagon. They were escorted away from the press to a hill uh, where they were photographed. They said, you need to uh, let us take a picture of you with your driver's license. And now they have a $50 fine right. that they have to pay. That's not being arrested. The Capitol Police don't want Congress people to see their jail because... They would be appalled if, if it when 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 Congress fakes getting arrested, they never see the inside of the Capitol Police jail. If they you did, have. I have. What's it like in there? Uh, I will talk about it when I can. Are you still not able to talk yeah, about it? I, I don't want to push it, but I thought the charges were dropped. Well, I don't want to get into it, but okay. uh, people people should visit their local jail and see what it's like. Were you, you know, in the cell with uh, Nikki Green? Who's Nikki Green? <laughs> She's one of the crew that worked on your segments. Jesus. Dude. I'm a man of the people. Fucking horrible. So you're, you're like yakking about labor. You don't even know your crew members. <laughs> I know I know Nikki Green. You don't know Nikki Green. That's pathetic. I don't know people's names. Oh, David. What does Nikki Green do? What does Christian Smalls do? You don't care. Maybe a Bruce Springsteen should do a benefit concert for Nikki. Pay her legal fees. Does she do props? Yeah. I know. Yeah. Brilliant. She uh she's worked with my sister. My sister is uh, stagehand with local one. Oh. See, David, that's why I'm going to excel in the business because I take the time to get to know everybody on the crew, not just uh, above the line talent. I arrive on a set and I look around and uh -huh. I just I just gravitate to the people who have power, money and influence. Is that wrong? Right. You see a suit and you just fucking drop to your knees. I get it. Yeah. Is that wrong? No, it's why my Amazon stock is going to fucking set me up for retirement. You should make a vow now that you're going to USC uh, that you will not, that you're going to be a social climber. Remember Alex? Alex Brazil. Yes. I ran into him. I ran into him at the screening for Louis C.K.'s movie. Louis has a uh, he whipped he, out a new movie. <laughs> He made a movie with my buddy Joe List. They wrote it together. Is it, and, and is it exposed somewhere now? Uh, well, it was in theaters. But they, uh, what happened was <laughs> you went in to watch another movie. They barred the door when they went to. <laughs> wow. So he's unleashed a new movie. He has unleashed 
you know what? I'm very proud of my friend, Joe. Yeah. I think he was great in this movie. And I think he's got a real future as a writer. Good. And, and you saw Alex. Alex was sitting in the row in front of me. You know what I said to Alex before COVID? It was a little bit awkward. I just want to say this. It was a little bit awkward because Alex promised to read a screenplay I wrote a year ago. And he still hasn't read it. And I think I think it was like something between us. Right. Before COVID hit, I said to uh-huh. Alex, I want to be a social climber. I, I just want to spend a year in New York. This was before COVID, where I I just only focus on people who are rich and powerful and try to insinuate myself into their lives. Uh-huh. And he said, nobody there wants you. <laughs> and that's your manager. Yeah. He said, rich and powerful people don't want to be around you. You're, you're depressing. I went, all right, then I'll just go back to being a man of the people. It's because uh, you'll meet a guy like Springsteen and you'll be like, but why aren't you in South Dakota talking about the pipeline? Well, he should be. Bruce is like, look, I set up info about food banks everywhere I go and I make millions for them. I can't do everything. That's true. That's true. Bruce is about poverty, but you know what? The but thing char- is- here's the thing about charity. Okay. And food banks, which is great. Um, but the, the, the real way to help people is through uh-huh. labor, supporting labor, because that's political power. Food banks are great, but food banks don't politicize the masses. Labor does. It's uh-huh. important to give to food banks, Bruce, but they don't animate the populace to vote against Amazon. Here's the thing about Bruce Springsteen, and this is the unfortunate truth about his position, is he is so massively famous now and such a revered and beloved figure in the American canon that he can't just go places and do stuff like that. Like, he's not Phil Oaks. Bernie Bernie shows up? Yeah, but he doesn't shit about Bernie anymore. Bernie's like six years ago. Bruce just sold his cannon for half a billion dollars. Yeah. His T-shirt cannon. Not his, <laughs> not his work. If you had half a billion dollars and you're, how old is Bruce? 74, 75? Yeah. Don't you want to go after the bullies? Wouldn't you want to use your remaining? Also, huh? he's a man of the people, but his daughter is an Olympian equestrian. Right. Like he's rich. He's a rich man now. He's right. a rich old man. Right. So then he's not an artist. Can you be an artist and be a rich old man? His son works in a charity. His son's a firefighter. Well, he he used to work with the charity. I guess he's a firefighter now. Yeah. I I respect the shit out of that. I do, too. I thought Bruce did a great job with his son becoming a firefighter. I feel like I could be friends with his son because that just sounds like an amazingly decent way to grow up. Yeah, I, I feel my son could be friends with Bruce Springsteen's son because they could share what it's like living in the shadow of a uh, very strong and powerful father. Nobody wants your son around. Those, those rich and powerful don't want your son around. It's depressing. Um, 
here. My son has something he wants to say. <laughs> I've got him down to two packs of Marlboros a day. Well, you bad. are not bad for a 14 year old kid, huh? That's, that's discipline. Yeah, he was smoking three, and, uh, you know, he's not the kid I... I got several kids. That's not the one I care the, the most about. I think we have to wrap it up. We should, Now, are you going to be able to do the show more often? Uh, yeah, if you ask me. And, well, once a week. I love seeing you. I would say once a week works. Let me just take a look. Oh, I am just going to look at my calendar for a second. Mm hmm. Just see. Larson, you've Gary Larson calendar. The far side. Next Monday's my birthday. Oh, so I'm going to be I might be busy next Monday. OK, uh, well, we I if we don't need to do this right now. August 8th. Uh, there's something with Buffalo going on. Okay. I think I'm in Buffalo. Are you are you doing stamp? Do you want to uh, plug it? No, no, there's, no there's, there's Buffalo in this cartoon. I know. I, I just want to thank you for bringing this show to a stop. Thank you. Um, before we go, I want to remind everybody, or maybe you're learning for the first time, I'm doing a show at the Improv. Uh, in L.A. In, L in L.A. Mm -hmm. uh, in the small room in the lab not the main room. It's called come through. Right. Uh, we named it after David's relationship to his socks. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's a really good lineup. We got Chris Estrada. I'm sorry. Chris Estrada. Who's got, he's actually got a show coming out on, on Hulu this month or next month. Great. Called uh, Hey Fool. Great. And Jackie Cation. Oh, I love Jackie. Yeah, she doesn't talk to you anymore. A um, whole bunch of people who don't want to talk. Stephanie Streisand, Sarah Fish, Kazim Rahman, who I think is the future of comedy. Mm -hmm. You should all look up Kazim. I think he's going to be big one day. Okay. Uh, a bunch of really great comics like that. I will know the lineup next time I do the show. Um. And that's it. So come out September uh, September twentieth, seven thirty p.m. at the Improv, eighty one sixty two Melrose Avenue in Hollywood. Maybe John Hayes will come out again. Oh, John Hayes has already announced in the chat that he will be there. But I want you all to come anyway because it's going to be a good time. <laughs> you don't have to talk to John if you don't want to. Okay. Now John came to my last show at the Improv, which was uh, two days before the entire world shut down. I remember that. So uh, it's going to be it's going to be that good. Here he is. I have audio of John Hayes watching you perform. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I got to go. Yeah. I got to watch the Foresight Saga. Ah, the original? The original 1967. Hmm. Um, with nobody you've ever heard of. Yes, it is. There is somebody I've, I forgot. Cumber, Cumberbatch Benderdick. 
No, you're talking, you're thinking about the remake. This is the 1967 version. Yeah, with Cumberbatch Bender Dick. No. All right. You're talking about Benedict Cumberbatch, a.k.a. Dr. Strange. Okay. Uh, that would be a good name for a gynecologist, Dr. Strange. <laughs> what is it? Dr. Strange. He used to have a big crush on a woman whose last name was Strange. Yeah. Yeah, but she did not reciprocate. You, you broke up. You said, I'm in the mood for some... Okay, Goodbye. This, we're in the, this is get, this is for later in the show. Thank you. Yeah. Back to calling people Hitler. Have a great day. Okay. I'll see you Bye. next week. Bye-bye. You're listening to the David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. When we come back, I hope he's still here and he wasn't appalled by that. When we come back, Peter B. Collins will be joining us. I started the civil rights movement, David, giving basketball to the blacks. Okay, I'm not really sure that's true. Mr. I gave Fred. them basketball and rap. You rap. Are you familiar with Sugar Hill, David? The Sugar Hill people, the gang, the Sugar Hill gang. Of course, Anglewood, New Jersey, the Sugar Hill gang invented rap. David, not even close, David. I invented rap. I gave the blacks basketball and I didn't just give them rap. I invented it, David. You invented rap. The freestyle stuff, you know. David, Wonder you Mike, Master G, Big Bank, Hank, they used to do work for my father and they saw me sitting in the office and there was a nephew on my mom's side who worked for us and he, he was slow, David. Hmm. Can you say that word now, slow? I think you can say slow. Well, yeah. let's just say he had a bad stutter and a stammer. He had a stutter and a stammer. You couldn't mm -hmm. understand what the hell he was saying. His name was Lonnie. So naturally, I called him Lilani because he had a stutter. So instead of calling him Lonnie like boring people would, I called him Lilani. It's a nickname, David. Okay, I don't understand what this has to do with you inventing I rap. I gave rap to the blacks, David. Okay, you told me that. I, I don't invented understand. rap, David, and I gave it to the blacks. I'd go, l -l 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 Lanny, and the blacks started making records. Go back and forth, one by one, two by two. I mean, scratch. Back and forth, they would go, wicka, 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 wicka. Scratching, yes. We used to scratching. call it, he's scratching. We used to call it Lillanying. Then the white man, the white man didn't like that, David. He made it his own and he changed it to scratching. But believe me, David, it was Lillanying. And it made my father smile, David. It Aww. made my father smile. My father rarely smiled. Great man, but I made him smile. I was the only one who could make my father smile by making fun of his wife's stuttering nephew, Lonnie. And that's how I invented rap, making fun of a stuttering and stammering nephew of my wife. Of your mother, a little Freudian slip there. Of my mother, sorry. A Freudian, yeah. Yeah, same thing, same thing. Yeah. You know, wife, mother, daughter, all the same. 
Yes, I invented rap, David. I invented rap. I gave it to the blacks. That is ex-con Robert Smigel doing uh, Donald Trump. Joining us from the Bay Area is Bay Area Radio Hall of Famer, the great Peter B. Collins. I would love to talk about the January 6th hearings with you. Well, thank you, David. Um, But I would love to talk with you about uh, June 16th in Washington, D.C., the Smigel escapade. But I was tuned in when you talked to your friend Liam, and uh, I will not be obstreperous about it, uh, because if you're not ready, uh, I won't I won't press you. But I heard the charges were dropped and you don't have to say anything right now. Okay, I just want to mention a couple of things. Okay, the police have refused to release your name. And I went on a Google search today about the Smigel visit to the Capitol back in June, over a month ago now. They refused to release what? Hmm? What did they refuse to release? Your name. Well, that's they are Other than Robert Smigel, they are not naming any of the other people who were detained and uh, given overnight accommodations at taxpayer expense. So you have been ghosted out of this. When the story first broke, uh, Variety was the only place I can find with an article back in June. It was on the 20th, I think, uh, where they they cited Fox News as a source of the names of the nine people who were arrested on misdemeanor charges. And that I, I looked at, at 14 different articles, including those in the past week, uh, announcing that the charges had been dropped and the names are not listed anywhere. Uh, so this variety quote, and it's not clear whether it was from a text article at the Fox News website or from some video report. They don't uh, give the source, but uh, you're Ali Ali income free. You've been your record has been swept clean. I expunged it. I'm a very powerful. I I just don't think anybody cares about me enough. I think it's uh, well, I did get some. uh, Apparently, it did end up somewhere because I was being. Well, anyway. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I was being how should we call it? False equivalency. And uh, it, it, it wasn't. It was not pleasant. It was uh, pretty, honestly, it was uh, pretty scary. To, but David, to, you participated in a shameful and grotesque insult to the memory of those who died on January 6th, according to America's conscience, Tucker frickin' Carlson. Yeah. <laughs> uh have you, in all seriousness, have, have you ever spent a night in jail? No, yeah. and I had a press pass for the U.S. Capitol, so I, I never uh, <laughs> <laughs> that you did. <laughs> and and you don't have to say anything, but I know from what I've read that you were you and the Smigel crew were actually invited to be there. By people like Adam Schiff and Congresswoman Stephanie Murphy, who did a pretty good job right. at the hearing week. Uh, 
And, you know, maybe the, the permit ran out or the patients of the Capitol Police. Uh, but can you clarify one thing? Why were you locked up by the Capitol Police and not the Washington, D.C. police? Because I didn't think the Capitol Police had much of a lockup. I didn't think much of their lockup either. They, they, do, they do have a, a jail. They're, we've always heard about the jail that they have if, they, if Nancy Pelosi decides to arrest somebody, right? Because they do have that power to go and arrest somebody. And there's a jail rarely used, if ever, underneath the Capitol. Uh, they have another jail that is a holding uh, way station before you go to the Washington, D.C. jail. Mm-hmm. And you do not want to go to the Washington, D.C. jail. Yeah. That is a nightmare, as mm-hmm. is uh, the holding cell for the Capitol Police, which I don't think any of the our Congress people have ever seen. They should. Well, and you made a point in talking with Liam uh, that that arrest at the Supreme Court last week of uh, Jackie Spear, a California congresswoman who I have a lot of respect for, AOC and a handful of others, was a photo op. Uh, And uh, I they feigned the handcuffs. I remember looking at the video and I thought, why is Elon Omar being handcuffed, but not AOC? And then I realized they were pretending that they were being handcuffed from behind. AOC says, no, when you're arrested, you put your hands behind your back so as not to be a threat to the police officers. That was her excuse. But it was performative and it seemed. uh, Well, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, uh, I I just... uh you know, would like at some point to debrief you on this because I think it was a really interesting episode. Uh, it was comedy in a place that doesn't really lend itself to it. Uh, but, you know, I was outraged at the uh, the commentary and the coverage that followed it, and not just at Tucker Carlson. Uh, you know, people on Facebook were claiming that the Smigel crew had uh, you know, basically given the right a way to completely unravel the investigation into January 6th, as if this was somehow equivalent. And uh, so I, I think you deserve to be heard on this, uh, but I respect your... I'll tell you why I'm... I'll tell you why. When and where, okay. Yeah, I'll tell you why. Uh, I do not want... I was told not to stir up anything. uh, And I don't want to because uh, it's over. I want the dust to settle. I don't want to. uh, I don't ever want to get (laughs) arrested by the, the Capitol Hill police again. I never, ever want to go through that again. And if I, I, I will not say anything to uh, have anybody consider reopening the, the, the case. It was so when 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 the time is right, I will 
say things, but I, I wish our Congress people took a look at the jail and see how ordinary well, people. David, I'd also just like to strike a chord of empathy because you're a guy who never takes time off. You took time off for this little visit to Washington right. and then your mom. I know. You know, that's that's life dealing you uh, a couple of bad cards in a row. And I just want you to say that I, I want to say that, you know, I care about you as a person. Thank and you. I'm sorry that, uh, you know, those two uh, uh, failures to win the lottery <laughs> hit, hit you at the same time. Well, you know, getting arrested, I, I working for Triumph the Insult Comic Dog is a vacation and it wasn't work. It really isn't. I mean, I got to see people go on vacation to Washington, D.C. That is a vacation. I got to see Washington, D.C. I got to see a little too much of Washington, D.C., some would say. <laughs> but I in terms of being a tourist in Washington, D.C., I I can't complain. Uh, so well, I I'm in D.C. working at a radio station there. And what I discovered is that the theme park of Pennsylvania Avenue from the White House to the Capitol uh, fades pretty quickly when you get into southeast Washington, uh, when you move toward uh, Maryland, and even the Safeway store that's just two or three blocks off of Pennsylvania Avenue is a total dump. And uh, maybe they've fixed it, but I, when I was there, uh, and I was still living in California, but I was kind of trying out in Washington. And, you know, the Safeway stores in the white suburbs of California are, you know, like Harrods in London compared to the, the dump that Safeway mm -hmm. uh, uh, offers the impoverished residents of Washington, D.C. Right. So the, the, the two Americas are on display right there in the Capitol. And you don't have to go far uh, to, uh, you know, observe either one of them. Right. Well, let's talk about January 6th because... It, OK, but um, I, if, I'm sorry, but there's one thing I wanted to say while we're talking about late night TV shows. Yes. It's that Kerry Washington uh, subbed for Jimmy Kimmel last week, and she did something so cool. She brought on five or six SAG-AFTRA actors who were this much short of Great. meeting the qualifying amount for health insurance for a full year. And she gave them stupid things to do, and they did it perfectly. Fantastic. <laughs> but she used her clout, and she remembered when she was a struggling actor who didn't meet the minimum uh, income levels to qualify for the health insurance. And that happened to me a few times over the years. And it made me, when I served on the union board, very focused on maintaining the pension, maintaining the access to health care at the lowest possible income level. And when she did that, I, I was just floored. Uh, it was last week, uh, I think Wednesday or Thursday night. So, Kerry Washington, I, I never watched her TV show. I barely know who she is. But <laughs> that should be a a, a daily. Uh, that should be daily on the Kimmel show. 
mm-hmm. just yeah. giving somebody health care. Okay, so I've I've delayed you long enough, and I, I do want to thank Liam. I thought he did a great job. He, he must have known you for thirty five years. Yes, he's he's got your dirty laundry yes, all rolled does. up. Well, he, that's knows, because he runs a laundry mat in his spare time. Knows, but that triggered you. <laughs> so um, I would like to offer uh, my observation of what's missing from the January sixth committee hearings. Yes, this is not an indictment. It's just critical consumption of the show that's being put on. And it is a show. It's not a trial. Uh, we don't hear from, you know, the people who have different points of view about what happened, either in the effort to organize January 6th or the day itself. And yet, I think it's a very valuable exercise. I think it is doing what the uh, failed impeachments were unable to achieve because of the stone wall that was erected by the very same people who are being given purple hearts. Thank for- you. Thank you. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. Go ahead. You know, Thank you. To, to see people like Pat Cipollone, who, you know, I'll give him credit. He was, uh, you know, one of Trump's butt boys right along with Mike Pence obsequious, subservient, willing to lie at high volume for this guy. And it was Cipollone who uh, was a lead attorney in the first impeachment. And as I've argued before on this uh, August forum, David, uh, the failed impeachments broke the Constitution. The Republicans consciously said that the law doesn't matter. Trump is expedient to us to pack the court, to keep the corporate taxes and the wealthiest taxes as low as possible. And we don't care about anything else. And and Liam, in his cynical act, you know, served up the who cares about union organizing, who cares about the actual conditions in prison, because I've got mine and I'm, I've got a comfy sofa and a flat screen TV and a remote that mm-hmm. makes me more powerful than the idiot Americans who parade across these reality TV shows. And now that's the news as well. Right. <laughs> and, right. and so we, we have a situation where <clears throat> we have to be honest that uh, Cassidy Cha- Chambers, is her name? Uh, Cassidy. Uh, oh, come on. We'll just call her Hutchinson. Thank you. Cassidy Hutchinson uh, was this surprise witness. She was kind of out of sight and off of our radar because Trump was paying her lawyers. And it wasn't until Cassidy got lawyered up with some other counsel that she offered the commission uh, or the the committee uh, the testimony that she brought. And by outing Cipollone, by outing Mark Meadows, by quoting them, and let's be fair, if this was a court of law, her testimony is virtually all hearsay. But it's powerful hearsay. And it's fair to say that the same way that the Republicans used Benghazi and hearsay against Hillary Clinton, and I've been over that before, 
I'm not a Hillary fan, but she was over a barrel there because everybody in that committee knew that she couldn't answer the questions because the CIA wouldn't let her about what was really going on in Benghazi, the weapons depot that was shipping Libyan arms to the war in Syria. So this is somewhat of, of a, you know, a flip side of Benghazi, where the Democrats are using the same power of the majority to present a managed narrative. But it is succeeding in breaking down some of the stonewalling that occurred. And I give them credit because, you know, I'm old enough that I watched every minute of the Nixon Watergate hearings. They were boring. Okay. Right. Uh, still effective, but it was a time where we had longer attention spans. There weren't 700 channels. We didn't have Netflix or Fox News or any of that. And there really was a constitutional crisis that drew Americans to be glued to the screen. But the committee has properly recognized the way people use media, the limited attention spans that we have, and they are presenting a uh, a condensed version of the narrative. So what I want to point out is some of the things that they're not touching on, and I'm not sure why. So they've talked only a little about the funding and the planning of Trump's rally in the ellipse and the secret plan to march from there to the Capitol. Well, Alex Jones has not surfaced, to my knowledge, in the public hearings of the January 6th committee. And he was central to the planning and in particular the funding. Now, the uh, was it the Times or the Post? Okay, one of them in recent days uh, has a story running about Alex Jones and the radio network that carried his program called Genesis Communications. And I filled in for people who had shows on Genesis, and it's always really weird because they run all these commercials for vitamins and supplements, and that's how they make their money. And that was the uh, origin of Alex Jones' revenue stream for his crazy radio show. And Alex Jones raised somewhere between five and $600,000 specifically for January 6th from a right-wing American heiress who lives in Italy. And I, I haven't, I didn't take the time to find her name, but it's not really significant. Uh, but that aspect of it, I think is really critical to show the mindset of the players who Trump turned to to try to organize this mob rally. One of the other things that I don't think has been given prominent uh, uh, coverage, and I will begrudgingly give credit to Doug Jones, the swamp dog senator from Alabama, who only got in because he ran against Roy Moore, the biblical pedophile. Mm -hmm. uh, but he was on CNN recently, and he made the point that I've been screaming at my TV for months now, and that is that Trump groomed his mob rallies for just an event like January 6th. And that's why he put up such a struggle 
when his Secret Service agents wouldn't allow him to go to the Capitol. He wanted to lead that mob, and he knew what they were capable of. He'd already been briefed that, uh, well, you know, the medical metal detectors here are a problem because all your fans are armed, Don. <laughs> and so that whole context, <clears throat> I think, has been missing from the, the long-term development of Trump's control over mobs and his skill at whipping them up at his command. And with that plexiglass screen, the bulletproof screen at the ellipse on January 6th, plus the fact that his armed fans couldn't get into the mosh pit right in front of him, uh, he felt disconnected, like, you know, his puppet strings were uh, knotted up. <laughs> right. And so I, I think that that is an important factor in the uh, psychology of incitement that Trump employed. And I think it is critical, and perhaps if Merrick Garland ever gets around to indicting people over January 6th beyond failure to appear, uh, that this is something that we, we need to examine. Because if, in fact, this committee is designed to prevent this from ever happening again, that kind of psychological manipulation and incitement is a central piece of this. I haven't heard the committee talk about it. One of the characters who is missing from the idiot lawyers is Lynn Wood. Mm -hmm. Lynn is an Atlanta-based lawyer who was arguably crazier than Giuliani and Sidney Powell combined. <laughs> and he may show up in the uh, Fonnie Willis grand jury that will lead, presumably, to indictments and trials uh, in the, the Georgia conspiracy. But the committee has not mentioned him at all. And none of the, you know, when Cipollone and uh, uh, the Hirschman, the other lawyers, gave their testimony they talked about Powell, they talked about Giuliani, but they never mentioned Lynn Wood. And he had a, a real tentacle into the QAnon movement. And QAnon has not shown up in any overt way in the testimony or evidence presented so far uh, by the committee. Next, there's a character who goes back to Alabama and the Doug Jones Swamp. And his name is Ali Akbar Alexander. He has uh, roots from India. He is a, uh, a pretty aggressive uh, in the, uh, the footsteps of Roger Stone, uh, political operative and provocateur. He was central to the planning. I believe that he conspired with Alex Jones and Akbar has a history. Uh, go ahead and Google him. And my old buddy, Roger Schuler, who is a blogger who has helped expose that swamp in Alabama, going back to the conviction of Don Siegelman, the former Democratic governor. Uh, he has written uh, pretty extensively exposing what uh, Ali Akbar Alexander has been up to. 
So uh, his omission is something I can't explain. Then we have the repeated references to the mob going after Mike Pence. That's real. And that is, is certainly very central to all this. There hasn't been much coverage of how small his security detail was on January 6th. And it's pretty easy to infer or to uh, uh, extend the scenario to see that Trump wanted Pence to be in, you know, grabbed by the crowd and whatever happened would happen. And so this is a piece that uh, I think is pretty critical because we know that Trump didn't call Pence. We know that Trump tweeted about him, hoping the mob would do something to him. And all that is very relevant. But this mob was after Nancy Pelosi, too. And they were after AOC. And they had, you know, their own laundry list of Democrats who they wanted to bring to justice on January 6th. And so by uh, narrowing the focus of the committee only to Pence as a target, I think we do a disservice to uh, the public and to the historical record uh, that, that this mob was not just going after Mike Pence. Now, if the goal is to indict and convict Trump, then I understand narrowing the focus. Mm -hmm. But if trying to uh, create a more complete public record, um, then uh, I object to that. So just two more. <clears throat> One is that uh, I think anybody who pays attention to the timeline knows that Trump's perfect phone call to Atlanta where he spent an hour trying to convince Brad Raffensperger to find 11,000 votes, occurred on January 3rd. And I think a lot of people don't have that timeline nailed down. And they think, oh, maybe it happened back, you know, in December. Uh, but it shows just how desperate Trump was. That three days before the official certification, he thought that somehow he could persuade or muscle Georgia into changing its thrice audited, fully certified electoral college tally. And again, I think that that is important context for the desperation that led Trump to abandon firing the interim attorney general. And it was after that, that avenue was cut off for him that he tweeted about January 6th, but it was a full two weeks later that he, he made that uh, criminal call to Atlanta. So I, I realize that some of this is um, being picky, you know, about fine tuning the presentation, but I, I just offer this because it, it really, I think is important for people to absorb this in a critical way understand that it's not justice being uh, uh, doled out here. It is a form of trying to get to full disclosure. And on that basis, uh, I, I support what they have been doing. Uh, I don't think Benny Thompson is the most articulate front man for this. And uh, 
Liz Cheney, I, I have to, like any other progressive, say I don't support any of her politics. But she doesn't even have a law degree. And she is operating with the confidence and the skill of an attorney, you know, who's been practicing for 20 years. And when you see her without any equivocation, nail Trump, uh, question witnesses in a very direct way and stand for what every Republican should stand for, which is simply we live under a constitution and Trump tried to trash it. And even Liz Cheney, who voted 94% with Trump until the break, uh, even she is willing to stand up when so many others are not. And one can imagine that someday we'll have a purge. <laughs> and Liz Cheney is somebody we're going to have to deal with because right. she will survive this. I, I don't think she's going to win her primary. I think she might run as an independent in November and she might win uh, in Wyoming. But regardless of that, she has a national profile. And if there is a candidate, it could be DeSantis, who's willing to take Trump on a DeSantis Cheney ticket could eviscerate Donald Trump. It will not end Trumpism. We're going to be stuck with that for a long, long time. But uh, but who is that? Who is that a bigger problem for the Democrats or the Republicans? In other words, if DeSantis gets the nomination, it's going to be Trumpism will be his problem more than it will be the Democratic Party's problem, right? Well, unfortunately, I don't think the Democratic Party is going to be in a position of power uh, for the foreseeable future. And I hope that they will use their time in the uh, in the woodshed to rebuild a much more progressive party. I want to give a shout out to Bernie, who issued a very strong statement today regarding the chip uh, industry bailout bill. Mm hmm. Uh, I, I appreciate that he is still fighting and still uh, standing up. But uh, we need a new generation of, of leadership on the left, and it's going to be ugly to get there. Right. I'm going to bring Professor Marianne Cummings in. Please. She is a particle physicist as well as our only, only government official. She is a parks commissioner for Aurora, Illinois. Do you think it's possible that Lynn Wood, uh, some of these uh, Alex Jones, some some of these witnesses who we haven't heard about? Do you think it's kind of like the Benghazi situation that you spoke about earlier, where Merrick Garland is already working with Alex Jones and Lynn Wood and they're afraid of jeopardizing whatever information yeah do, doing the uh you know sort of um repeating the the mistake with oliver north that kind of thing the you immunity know, yeah. right that's right you have that's you know, that that's always a problem because explain you know, that please explain that please well i think that there was you know there was there there was uh lawrence walsh was right. what did they call them was it the independent council or the special Prosecutor, I can't remember what his title was. 
Well, they were independent counsel until that law ran out right. um, around 98. Yeah. And, you know, he so he was investigating and he was doing a methodical investigation. And then there were these hearings uh, that and I think that uh, Oliver North, for some reason, and these are a bunch of lawyers who ought to know better. Right. To first order, all of the senators are lawyers. And uh, he was able to get immunized testimony and he ended up not giving him anything. You know, the Saturday Night Live kind of parodied him, you know, that was Bill Shatner played Oliver North, the uh, the ballad of the mute Marine. He wants to talk. He cannot speak. His case is his will is strong. His case is weak. I can't right. remember, but it was but hilarious. I think, I think Oliver North was convicted, but then the case was thrown out because well, yeah, it was based because on immunized testimony. Right. That's what I'm saying yeah. is that, you know, they kind of tripped up the uh, the special prosecutor, special prosecutor, no, the independent counsel uh, mm-hmm. investigation into that. And so, and of course there's two very different things. Now, you know, there has been indictments. I mean, there's been like well over 800 people arrested. There's like 185 people have been, have been sentenced there's people in jail now, you know, they're just systematically going. I think the the Justice Department has a systematic way of going about their uh, their investigations. And the uh, House hearings are, you know, quite frankly, this is a political show. I mean, which is fair. I mean, the whole Clinton nonsense, there might have been a little something to travel gate, but you know, Whitewater was a fishing expedition. Filegate was nothing. And Monica Gate was just, you know, a, so sort of a, you know, it it was just kind of like who, what was the uh, magazine at the time? Hot Topic or something. It was just basically we were doing an Oprah Winfrey show back when she was down there with Maury Povich. Hmm. <laughs> uh, it was a movie play. Yeah. So, but okay, it was all, it was obvious. Oh, right. He lied under oath, but the whole thing was like a perjury. I mean, the whole thing, the whole Ken Starr's uh, whole investigation was just one political show. So, you know, um, that's, so I don't blame the Democrats for taking advantage. I don't think it's moving the needle much, you know, at all. And, uh, but they are. They're, they're saying they're, they're saying that it is. Some people are saying that it's well, good for the Democrats. There's some people abortion. saying it, it, it's not reflected in in the polling. I think that the needle did move a little bit with the uh, with the Supreme Court ruling overturning a Roe v. Wade, and that there are there is a motivated group of of people for whom that's an issue. And that was, I thought, a gift to the Democrats. That's why I was I was wondering it had leaked. And then I was kind of wondering if they'd actually do it, if they'd actually like announce it, at least before the election, because I thought, well, that would be the one thing that didn't dig the Democrats out of their hole was uh, to, you know, activate their core. So their core constituency with something like this. Right. And, you know, yet the Democrats have just seemed to be so lackadaisical in the response. Like their people are screaming there for them to do something because, you know, they're the Democrats strategy is just to rely on Republican awfulness so they don't have to do anything. And somehow that will save them 
in this this election cycle. Um, I don't know as a strategy that will work, especially when mo- for most people it's still inflation and the economic issues, and and the fact that we've got a homeless tent city just about five blocks from me that is continuing to grow. I mean, there's just a you know, people in D.C. are all wrapped up because they don't have these concerns. You know, inflation to them is an annoyance at best for people. It really is a matter of like being able to pay all the bills or not. And, you know, they just they really don't seem to be moving on it. And then they all go on recess for August. And then we come back in September and it's going to be, you know, uh, election time. I, I don't know. It's It seems that it, it's kind of fun. There are things that they're definitely not addressing. <laughs> I mean, um, they talk about the meeting with the Proud Boys, the Trump or Trump's people meeting with the Proud Boys. Um, the chairman of the Proud Boys at the time had been a, was under arrest. I don't think he's chairman anymore. That would be in Ch- Enrique Terrio. Yeah. And I remember last year that it came out in, in Warriors that he had been for several years an informant for the FBI. Of course, it was, I was kind of amused because in the article, the FBI spokesman, well, we don't want to use that word. We prefer to use the word cooperator. Remind me of the Jeff Goldblum character in Thor Ragnarok, but but if he was okay, so if he was, so if he was an informer for the FBI, the FBI must have known about January six. Well, you know, as I said, I think I mentioned on this podcast that you know I was really not. I, I mean, I really think, and I still largely do, is that this was a bit of allowed political performance because I've seen the Capitol Police when they are serious about uh, serious about security. I mean, just look at what they looked like during the Black Lives Matter protests. And you'll see that that seemed to be a very different organization than a couple months later. But nonetheless, the uh, FBI came out last summer with their own investigation and they uh, concluded um no, we we didn't see any evidence of, you know, serious planning for insurrection, which is the first time I went, OK, you guys, <laughs> why are you guys piping up right now? You know, so it made me kind of scratch my head, my think. And I still don't know. And nobody seems to know who this guy, John Sullivan, was, you know, for about a day he was celebrated on CNN. He and his video person went in and they were in with the crowds. They were there was about 30 or 40 people outside of Mike Pence's office. You know, they had sort of the glass doors. It was like like a foyer. And this guy, John Sullivan, gets up and he starts riling the crowd. He starts whipping them up and saying, like, you know, this is ours. This this we can go take over this right now. And then um, I was watching this uh, on Cater Helper's show, and then she stopped it because right after the glass was broken, the security guy stood up and just shot, fired one shot that hit that woman, and everybody scattered apparently. But nonetheless, you got to wonder where is this guy? The, the Utah BL, he claimed he was B, Black Lives Matter. The Utah Black Lives Matter people are just saying, watch out for this guy. We don't trust him. You know, we we always thought there was something seriously off about this guy. He's been arrested. Well, yeah, I had to stop. The, 
in Utah, BLM stands for the Bureau of Land Management. (laughs) 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 But the other point is the FBI uh, retains the prerogative to investigate itself. And it always exonerates the FBI when the FBI investigates the FBI. (laughs) But there's, you know, we we really do need a full uh, disclosure, and we're not going to get it from this committee on you know, what role the FBI did play and, you know, where were their undercover operatives and which groups were they rolling with? How many of them had Boogaloo uh, clothes Mm -hmm. on? Do you think... You gotta wonder. So... You you just gotta wonder. There were, they say, I was quoting a report from the Brookings Institute at the top of the show, 10,000 people, they say, that might be inflated, showed up for the speech... Uh, on the ellipse, but 2000 stormed the Capitol. How organized a coup was this? It doesn't seem I'm not discounting it at all, No, but it doesn't seem like what, what was were they improvising with a were there some plans, but not what is your sense There was a meeting at the Willard Hotel the night before Roger Stone, Steve Bannon, uh, the the Proud Boys. But but how organized was it? My sense is there were several, several different types of people there. And there were people who had marched to the Capitol and they were outside and then they went out to lunch. They were posting, you know, like on Twitter you know, lunch after, you know, like the show of democracy or something like that. So there are obviously people who are just there, like there are always are at protests. Some people are just there because it's amusing and fun and, you know, they're, they're not really serious. But So somebody uh, like Ginny Thomas, it looks like she may be subpoenaed. She helped orchestrate the Stop the Steal march. She didn't go into the Capitol. A lot of this stuff is... You know, a lot of politics, if you watch a convention, people get revved up and they scream, lock them up, lock, yeah. lock her up and fight, 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 fight like a sporting event. It feels <laughs> good. But in terms of actually marching on the Capitol, only two not only, but 2000 people did it, which suggests that they were. Was, I don't, I'm not discounting it. I'm just saying it didn't it doesn't feel like Trump masterminded a a brilliant strategy. Does well, Trump mastermind anything? <laughs> I mean, I, it, it's hard for me to I mean, he's he's got instincts. I think he can read a room and I think he loves the love of the crowd is what it is. Does he have you know, the ability to strategize and think ahead and, and have long time. No, I, I don't think so. I think this in his brain, he just thought in terms of the TV, you know, the show. Well, I, I would, I whatever would say, he wants to do going forward. Yeah. There, there were groups that were organized, the three percenters, the Proud Boys. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Oath they, Keepers. Yeah, they knew what they were doing. And I believe that was orchestrated. We haven't seen really enough evidence to really prove it in a tight way. 
you know, we have that video from the garage, the, the groups that met on the night of the 5th. Uh, but I, I do think that there was an underlying organized effort that Bannon and Giuliani and a handful of others, Mike Flynn, seemed to be pretty deeply involved. I think that they were operating uh, with some sort of deniability to Trump. And there was this, you know, wink and nod approach where they were trying to protect Trump from knowing too much. Uh, and also, I think they were trying to protect their their conspiracy from Trump screwing it up. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> yeah, there's always that. I think there was a level of organization to it. Uh, obviously, it didn't pan out the way Trump envisioned it. But he would well, probably say, well, it wasn't as organized. It, it certainly it wasn't as organized at what as what went on in Florida in 2000, you know, no. like the Brooks Brothers riots and all those kind of things. I mean, these were targeted things that seemed to be done by individuals who, you know, had a definite plan of action and they succeeded. Mm-hmm. It, so it doesn't, you know, it, it's not like a, a Fletcher Knebel novel, like seven days in May where, you know, who was in the movie, Burt Lancaster, I believe it, it nobody, maybe I'm wrong. It, it doesn't feel like Trump, Roger Stone, Steve Bannon were able to drag goon anybody of substance in in our government into this coup it was mostly uh people who didn't serve in the government giuliani but uh, i i think we have to look at what was the anticipated outcome and i think all trump wanted to do was stop the congressional session and i believe that he waited all afternoon because he was trying to run out the clock And he did not expect Mike Pence or anybody else to come back into session uh, and complete the task. And his goal was just to throw that monkey wrench into it. And the, you know, again, he doesn't think in in rational and uh, in linear ways like other people might. But all he wanted to do, he was so desperate. Remember, he, he had just uh, impaled himself criminally in the phone call to Atlanta. And he's really just, you know, doing anything he can to try to stop this. And all he wanted to do was prevent the certification. And he imagined that that would throw it to the House where the Republicans had 26 votes. And uh, so that was his his long shot. And. I agree, you know, that it wasn't terribly well organized, but it was organized enough. And if his limited goal was just to stop that session, uh, he did achieve that until whoever got to him at 417 made him release that tweeted video. Right. How spooked it, 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 Peter, it sounds like you were more spooked from Thursday's hearings than Professor Marianne Cummings. And more spooked by all this than you normally are? Well, yeah, um, because it's it's not going away. 
when you see Mastroani in Pennsylvania, who gets to pick his own secretary of state, when you see the Supreme Court accepting this case that would embrace this bizarre legal theory, theory that votes don't matter and a legislature can essentially decide for the people who elected them, not the same people's votes for president. And so I see systemic damage here. And yeah, I'm I'm very concerned slash despondent about uh you know how we how we recover from this. Right. We haven't recovered from the two thousand Bush coup. I mean, they've kind of marauded on the planet, just like took a wrecking ball to international law. They basically established the national security state, which Obama did nothing but expand. And the Congress expanded even under Trump, even as Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer were going on about what an existential threat to the country Trump was. They're passing the uh, expanded uh, what Patriot Act. They're expanding that unconstitutional national surveillance state crap. They've renewed, they've renewed it four times. Uh, you know, so it's like I get this feeling that all of this horrible stuff is going on. I mean, like we really don't the end of habeas corpus. Oh, yeah. And the next year in the NDA, Obama sort of made legal it, it was, of course, it was observed mostly in the breach rather than the practice, but it was technically illegal for the government to en- engage in propaganda on the pro- uh, on the population. Well, that was gone in 2013. So mm-hmm. it's like when I'm looking at, you know, what last Thursday, to me, this is just a bunch of political theater is this look at the hand over here and don't look at what's going on over, the, on over there, which, you know, is basically we've kind of dismantled. And then Democratic Party, I mean, I was backing a candidate for the state Senate who managed to buck the uh, machinations of a very corrupt Democratic Party here. But, you know, the uh, National Democratic Party are through APAC and others. are They're just crushing uh, uh, progressive challengers. They they're trying to unsee people like Cory Bush and Rashida Tlaib. And, well, you know, Edwards, uh was defeated in uh, Maryland at the same time that yeah. Democrats put money behind Dan Cox, the Trump guy. And they continue to play this very dangerous game of trying to pick a wacky uh, opponent and believing that there aren't enough wacky voters to elect that person. Right. And this is very dangerous. This is kryptonite, third rail, pick your movie metaphor. But are they really, I mean, let's remember that it was the phone call from from Bill Clinton to his old golfing buddy, Donald Trump, that that basically instigated Trump running for president. And yeah. both both sides, people who were there on either side of that phone call, acknowledged that happened. Yes. And then we have CNN and MSNBC just providing Trump basically media blackout on Bernie Sanders and, uh, you know, doing wall to wall coverage on one of Trump's rallies. That wasn't even as big as Bernie Sanders' biggest rallies. And, you know, uh, this Pied Piper strategy. So it's like, and Trump was a friend of the Clintons. He wasn't some casual political ally, whatever. He was a friend of theirs. 
They were at his wedding back in 2005. I mean, this is like they all know each other. Yep. Again, so I have to say, you know, it's like we just, you know, that this is a show that they're putting on for the peasants, and they're all there. It doesn't matter who's going to be in the White House. I mean, the same people win. The same people win and the same people lose. You know, there's some affluent white professionals who are liberals who might, you know, feel a little traumatized. You know, they they might feel better when somebody like Barack Obama is taking a wrecking ball to the Constitution rather than a mm-hmm. like Trump taking a wrecking ball to the Constitution. But in terms of what actually plays out, you know, what really changes? And of course, for both sides, the real threat was Bernie Sanders. Yep. Right. Bernie Sanders, far more potentially disruptive to everybody's little reindeer games than, you know, either side could be to each other. I mean, they just keep switching sides. And if the Republicans take the House and the Senate, who knows, they'll probably be so bad that, you know, like whatever lame candidate the Democrats come up with instead of Joe Biden, they might actually win in 2024. I mean, it keeps going back and forth. There is no permanent Republican majority like Newt Gingrich like to imagine because neither party ultimately delivers for the people that they get to vote for them. And so it just pings back and forth and back and forth. In the meantime, we're not dealing with climate change. I, I agree with that. But where I would differ is that um, th- there is a difference and it's marginal, but the Supreme Court and it's not just abortion, but the, you know, Miranda is is dead. Uh, the line between church and state has been further eroded uh, and it's fair to say that these are victories for the Republicans long game and packing the state houses, passing the pretextual uh, abortion laws. It has worked. And so Republicans are feeling that that they've gotten what they uh, they had hoped for. Paid for what it worked for. Yes. And paid for. Mm-hmm. Well, you know. It's not like the Democrats don't have money, too. I mean, they've, it, as I said, you know, um, I'm looking at all the, now that uh, Biden has maybe two months of having both House, having a Senate, a Democratic Senate, because they're often in, in August, he's got all these unfilled, like, judiciary slots right. that they, they started be. filling last year, but then they completely slacked on. Now, uh, in contrast, I remember like Chuck Schumer fast-tracking almost all of Donald Trump's judicial appointments, coming to a gentleman's agreement with Mitch McConnell. Mm-hmm. I mean, what's going on here? It's just... They're saying I, that there should be no August recess, and this is when they should be pushing through all these judicial appointments. Yes, if they cared. There shouldn't be any August recess, period. I mean, we've got some incredible crises is going on right now. And, you know, instead, I, you know, instead of seeing these guys get into action and cancel the August recess, uh, I get fun. I still get fundraising emails from these guys. I, I still get 
fundraising texts from these guys. It's just, uh, you know, I don't know. Are they that out of touch? I, I think it part of it, it is part of it. I don't think they have the gumption of a Bernie Sanders, you know, the kind of fight it takes to really take on power, even to win some marginal victories. So, um, Hey, somebody in the YouTube chat room, I won't give the name, Bruce wrote, Enrique Tarrio, the leader of yeah. the Proud Boys, his arrest was orchestrated to give him an excuse to not be there on the 6th, some are saying. That's kind of interesting. Some are saying. It was, he was also, um, in the same article I'd read that... Um, he had also organized, he'd been kind of upset about the Proud Boys, that they seemed to be very diffuse in their fo- and losing all their focus. He said he he was organizing within the Proud Boys, you know, like a a manly men brigade. I don't know what he called it, but, right. you know, guys who are serious, you know, it's because uh, Proud Boys were out. I mean, they were providing security for Black Lives Matter protests in some areas. I mean, it was just, you know, he just. It's getting out of hand. I mean, we've got gay guys who are like proud boys. Like what? <laughs> so he uh, so I thought that was kind of interesting that he had also had this like sort of elite brigade that he was uh, summoning to, you know, protect America's freedoms. Whatever. Well, the, the beer hall putch. What the hell is he thinking? The beer hall putch was He's a, a macro-American. Well, yeah. Enrico Terrio is Cuban and black, I believe. But being a but being a proud boy is a mental illness. So, you know, that uh, you can be a white nationalist and still be a Cuban and black person. Um, May I, uh, Marianne mentioned these fundraising texts that are flying around. So on Saturday, I got this. Is there anything we can say to convince you to contribute to Mark Kelly's reelection before midnight? This is the senator in Arizona. What if we told you that Trump is speaking in Arizona in the next week? Oh, yeah, that would do it. What if we said we were short of our mid-month fundraising goals? Mark needs you. Donate here. So I replied, well, there's one thing. If Senator Kelly can arrange, and you know he's a former astronaut, can arrange to put Joe Manchin on the International Space Station until the end of this term, I could see making a contribution. (laughs) So it took a day or two, but whoever it was wrote back, okay, I totally understand. (laughs) We really appreciate your support and we'll reach out when it's a better time for you. Enjoy the rest of your day. (laughs) Oh, that's nice. That's nice. Well... Uh, let me thank Peter. But that's great. Let me thank Peter B. Collins, Bay Area Radio, Radio Hall of Famer. Go to PeterBCollins.com for this man's interviews, his radio shows, his podcasts. And I, and I can't thank you enough, Peter B. Collins. Professor Marianne Cummings, before you go, what did you come here armed to talk about? Well, there were a couple things, but it did. Uh, but we don't really have time to discuss it. But it did occur to me because um, let's say there's an issue for which I have, quote, you know, stunk up the room quite a bit and I'm not letting go on the park district. And it's just basically a horrible decision that was made on a, on a, on a board that I recently was rotated off of, which would have not been made if I were there. Is this and, the lifeguard uh, issue? 
this is a lifeguard, but it was also just, you know, how they were opening up the aquatics and just the incredible inequity that was, you know, at least the way I saw it. And I realized that, uh, and people come up to apologize to me for not sticking up for me in public. I said, look, you know, my turn into She-Hulk, it's best to stay out of the blast radius, but nonetheless, it is hard. And I realized that Part of the problem that young people going into politics, young Democrats, you know, they're smart. They might want to make a career out of this. Um, It's harder to, you know, really be forceful on some issues if you're worried about a career. And I think that might be a little bit of a bias that, you know, the because let's face it, I think there's a lot of smart kids that have been interested in politics and they want to see a successful career path. Unfortunately, if you're really going to be a disruptor, your career path is not going to be um, straightforward and always successful. So um, I just want to, you know, talk to people about, you know, being willing to stand for an issue that you really believe in. And at least uh, as a start, Look at your position not as a stepping stone to something else. If you want to later on be successful in politics, run for another office, but start with thinking that maybe I'm going to be thrown off this board, you know, if if I stand my ground and actually do something. And that's hard to do. It's very hard to do because you want to be nice to people. You want it to be a collegial club. You want it to be fun and friendly. And uh, it's, you know, uh I'm kind of used to people being pissed off at me, but, you know, a lot of young people, that's very traumatizing because it's like you're you're banished from the clan or something, you know, and and it's hard. It's very tough. But uh, anyway, a lot going on. But I'd like to have the professors discuss it with the professors on Thursday. Okay, before Um, you go. Again, this is I'm not celebrating Joe Biden, but there's a story in The Washington Post that maintains he's putting some numbers on the board. There was the win last month on the bipartisan gun bill. Toothless, but some stuff in there. It looks like Joe Manchin may allow uh, (laughs) Medicare to negotiate drug prices. He's betraying his daughter. Joe Manchin is betraying his daughter. She's a big Oh, well, pusher. there was some Twitters. Uh, there was some Twittering on the Bird app uh, this morning that said that that in the Senate version of that bill that the House was very proud of, that they had just taken that provision off out the which was a very small provision uh, in the first place. And it only applied to people who were in uh, who had insurance insulin cap on copay. It was a cap on copays for insulin. Right. And they've taken that out. And it's like, you know, uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of a lot of the press still wants to bolster up, you know, Joe Biden because same sex uh, marriage. It looks like there may be enough votes in the Senate to codify same sex marriage into law. They should. I mean, if they can do it for same sex marriage, they certainly can do it for Roe v. Wade. That remains to be seen, because if you look at the Republicans didn't vote you got some crossovers in the House on mm-hmm. same-sex marriage, but not abortion. But in just in terms of having something to run on in November, 
maybe, again, I'm not defending the Democrats, but, you know, they do have some things perhaps to run on, most notably pulling out of Afghanistan, which I think, unfortunately, we pulled into Ukraine. But uh, that was $50 billion dollars to Nazis. All right. I don't know. I don't know if any of that polls higher than the economic issues. Right. And inflation hits everybody. I mean, inflation does. And I think people have forgotten people, especially who have made decent incomes. They've forgotten how devastating inflation can be to people like in the middle, even and the bottom of the economic totem pole. So. I don't know. I think that uh, I'm not even focused on uh, on the, the federal races. I'm focused on the local and state Good. races right now, because that's basically where I can make a difference. Right. Otherwise, I'm just, yeah, I'm just a little burnt out on the federal at the moment. But we, people shouldn't ignore that, because where are all these people who are going to be running for Congress and, and, and the Senate going to come from? You right. either are rich or... You come up through a state Senate. Right. So follow. Talk talk about Rachel later. She's actually got quite a story to tell. I mean, she won, but there's quite a story that came right. Bring her on. Bring her on. I I would love to. I think she would love to come on. Great. Okay. Thank you, Professor Marianne Cummings. Follow her on Twitter at Razor Girl. Coming up. We will be joined by the brilliant Professor Mike Steinel. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. If you would like to attend a live taping of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, go to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour website. We're doing a live taping on gun control this Wednesday at 1230 Eastern. If you want to sit in the audience, go to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour website. All you need is all you need is Zoom. We'll be back with Professor Mike Steinel. We're living every day, we're living every night in the USA of distraction. We wake every morning like the Rolling Stones Cause we just can't get no satisfaction Democracy's in change, we could bury its remains But infotainment culture has infected our brains We're living every day, we're living every night In the USA of distraction the wisdom we receive, the reality we perceive, is burned into our brains by cable TV. Scandal, crime, and disaster lead the news. Fear and white anxiety shape our views. The fourth estate has crumbled into an irrelevant heap. Critical thinking is all but asleep. Cause we're living every day. 
in the USA of abstraction. That's right. And are we there? We're there. In the midst of a worldwide pandemic, retired music professor Michael Newman falls down the stairs in the historic home he and his wife, Jean, are restoring in McAllister, Oklahoma. He is transported back to 1953 and awakens in a bar in Toronto on the night of what is billed as the greatest jazz concert ever. There, he meets his hero, Charlie Parker, the revolutionary saxophonist who is credited as one of the great pioneers of modern jazz. Parker's artistic life was brilliant, but cut short at the age of 34 by his addiction to drugs and alcohol. With the help of astrophysicists from Oklahoma and Switzerland, it is determined that the professor's home has an Einstein-Rosen bridge a time wormhole. Using drugs, hypnosis, and meditation, he attempts to travel back to various important moments in Charlie Parker's life. Driven by the desire to save his hero, Michael's trans-temporal travel has mixed results. Saving Charlie Parker, a novel. Go buy it wherever <laughs> great novels are sold. It's published by Doran's Publishing. Go to Barnes and Noble. Go to SavingCharlieParker.com. Joining us is the author of that book, Professor Mike Steinell. Hello. Wow. Hello. What an what an introduction, David. What a book. What an introduction. Hey, you know what this is? That's the secret to the groove on that last song, the shaker. Ah. I think if you just gave one of these to every human on the planet and say, okay, shake that in good rhythm. And if they don't say, you're going to prison. <laughs> What's in that? I don't know. BBs probably BBs. Wow. It's a beautiful instrument. It's, it's wood. Um, I don't, I, it's, it's called, it's a really nice wood one. I have metal ones and you know, they have little eggs and everything. Give your kids, if you got small children, grandchildren, go buy them a shaker and just let them. Yeah. It's very soothing. Hey, I have a question. If not for you, you're a Dylanologist. If not if for not you. If not for me. Is that a triangle, a xylophone? There's like these very limited use of a bell. And it's in so, what? In If Not For You. And it's so beautiful. Oh. And If Not For You. I have to listen to that. I would love you to. You know, I don't hear, you know, it's really interesting. I don't hear the details that some people hear. Like, I was, <clears throat> one of the things with my, my Dylan band, which we're going to do a show, I think, uh, we're going to do a show coming up in Labor Day. But anyway, we you have we, a Dylan we, cover band. I call it a Dylan tribute band because we don't cover the songs. We do them in our own style. Some mm. of it's kind of jazzy. So actually. does Dylan. Have, Dylan does it in his own style. That's right. He, every, the style's different every night. <laughs> right. uh, 
But um, we have four-part harmony on some things, you know, a lot of things, actually, because I have good singers. But, um, we, 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 you know, Like a Rolling Stone, the great Like a Rolling Stone, which is an amazing bit of music. And uh, I asked one of my people in the band, what, how come we get this sound? And he said, what do you, I said, what do you hear in the sound? They go, tambourine. And I don't hear, I have to really listen to, for the tambourine, but that's, that's one of the, it's those little things. The song I sent you tonight has a lot of, it's, it's like the, I feel spectered it. I stacked it with a bunch of stuff and I think you'll like it. But, uh, is it a you see my background? Is Can it you see tr- my background? Is it, did you we write, have, did you write a love letter to Liz Cheney? I think I might've. Ooh. <laughs> you know, yeah, I wrote, the name of the song is uh, The Gentlewoman from Casper. That's where she lives. I, I Googled it. And, uh, you know, you look at her and you go like, wow, I wonder what, when she relaxes, what does she like? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I was reading the, um, the Washington Post today online, and someone was talking about Liz Cheney's journey through this thing. And she said, you know, she hasn't grandstanded. And blah, 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 blah. But she says she went about her business. I love this. I think I got the quote right. She went about her business like a, let me see. She went about her business like a game warden, not a game warden. Who, who, um, uh, um, oh, shoot. A camp, a park ranger. She went about her business like a park ranger who found a wounded animal and clubbed it out of existence <laughs> to put it out of its misery. <laughs> I thought, well, that's a weird take on that. Yeah, yeah. But I wonder, like, you, you look at her and you go like, uh, hmm, I wonder, what, I wonder what it's like when she uh, loosens up. <laughs> Probably the same way up. your father is when he loosens up. Uh, uh, he bonds, yeah, he bonds a third world nation to loosen up. <laughs> hey, can you see my background? Uh, well, it appears to be Mike's bold and beautiful update. You are a big fan of the bold and beautiful and lots of stuff going on the bold and beautiful. We've missed a lot of weeks. So fill us in. Can you, can you pin me? Yeah. Pin my screen. Okay. Well, on way back on New Year's Eve, Sheila, who is in my screen on there, that's Sheila right there. Right. right. She, I don't know why I can't see me big. I can't, maybe I'll go to gal review or something. I pinned you. I'm going to go to gal review. Okay. Sheila shot, she met Steffi behind the restaurant in the alley and was going to shoot Steffi. Finn's, that's Finn in the bed right there. Finn's wife. But Finn broke in and he jumps in front. Now, Sheila is Finn's biological mother. And she shoots Finn instead. Does she know she's the biological mother? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She knows. They've known about that for a long time. Good. And she's trying to worm her way back into Finn's life. And Steffi's in the is the problem. And so then um, so she shoots Finn accidentally, I guess. And then she turns the gun on and she shoots um, Steffi. Steffi. And then Steffi's got. Got amnesia for a long time. Steffi's laying in the hollow. She finally remembers, and they put Sheila in prison for killing Finn. But then, weeks, weeks, weeks later, you see the adopted mother, Lee, who was a 
doctor has smuggled Finn out, even though they have a death certificate, and she's keeping him alive in her apartment. Mm. But we've all been there. We've all been there. (laughs) Then Sheila shows up thinking she wants to see uh, Finn's grave. And then she realized she hears a noise in the back. She said, what are you doing? And then there, there's a whole, for weeks, they go, not well, for a couple of, a week and a half, it's, it's uh, Sheila and Lee, like going at it, trying to figure out what to do with Finn. And then eventually breaks into a fight because she, uh, Sheila catches Lee calling the police. And then Sheila chases Lee in her car, Lila's, uh, Lee is, is fleeing, and they, she rams her, and the car, this is weeks ago, the car goes into the ocean on fire. And for many days, we don't hear anything about Lee. We don't hear anything about Lee. Sheila goes back and, and stays with Finn, who is finally coming out of it. And Finn's realizing, just last week, he says, what have you done with my mother? Hmm. He realized, and she, so, but Friday... After weeks of us assuming Lee is dead, mm-hmm. Lee shows up with amnesia, of Uh-oh. course, Uh-oh. in that same alley in the back there. And she's all grubby and she's, she's been living like a homeless person because she has no memory. So she's been befriended by Big Bill, who is, uh, and Big Bill didn't know Lee before. So uh, <clears throat> she's sitting there and she's kind of like unresponsive. She won't re- reveal, but she almost said, Finn's name today. So I think by the end of the week, we'll figure something out. But this has been dragging on. They, 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 they just, they manipulate us, David. The bold and beautiful. Anyway, I wanted to catch everybody up on that because it was really important. Well, thank you for that. That's important. <laughs> hey, look what came today. This is exciting. Running the oh, changes. Oh, this oh, would that's be weird. Your th- yeah. Look what happens. It's a green ah. cover. That's so, cool. Hold it. Just hold it there. Oh, man. It that is so cool to look at. Oh, man. Keep it See, still for, I'm sorry. It looks like it's a glass book. It's yeah, like a magic no, it's trip. green. I was unhappy with the, I wasn't crazy about the green cover, but I had a, a red book. That's really Essential cool. Elements for Jazz. And there's people, there's a guitar player and there's a, a singer and there's a, uh, Trump player, woman. And, and is that and, Hal Leonard, the publisher? Yeah, it's Hal Leonard. Good publisher, good people at yeah. Hal Leonard. I love them. So you they have really, a new book out by Hal Leonard, yeah, published by Hal Leonard named, called Running the Changes. Now look at my hand disappear. Yeah. Look at my hand, look at my hand. This is your third book. Oh, it there's the color. I, yeah. I did something. Yeah. This is okay. your, the definitive guide to... Jazz improvisation. I can't read it. Yeah, the definitive guide to jazz improvisation for all instruments. I'm very happy with this book. This is kind of confusing because this is your third book on theory for jazz. It's not theory. It's it's application actually. You know, theory would be just here's the theory, but no, it's it's application. And um, the first third, I mean, you you probably have people in your audience who are going, "How do I start to improvise?" The first third of the book requires no knowledge of theory other than that you know a scale. If you know that scale, do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do. And you can read notes. You could start on this book. And it, 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 it builds from the ground up. I'm very, 
very excited about the book. I, I need, I will begin to, once <clears throat> we got the big book launch coming for the other book, which isn't green, Charlie Parker. Mm-hmm. Thanks for that plug. That was nice of you. Well, first off, I should mention that Professor Mike Steinel, jazz trumpeter, composer, and educator. He was a member of the University of North Texas Jazz Studies faculty from 1987 to 2019. And he's written three highly acclaimed books on jazz. They are Essential Elements for Jazz Ensemble, Volumes 1 and 2, Building a Jazz Vocabulary, and the new one just came out, Running the Changes, how Leonard publishes Running the Changes, who publishes the other, how do, all, they're all Hal Leonard. They're all Hal Leonard. The good people in Hal Leonard. Yeah, yeah. And uh, go to MikeSteinel.com. And he has a new book out called Saving Charlie Parker, a novel published by Dorrance Books. Go to SavingCharlieParker.com. Uh, why do you waste so much time just sitting around watching the bold and the beautiful? Why aren't you writing songs, <laughs> novels? Why will you just sit? Bold and beautiful is only half an hour a day. I, I started, you know, here's we. You are incredibly prolific. You're an inspiration. Well, I guess. I don't know. I just I like to keep busy. Um, oh, here it is right here. I'm going to post that. Saving Charlie Parker launch party. August 8th, 2022, Steve's Wine Bar in Denton, Texas. If you're close, drive over. If you're in the in the DFW area, and at nine o'clock, we're going to go on the uh, we're going to play Turtle on the David David Letterman show <laughs> well, on the I'm David Feldman show. Watch. Are you going to play Turtle live? Yeah, we talked about it last week. I know, we'll but go live. Yeah, we'll do it live for you. Do it live. We're going to go live. So everybody who lives in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, go to Steve's Wine Bar in Denton, Texas, Monday, August 8th. That's two weeks from tonight. Two weeks from tonight, yeah. 2022. Steve's you can reserve a table at steveswinebar.com. Between 7 to 9, and Professor Mike Steinel will be launching... Saving Charlie Parker, the audio book by Professor Mike Stein. Oh, actually, David, this is a sad tale. Amazon re Audible rejected it. Not Audible, but this, uh, this aggregator whose name I won't use. God dang it. Would you like to find the person who is info? You know, contact us at info at Authors Republic. I'm not saying this country, this company is bad. That, that I'm using, but their initials are Authors Republic. Anyway, <laughs> that's an old joke. I actually heard a guy at a clinic say that. Oh, I like that. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to say who it is, but his initials are Freddie Hubbard. <laughs> <laughs> I heard it. That's wild. Anyway, that is a funny joke, isn't it? Yeah. <clears throat> um, hey, speaking of funny bits, I thought, you know, do you, do you see the Prevagen ads? What is Prevagen for? For memory, you know, memory loss. I, I've seen them, but then I can't, re, I can't remember what they My name is Ralph, and uh, I've been doing public speaking for a number of years. And I noticed a few years ago that my memory wasn't ought to be. So I started taking Prevagen, and uh, I'm a lot sharper than I used to be. Turns out that there's nothing to it. But I thought I'd be really funny, like for a drug that makes you forget. Yeah, I would love that. 
Yeah, we yeah. could write this bit. Like it would be like, uh, I'm. Um, and that guy looks over. Oh, I'm Ralph. <laughs> they say. They say I used to be a serial killer. <laughs> yeah, they say I. W- they say that I used to be a serial killer. I don't remember a dang thing because I've been taken. Forget a gin. I forget. I forget what it is too. I mean, and and I don't remember anything about that stuff. There's like some, I say, there... my name is Ralph. <laughs> he keeps can't remember anything. Has that's, to be prompted. That's great. I, That'd be I, a funny bit. I would. There's some memories I'd like to <laughs> dispose of. Uh, I've I've blocked a couple out. Have you really? Some of them on today's show. There were some things I think I said to Liam that weren't even remotely in the neighborhood of clever or funny. How's the heat? No, I love, I love that. Here's the secret. I'm going to come next week with a birthday song for him because he said it's his birthday. Yeah. That's good. Something like, um, something like this. Here's a birthday song for Liam. And it's kind of short. Because <laughs> he, he always rags on my, the, the length of my songs, uh-huh. you know. But they're jazzy. You, you got to, I mean, you got to let the jazz, you got to let it percolate. Yeah. You can't have a two-minute jazz song. Should we play Turtle? <clears throat> Should we listen to Turtle? Well, how about, how about uh, the new one? Oh, the, the new you. one? Yeah, we have the new one. You want to do Wait, that? Yeah. I, I sent two versions. The latest version is a, a mix I like a little better. Okay, which I, I have that. Eight. You have that? Yeah. Maybe we'll play Turtle to <clears throat> entice people. My wife wanted me to, we, we have an issue going on. and We have ants in the kitchen. Bad. We got ants in the kitchen. She wanted me to write a song called Ants in the Kitchen, which is a good title. Yeah. And uh, I said, I'd rather write a song about my fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> my fantasy life with Liz Cheney. Oh my! I'm sure. So, were you uh, which couch tonight? <laughs> well, we haven't. Got, she hadn't heard the show yet. I mean, oh, you know. Okay. No, she heard me singing it. So I guess she said, "Oh, so you're doing the gentlewoman song, huh?" She, mm. <laughs> the gentlewoman from Casper. Hmm. Well, yeah. new music from Professor Mike Steinel. The Gentlewoman from Casper. I had a dream last night And it gave me indigestion Liz Cheney was there And she had a lot of questions Did you see me on the TV when I was chairing the committee? Did you like my white suit? Did you think my hair looked pretty? I told her I watched it gavel to gavel That's about the time things began to unravel I had a dream last night And Liz Cheney was there I 
kitchen I was making a pie She was looking at me kind of crazy And that hair was hanging over her eyes And she said it kind of quiet, soft and low The committee stands and resets I'm ready to go I said, I'm a little nervous Can we have a muffin? She said, don't be scared, little man They don't call me gentlewoman for nothing I had a dream last night And Liz Cheney was there I had a dream last night I was making green tea Liz Cheney was in the kitchen And she was coming on to me She said she's ready to go She was hot to trot I was really kind of scared I was frozen on the spot She said all we need to do Is put our politics aside Then I can take you On that magic carpet ride I had a dream last night And Liz Cheney was there That sounds great. I love that. I love that. Yeah, if we could just put our politics aside, I think we could think I, you know, I don't know. Yeah. She's an interesting woman. I, I, I just, I think she's, <clears throat> um, I guess she's principled at some point, you know, but um, it's an odd, it's an, it's an odd turn of events that she would be in that position, I think. You know, I guess. Would, would it have been any different? Would, there, would anything have happened different that she would not make that turn? What do you mean? To, to, to go against her whole party. Right. Well, I, that's a beautiful, I love the song. Uh and I'm really not that attracted to her. I think, I think, I think she's a hard woman. I would think that would be scary. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I'm, that's what the, 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 that's in the lyric there, you know. <laughs> she donated the heart to Dick Cheney. That's where he got the heart from. What? Yeah. You can't she, donate a heart. She, that's. <laughs> so. Donate a kidney. How is, how is Denton? How, how hot, hot. is it? Really? Dang hot. Oh man, it's so hot. Yeah, we got to do something about this climate. <clears throat> well, they're 
painting the asphalt gray now. That seems to be, that's going to solve it. They're, they're reflecting. You know, I read a number of years ago, I read that if every, if every roof in the, in the world was painted white, it would save something like 25% of our electricity costs. And if everybody let themselves go gray, it would reflect the sun back into. <laughs> I think it's caused by just for men, quite frankly. <laughs> yeah, maybe so. I never thought of that. All right. Yeah. <laughs> okay, once, let's plug the uh, book launch one more time. Go to, it is so hot here, Professor, and I don't have air conditioning. Why don't you have air conditioning? Well, be, you, you need to organize a strike. Well, well, I do have air conditioning. I can't run it during the show. When I, your show. Okay. Yeah, so I just suffer through. It does make my head cloudy. The heat? Yeah, and the brownies that I ate with the <laughs> hash in them. Well, you know, here's, here's a weird thing. And I was talking to my daughter about this is that we stay inside down here. People say, how do you live in Texas? So, he, well, Texas is our, a summer is our winter. You just try to, like in winter up in Wisconsin, you just try to get from the car to the house and then the car to the job. <laughs> so here, that's what you do. You like to get, you get to the car and then you go to and get from the car to the store, from the store to the car, from the car to the house, you know. Right. But it's so hot. But I do know that um, the weather really, even though I'm not outside that much, I'm going to play, I'm going to try to play golf tomorrow, actually. But um, early in the day, um, it, I feel lethargic. It makes me, the weather makes me lethargic. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I don't think that's uncommon. No. Nope. Well, yeah. this is something everybody needs to do. Go to SavingCharlieParker.com. Go buy Saving Charlie Parker, a novel. If you don't love the book, let me know. I will reimburse you. Oh, if David, you, you don't have to do that. I won't. People are going to hate this book. They're going to love it. <laughs> They're going to love it. And go to Steve's Wine Bar in Denton, Texas, August yeah. 8th. Seven it's going to be great. For the, it's going to be the, great. For the book launch. <clears throat> and we'll be simulcasting parts of it where we will hear Turtle played live turtle live may i play it right now yes but before i sign off i want to apologize last week you said like you often do you praise me and you say i love you man and i said i know <laughs> <laughs> and i was like i had i had a few girlfriends say that <laughs> back in the day there's a, a comedian named rich brown <laughs> Very funny oh, yeah? comic from, I, I think he started in Massachusetts. He lives in Los Angeles now. And he, he says, my father was emotionally distant. I used to say, I love you, Dad. And he'd go, no problem. <laughs> I've heard that. That's no problem. Great, that's <laughs> Rich Brown, he's so funny. Was uh, he on your show once? Yeah, he used to do the show all the time. Yeah, I yeah. think you heard, I heard him say that joke on the show. Yeah, man, that's you have a, a great good, memory. That's a great joke. You have a great memory. It's a great joke. Well, let's right. hear Turtle, shall we? Okay, you bet. Stick around for Turtle. Okay, I'm sticking around.
That is just amazing. Chertle, who's playing on that, Professor Mike Steinel? I'm playing trumpet. Rosanna Eckert's singing. Chris McGuire's playing that great alto solo. Wow. Um, Carl Hillman's playing the bass. Steve Barnes playing the drums. And Pat Coyle's playing piano. And then we overdubbed the B3. And I'm also playing harmonica. A little bit of harmonica in there. We're going to so, see that live on August 8th, Monday. That is the plan. Two weeks from tonight, we're going to go live to Steve's Wine Bar in Tenton, Texas, and join Professor Mike Steinel there. For and the, the crew. Yeah, Saving Charlie Parker book launch, 7 to 9 at Steve's Wine Bar, Monday, August 8th, 2022, in Denton, Turtle, uh, Donald James in the chat room wrote, is this a song about Mitch McConnell? Because that's, that's pretty. He does I know, that would be good. That would, that, would be, that would be a good video to put with that. Just no. a little snap, snapshots of Mitch McConnell. <laughs> like you did with Pig for Love. You know, you have, uh-huh. you know, they have pigs. Maybe we can find some uh, footage footage of, of uh, turtles. Not a bad idea. Can I sneak? Not a bad idea. Can I sneak? Mitch McConnell in one? Yeah, yeah, that'd be good. Really? Okay. Oh, sure, yeah. Yeah, sure, I don't care. Uh, I love you. I know. (laughs) (laughs) No, I love you too, man. Thank you. (laughs) See you later. Thank you. You're listening to The David Feldman Show. Go buy Saving Charlie Parker and uh, go to savingcharlieparker.com. Rodrigo in Mexico, and then we wrap up Another exciting episode of the David Feldman Show. Thanks, David. Uh, I have a, another warning for you. I know we're all frustrated with how the Republicans are disciplined and always vote on everything and always volunteer to run things or to run for local offices that end up affecting what your children are allowed to even hear about on school or what happens when people who carry their phones everywhere so the NSA can track them all the time, complain that the vaccines will spy on them. But the solution is not to foment the same kind of discipline and cult-like behavior. When you have leftists signing up behind their heroes and delegate to them the ability to think for them, you get hierarchies that are easily subverted. What we need instead is to actually train people to question everyone, including us, and if possible, Meet in small groups to talk things over and try as often as possible to make sure we're still on the side of the good guys. Instead of going on and on, let me give you a practical example. Few things were as disheartening this year as discovering how many people we relied on to be good leftists were on Putin's side, but one of them was discovering how many leftists blindly trusted Zelensky and NATO's role in feeding Ukrainian civilians to the war machine we currently identify as a proxy war between the NATO powers and Russia. If you're really anti-war like our own Professor Pamela, you say something like, both sides are wrong, we demand real peace negotiations to protect civilians instead of giving weapons to Ukraine that will probably end up in the black market. If you're not a leftist or you're not aware of how much power the neo-Nazis hold in Ukraine, you might have the opposite experience. You might be dismayed at how many tankies are on Russia's side and refusing to see that Biden could be Putin what he wants, but his overpaid advisors keep telling him he doesn't have to. 
Either way, you have seen leftists taking sides between Putin and Zelensky slash NATO because they believe those are the only options, and that's what we have to prevent, because even if Bernie has started a movement based on a cult of personality in 2016, lots of people who were not re-invited to his 2020 campaign are now Jimmy Dore orbiters happy that Jimmy is running for president, and they could have hijacked a Bernie movement from the inside. That's all for now. Thank you. Thank you, Rodrigo in Mexico. That is our show. I want to thank our guests, Grace Jackson, co-host of The Literary Hangover. Follow her on Twitter at Grace Jackson. Jason Miles and Pascal Robert, hosts of the This Is Revolution podcast. Go to thisisrevolutionpodcast.com, buy a mug. Quizmaster Dan F., Thank you. And Jill from Canada. Good try. Uh, Jill from Canada almost beat me today on Stump the Hump. She came so close. David Cobb. Follow him on Twitter at David K. Cobb. Dr. Harriet Fraud. Listen to her podcast, Capitalism Hits Home. I want to thank Liam McEnany. Peter B. Collins. Go to PeterBCollins.com for a treasure trove of his interviews, radio shows, and podcasts. And thank you, Mary Ann Cummings, Professor Mary Ann Cummings. Follow Professor Mary Ann Cummings on Twitter at RazorGirl. And of course, Mike Steinel, author of Saving Charlie Parker, a novel. Go to MikeSteinel.com for more information on how to buy his new books. He has a new book on jazz running the changes, go to MikeSteinel.com. That's it. Uh, Today's show is produced by Professor Jonathan Bick, Dan Frankenberger, The Invisible Ninja, Joe in Norway, Sarah Bush, Hannah Feldman, uh, Andy Brown. Better start that one over. My memory shot. Here we go. Today and Grace Jackson. Today's show is produced by Grace Jackson, Sarah Bush, and Hannah Feldman, Professor Jonathan Bick, Andy Brown, Dan Frankenberger, The Invisible Ninja, and and uh, hang on, I can do this without looking. Dan Frankenberger, The Invisible Ninja, Professor Jonathan Bick, Andy Brown, Joe in Norway. Uh, Sarah Bush, Grace Jackson, Hannah Feldman. Did I get it right? I probably left somebody out. Uh, Subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Please give us a good review and share the show with your friends. That's the only way. We are not corporate sponsored. The only way to... uh, Help us, other than donating, is by spreading the word. Hey, if you would like to sit in on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, we're doing a live show Wednesday on Zoom. We're doing a show on gun control. You're invited. All you need is Zoom. Go to Ralph Nader Radio Hour, the website, and sign up. All you need is Zoom. We start 1230 Eastern. Go to davidfeldmanshow.com to sign up for my newsletter. It comes out every Friday, and it includes an invitation for office hours, which takes place every Friday night 
at 8 p.m. I'm there for the first 90 minutes, and then uh, the community takes over. Follow me on Twitter, friend me on Facebook, and I think that covers everything. I'm David Feldman. Remember to stay strong and protect the weak. I'm on my way to be a billionaire. Now you can make fun of me, but I don't really care. I have a plan to get there by and by. As long as I stay healthy and I never die. Fifteen bucks an hour, five days a week, fifty-two weeks a year, and thirty-two thousand years. I know it's a long time, honey, to thirty-four thousand and twenty. But when I get there, babe, I'm gonna be in the money. I'm on my way to be a billionaire. Now you can make fun of me, but I don't really care. I have a plan to get there by and by. As long as I stay healthy and I never die. All I really need is a second job or a third. Lift myself up my boots and join that elite herd of the 600 billionaires in the USA who make more in a second than I do in a day. I'm on my way. Yes, I am. I'm on my way. I'm on my way. Yes, I am. I'm on my way to be a billionaire. Now you can make fun of me, but I don't really care. I have a plan to get there. Yes, I do, by and by. As long as I stay healthy and I never die. As long as I stay healthy and I never die. As long as I stay healthy and I never die.